You're not feeling like yourself anymore. You're not alone. Whether you're concerned about your weight, your energy level, a lack of sex drive, or hormone imbalance, solutions are waiting for you at Nava Health. With a technology-driven approach, Nava's medical experts craft custom plans that adapt as you progress, optimizing your health. Start feeling better now at navacenter.com forward slash POD. That's navacenter.com forward slash POD. Or call 855-680-6282. Results may vary. Years ago, H.G. Wells visualized roads such as these in his science fiction fantasies. And today they're a reality. You're listening to The Afternoon Commute with John Adams and Chris Kendall. Welcome to The Afternoon Commute. Today is October 8th. 2015. If you'd like to hear previous episodes of the Afternoon Commute, you can go to hoaxbusterscall.com. You'll find those posted up there alongside previous episodes and the most recent episode of Chris's Monday Night Broadcast, the original Hoaxbusters Call. Also posted up there are various articles and videos, some of them original in nature, so make sure to check those out. For any and all things Hoaxbusters, go to hoaxbusterscall.com. If you're new to the listening audience, we welcome you. And if you're a regular listener, thank you for listening. Uh, you are hearing two afternoon commutes in one week, yes. Uh, we just did a call with Jose Barrera on Tuesday, and we spoke with him about the cult of reason, and a little bit later on, him and Chris spoke about demons and manifesting demons into reality. Very interesting, thought-provoking call. Make sure you check that one out. Today, our guest is no stranger to the afternoon commute, as I often say when he appears here with us. His name is Jay Dyer, and he has a website called jaysanalysis.com. It's full of all sorts of unique articles and analysis, everything from geopolitics to espionage, philosophy, and film and literature critique and analyzing of the occult nature of some of those uh, movies. Uh, really interesting stuff. It's definitely one of my daily stops when I'm looking uh, to read something, and Jay always writes a fine article. And he also has other interviews posted up there from podcasts that he does. So make sure you go check out his material over there. He also is going to be premiering a radio show uh, this month, so look out for that, and he'll give us all the details of that. And he, if you're going to be in the Austin area uh, this month, he will also be giving a speech at the Secret Space convention and um, that's with a bunch of other guests there uh, so if you're going to be in Austin and you're not too busy trying to find the secret infowars.com studio <laughs> uh, go over to go to the secret space talk and find Jay Dyer tell him that you heard him on Hoaxbusters and I, I'm going to take a wild guess that you could probably find him at the bar for cocktails deep into a conversation trading notes with Linda Moulton Howe. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm just kidding. He wouldn't, he wouldn't drink four cocktails. Right. I will be hitting on Linda Moulton Howe, though. <laughs> <laughs> not really. Uh, not four cocktails at the same time. No, as, as I did want to make clear, all, all caveats out there, 
I'm not lecturing on aliens. Uh, that is not what I do. I do the movies, and I, so I've already been kind of been I'm typecast already. Oh, you're the movie guy. Oh, okay, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This guy. Oh, he's the he's the one guy here who doesn't believe in aliens. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but they said so I can talk. talk if they said I can talk movies. Uh, okay, I can talk movies anytime. Cool. Well. I don't, think of, I don't uh, think of you as a movie guy. I know you talk about movies, but how can you not talk about movies talking about the stuff you talk about? Because movies are such a big cultural driver. Right. I think everybody talks about them. You know, it's it, it, they're they're probably the main cultural driver, or yeah. one of the main cultural drivers of yeah, in we, society. You know, my, my view... Go ahead, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, we don't need... Uh, we don't need to read books and... Uh, religious texts anymore for our morals we get it from our movies and our music and our TV mm-hmm. yeah so, my philosophy is you know I'll, I'll go on whoever show as long as they let me you know say my my view and my piece you know I don't care what, what the what the host views are or whatever it doesn't matter it doesn't matter to me oh so that's why you that's why you come on and talk to us I get it no I tend, <laughs> obviously tend to be more in agreement with you guys I'm, I'm, I'm pulling both your legs, sir. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, I wanted to talk to you uh, before uh, I take off in a little bit um, about your Black Dahlia review. Yeah. And I just want to touch on that a little bit because I know yeah. you and Chris will get into get into the uh, frank and open, deep conversation a little bit uh, later on. Um. Now, keep in mind, I, I don't at all profess to be any kind of expert on this story. You know, I, I just wanted to approach the film angle, and, you know, I, I'm aware that there's even questions about uh, George Hodel, and there's there's all these different different candidates for who might have done it. So, you know, I just wanted to put yeah. out there on it. So don't... Sure, don't uh, sure. I, I, thought, I thought it was a really good article. I thought it was really... Uh, I thought it was a great article... Terrible movie, <laughs> but great article. I I did I when that know, movie I, came out. I'm not a Brian De Palma fan. Yeah, he's hit and miss. I think he he is he he honestly he's he is the Will Ferrell of directing. He's like one of those guys who <laughs> thinks he's a really great director. Yeah, but he's not that great. <laughs> If you if you see him in interviews, he he's kind of uh, very arrogant. But um, but he uh, I don't I, I don't know. There's there's always something about his movies that are just so cheesy, and Black Dahlia is no exception uh, to that. But um, but your analysis of the content of it is, is it's uh, very good, uh, well done, and it leads into something a lot larger that I kind of wanted to bring up, and I think you're a good person to discuss this with. Um, and of course, I would love to also hear uh, Chris's uh, input on this as well, because I don't think we've technically discussed something like this. But okay, so the Black Dolly murder—I'll just use this as kind of a background for um, what I want to what I want to say. There is—we we tend to study a lot in the realm of media fakery on this podcast, and um, Chris uh, does as well on his. Uh, Hoaxbusters called, and 
And there is a section of people who would look into this, maybe even listen to this podcast, probably not so much, because there is just a, a group of people out there who think every single thing is always fake. Right. Okay. Now, I don't classify myself as that person. I tend to go with, yes, ancient history is real. I don't think Jesuit priests faked the ancient past and created all of the artifacts that are buried in the ground and all of the, uh, you know, the ancient sites and all that stuff and uh, fake the Roman history and all, all that type of stuff. I know that um, there's people out there. I have no problem with people questioning that, uh, but sure. I don't personally uh, take that point of view. So that would be an extreme point of view on that front. Um, same thing with, like, people put out shit like World War II didn't happen, nobody died. Uh, um, so, like I said, I have no problem with people questioning these real events, but there's always the possibility and the probability of things occurring. Yeah, right? I think yeah, I think you guys, real quick, I'll let you finish up. I think you guys are the real hoaxbusters, like the real mythbusters. Those fake dudes on TV are the fake fake busters, right? The fake. The fake, fake, fake exposers. And uh, what I really like about what you guys do that I think serves a very important role, at least for people who really want to get to the bottom of things, is uh, legitimate skepticism. I think that's great. Well, I'm glad you all say that because I wanted to bring this proposal to you that I I've, I found out through you know my, my extensive research that all air travel is fake. It's, yes, it takes right. place in a simulate simulated <laughs> planes and memory implantation right. technology. Yeah. So when I, I flew to Vegas a few months ago, and that was done in a, uh, a sensory deprivation tank, apparently. All right. So there we go. More antidotal evidence to back that up. So well, that, I, mean, I mean, well, well, because we can prove that, Chris, because they fake planes. Like they take plane rides on TV. Like if you see an episode of Seinfeld and they're on an airplane, yeah, that it looks like you're inside an airplane on the TV set. So that proves it right there. Well, and then somebody might say, "Well, what's all this stuff flying around in the sky?" I mean, hot air balloons, holograms, they're holograms, and, holog and they're holograms. Yeah. Well, some of them are balloons, and some of them oh. are projecting oh. holograms <laughs> as well. So. Well, see. Now, now, it's funny you bring that up because th this is going to play into what, what I want to say. So you have you have that extreme where everything's fake, nothing is real, and that really even borders on being led down in, down the New Age path. Yes, there was a dude who called into a show, I think it was on Boiler Room, and he was trying to argue with me about this stuff, and I said, well, you realize the absurdity of what you're saying is that basically that just leads into everything being illusory so you might as well just be some sort of yogi and go sit on a mountain somewhere and exactly you know yeah so, so then so then you have but then there's the reverse of that whereas i could say that it's the probability and the possibility the po the possibility there is always a possibility of something so there's the possibility that world war ii didn't happen it might be possible but it's not probable not real. It's it's definitely not probable. But then you have something like 
aluminum planes crashing into steel and concrete buildings, going through them like butter and making a plane-shaped hole. That is not probable or possible in physics. Okay? So I know that the footage of planes flying in buildings on 9-11 is not real. Okay? That in and of itself is not real. To have an... I, I, I'm whether you disagree with that comment or agree is not the is not. I'm not trying to uh, get you to comment on that because that's not. I, I don't want to debate that subject if, if you disagree. But the the foot the footage of planes flying into buildings on 9/11 going through them just like it's no big deal and having nose cones come out the other side is absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely not probable, not possible. No. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead, sir. And, and, and then to end this, I have looked extensively into the Black Dahlia murder mm-hmm. for close to 15, 16 years. I've analyzed it with my Hoaxbusters goggles on. I've looked at the autopsy photos, and I, I've never seen anybody out there say that it, that, that was a hoax. Mm-hmm. But um, I tend to think that that was a real murder and that Elizabeth Short was a real person and that those autopsy photos of her are real. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't always go with the notion that these big sensationalized stories, um, that you have to analyze them piece by piece. You can't just blanket over them and say, oh, well, that was a sensationalized story of it today. That means that it was fake, right? Well, and so I, so I, I just want to conclude what I was saying by saying that I think that the Black Dahlia murder was real. She, um, she really did die. She really was a victim of a ritualistic murder, obviously of some sort. And um, the autopsy photos look real to me. Yeah, that was my impression. But uh, you know, obviously, I'm not at all researched it to the level you have. Um, you know, I just kind of know the basics. But I know that locally. There was in Tennessee what looked to be somewhat of a ritual possible murder for those that followed the case with this girl named Holly Bobo. And it turned into a, a national news story. And uh, I, I know people that knew her. So that is a real, possibly ritual murder case. And we've had others around here. Uh, we've had, Kentucky had the. Uh, Vampire killer Rod Farrell. Uh, they did an HBO documentary about him. You know, I've grown up near where this happened. Uh, that, uh, to all appearances, uh, was an, an actual, real ritual murder. So, you know, I, I know from relatively close. You know, obviously, I wasn't like investigating the crime scenes and shit like that. But, but uh, you know, when you know people that were involved in these situations, and you know that they have. Or the, they knew these people, and you know they have a pretty good testimony from you know previous life experience, knowing this person that they're not generally bullshitters and making up stuff. That yeah, obviously this stuff really goes on. Uh, I think the West Memphis cult—I I don't even know exactly what went down, but that appear, appeared to be a real um, ritual something. Um, whether those boys were actually guilty or somebody framed them, I don't know. Um, any either of those situations is possible. But in the case of Holly Bobo, if you read a lot of those news stories, I can tell you for sure that that's a big time meth area, and that there are quite a few private detectives that talk about 
uh, human trafficking, and there appeared to be almost maybe even a snuff film human trafficking element to that story because she's this hot blonde chick who just kind of disappeared in this ring of uh, meth head skanky dudes. So they supposedly found her dismembered body skull here and there. Uh, who knows? I mean, you, maybe she was just taken off, and uh, that's that element of the story is fake. I, I don't know. It could it could be, but uh, you know, I do know people that knew her, and she really was kidnapped. Her parents really were involved in um, you know two years of trying to track her down. Uh, you know, so this is a national. I'm again, I'm not net directly involved in the case in any way, but we did have local people around here that were investigating it. Detectives, PIs, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, and so um, I, I would think with dealing on a daily basis at, at my job, um, just people on power trips in 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 my day to day life, or dealing with someone who's on a power trip when you're asking them for help at the hardware store. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine the power trips that people who have real power are on. Yeah. And so to ritualistically murder someone doesn't seem too far-fetched if you're on a power trip yeah. and and you you can, and for all intents and purposes, you can do anything you want pretty much and get away with it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, what do you I'm, think, Chris? I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I, if you're going to, I, I don't know, just take anything for instance, uh, uh, I don't know, Darwinism or what have you, something that's put out in front of you, and then I think Darwinism is a good example because you'll have all these scientific claims of evidence that says, okay, this is real, this is really happening, this is how biology works. Um, I think a logical, reasonable person would take each individual claim based on its own merits or demerits, you know, and then look at it and look at those claims individually. Yeah. Um, if you want to insist on taking at it as a whole, like say, for instance, you say, well, here's a claim, here's a claim, here's a claim, and the reason why this stands as evidence is because this is peer review science then you know I, th- I think a logical reasonable question or, or something to bring up is to um, challenge that premise it's like okay so what evidence do you have that just because something is peer reviewed ne- equates it with evidence and then you know there's nobody's going to give you anything because nobody's even suggest none of this is even going to suggest that you uh, examine that that foundational premise well, you know, I think the same thing holds true with any kind of uh, endeavor into trying to find out the truth about something. Like, you know, do murders happen? Do accidents happen? Do real things happen in the real world? Yeah, absolutely. And does sometimes the news media report on those things or put those things out of the news? I, yeah, I believe so. Um, do, does that mean that that because they do that on a regular basis, does that mean that everything that's presented in the news is also in that same vein or in the, along that same order? No, that that doesn't logically follow. Mm-hmm. You know that that um, it, a lot of stuff is like this. If you want to even bring in um, uh, okay medical sciences, right? So 
uh, you can go and have like your finger sewed back on at, at a hospital. The trauma medicine and stuff like that is in the modern day is like very advanced and very uh, um, successful in in helping people in that regard. Now, does that so should you take that and then does it follow that um, all prescription drugs and everything else that is associated with modern medicine that that too is legitimate and it, 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 and for the most part helps people i mean no you, you you can't do that but i think that's where people will fall into that it's like everything is fake so that what what they're saying there what, what, what actually somebody's doing when they say that is they're creating a straw man argument that's misrepresenting what um, like myself and like john and like you know like 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 uj and people are they're saying about okay we can point to this and we have pretty good reason to believe that this is a fake or hoax event. Now, it doesn't necessarily follow that, okay, everything in the news is fake or everything in history is fake. It doesn't necessarily follow, but that's a that's a, a typical, very common uh, straw man fallacy where you misrepresent um, it, it, your opponent's argument or position and then you um, it, in, instill this absolutist uh, uh, or, or you, you conclude or infer that it's some sort of absolutist position that, you know, well, then, yeah. but that, that is, yeah, it's a common logical fallacy. One way to refute that perspective of everything as fake is that the problem is that what the, the, the path that you went down to come to that conclusion requires some degree of learning a bunch of true facts that came to you from different sources that you could also question. And so the, this gets back into the fallacy of Maya or solipsism. And the reason that that is not a correct worldview, in my opinion, is that once you get to the point where you're saying that everything is illusory or fake, then it also follows that your discovery of the truth, supposedly that everything is illusory is fake, is also fake. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, this is a great point that uh, Cornelius Van Til made this point a long time ago about Neoplatonism, where he was uh, being accused of being a Neoplatonist, and in ways he was, but uh, he was kind of one of these guys who did a lot of work in foundational arguments like that, transcendental arguments, and, and somebody was making that point about, well, how do we know that maybe you know Neoplatonism isn't true or some, some former version of Maya that everything is illusory and so he said essentially well look if everything is just a revelation of the one in platonism and the only way out of this is through meditation and nirvana or whatever to get back to the one and you got to realize that everything's a lie and everything's illusory then you have to admit that the process of you learning that is also a lie and illusory and at that point it's completely contradictory and it's it's nonsensical yeah i, I think that's a big uh total non sequitur into um yeah this absolutism like well okay because uh, generally every time we're referencing something that's you know we're proposing as being fake or hoaxed it's something that it, it falls into the same category as uh, well challenges to uh, official doctrines or official narratives right. that are put out there and it's like well if you can if you could uh, which I don't attempt to, and I don't think any of us are attempting to do. Where you can, um, if you could logically come to the conclusion, like everything that is put out in officialdom is, is some sort of, uh, I think it may be mostly true. I don't, but see, I, but 
maybe it's not mostly, maybe it's half true or whatever, but it just doesn't matter. It's but whatever the case, if you were to conclude that it was a hundred percent, everything that's coming out of officialdom is a hundred percent made out of whole cloth or fake. E- even if you were to arrive at that conclusion, that doesn't necessarily follow that everything you know, uh, mountains and trees and birds and nature and everything is also fake. That doesn't even make any damn sense. Yeah, but it can lead that way, and that's what I think. That's what you've actually seen in especially Far Eastern religions. That's why they fall into that that fallacy of, on the one hand, they they want there to be some modicum of logic and consistency and coherency, right? So, you know, know, let let me read something real quick because uh, you guys are touching on some interesting subjects, and I wanted to um, kind of bring this all together into um, what the actual story of the Black Dahlia was as well, and it goes along with this as well. But I'm going to read here real quick from page 57 of uh, my uh, new infatuation with this book, Expanded Media by Gene Youngblood. And um, he writes here in um, page 57, uh, the title of the chapter is Popular Culture and the Noosphere says, contemporary man is fortunate to have a tool that makes him aware of his own enculturation, and thus he enjoys greater psychic freedom than his ancestors. This tool is what Teilhard de Chardin has called the noosphere, the film of organized intelligence that encircles the planet, super, uh, superposed on the living layer of the biosphere and the lifeless layer of the inorganic material, the, lith- the lithosphere. The minds of three and a half billion humans, which this is written in the 70s, 25% of all humans who ever lived currently nourish the the noosphere. Distributed around the globe by the intermedia network, it becomes a new technology that may prove to be one of the most powerful tools in man's history. John McHale. World communications diffuse and interpenetrate local cultural tradition, providing commonly shared cultural experience in a manner unparalleled in human history. Within this global network, the related media share and transmit man's symbolic needs and their expression on a world scale. Besides the enlargement of the physical world, these these media virtually extend our physical environment, providing a constant stream of moving, fleeting images of the world for our daily appraisal. They provide psychic mobility for the greater mass of our citizens. Through these devices, we can telescope time move through history and span the world in a great variety of unprecedented ways. Okay. And so that's we're we're far beyond anything that he's predicting right there in that book. And uh we're into the age of virtual and psychic manipulation, basically. Mm-hmm. And so uh, like Chris and some of the callers were talking about on, on the last Hostbusters call, it's you are fighting to keep your sanity because I, I could understand why a person would start questioning everything under the sun. Um, but that's why I wanted to have a conversation about this with you guys because uh, hopefully somebody who was uh, questioning uh, things to a very extreme uh, level and 
you know, Chris and I talked about uh, extremes and how how uh, extremes are not the best way to approach anything, mm-hmm. taking an extreme view on anything, and um, and recognizing what an extreme is that that can become very tough in in a world of extremes, extreme sports. Everything is advertised as being extreme, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, so you're kind of pushed in the direction of ex, of extremes as well, and that may even lead to extreme views of, uh, you know, the white man's supposed to rule the world. Um, may even lead to uh, extreme views like everything is fake. So, um, there's reality is uh, to even use the occult term. Reality is gray. It's a gray area. It always has been. It's neither black nor white. It's both mixed together. And you can't just... And the polar opposites of each other are are what are used to manipulate people. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree. And, yeah, and so, so if you took the case of the Black Dahlia, and what... When, when you read the story of, of uh, what Steve Fidel wrote in his book, Black Dolly Avenger, uh, in 2003, and yes, there are a multitude of, of different uh, stories as who was the real Black Dolly killer, I tend to think that Steve Fidel uh, is correct in thinking that his dad, George Fidel, is, is the killer. Uh, in a sense, he, he was part of a group of people who were into the occult, who were... Uh, Surrealist painters and artists, mm-hmm. and, and um, if you look at the surrealist art from the from the time period uh, prior to her murder, uh, it is full of dismembered female bodies. Right. And then you have a dismembered female body finding you know finding that on a street corner on 39th and Norton in uh, South Central Los Angeles. And it becomes art in reality. Yep. And that's what you find that this guy was into. He was a surrealist. He uh, he was a an occultist as well. And whether he was the actual only guy involved with it, I doubt it. But um, he certainly had the uh, skills to be able to uh, surgically cut a body in half and remove all the organs and all the things well, that he. He did. Yeah. But, uh, just 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 real quick, I just wanted to say this, and I'll let you I'll let you have the floor. Is this is where this is one one of the things that you can point to in in an older time where you start to see this um, bizarre manipulation of art, and now it's going into reality. And so you could even take the things that we're seeing today play themselves out as terror attacks or whatever it is, uh, shootings, and there might even be people involved in the occult who see this as an art. I mean, they even call it an art in the arcane books and in Freemasonry and stuff like that. So it's an art, it's a craft, it's, it's all those things. And uh, the end result is to get people to do what they want you to do. So that in and of itself is an art. Absolutely. That's what that surrealist notion of there being no divide between the dream state and the waking state which you and I talked about when we were discussing David Lynch because he's very influenced by surrealism. You could see why this would be a slippery slope into a dangerous perspective, which would lead you right into that far eastern notion of Maya, 
uh, or that the external world is simply a manifestation of my own psyche. And if that's the case, then there aren't really any consequences for actions. Just like in a dream state, if you rape a bunch of bitches, then you're not, you're not going to jail, right? Uh, so if the dream state's no different from the waking state, uh, same, same, it's just one continuous flow. That's a very right. and, and and on, on top of that, George Hadell was a sadist. He was a he was a follower of the writings of Marcus Dussault as well. Mm-hmm. On, on your point, yeah. And so, from a psyops esoteric occult government perspective, then you could see how that mindset could be useful for basically. I think, as we said before, kind of the the reality psyop. If you could get the general public to basically be shaken in their question of what reality is uh, not that even most of the public is really even conscious of it but just in this kind of dream state where they just float through life according to the stream of mass media right and so you're just floating along in this haze of mix between Fox News and MSNBC and Time Magazine and Hollywood and it all just kind of blends together into this Perception that you've adopted a complete paradigm, as well as your education system, and you know you've never even thought that maybe this was, uh, you know, complete a, a wide scale psyop uh, to that degree. So I think it's really just the degree of, of, you know, are there people out there who could conceive of that deep of a psyop? And I, I think absolutely. Hello. Well, we, the nature of television itself is surrealist. Yeah. If you're sitting there watching something, it's presented to you as being some kind of a serious event or something like that. And then it, it, it okay, in about three minutes, you're going to go to a commercial for like an air freshener or some kitty litter, you know, <laughs> kitty litter or something. Yeah, <laughs> that, was, or, that was a great point you made. It was cracking me up. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 absolutely bizarre and surreal, right? I mean. <laughs> It's just... It's like, it's like uh, you know, this just in, we've just had a report that 27 people were shot. But now a word from our sponsors, right? And then it goes to dick pills, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, talk talk about shifting your consciousness. I, 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 like, think I think they've even talked about it, so I, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but in, in advertising, I think they've actually talked about that, how, how um, when, when you get... When you get a dose of trauma from the news, and then you go to a to selling a product, that it creates a uh, positive association with the product, because what you're doing is is you're being traumatized, and then you're being uh, exposed to this uh, product that's going to make you happy, and so yeah. it goes from an extreme trauma to the product, and then the product is going to make you happy. So, so you, you you automatically switch into oh, I just you know like I just saw 33 people died today, and but uh, now I can go buy some air freshener and feel good about myself. <laughs> well, that's a good point because it's like having a bad. You ever have like a bad dream when you're a kid, and then you wake up, and then it's like you had a nightmare, and you feel like you, you still you're still feeling the residual effects of the nightmare, and then it's like um, oh, it's time for school. So you like. You feel glad about having to go to school when normally you wouldn't. You'd be like, normally you'd be like dreading school, but like, you, you see what I'm saying? So you, you have this positive association with going to school after you have this 
bad dream or something. So yeah, the trauma yeah. Cre- creates the the emotional reaction that's it's just reactionary where the you know rational faculties are shut off. You don't you don't again that's kind of you know that's we talked about that flight or flight or flight syndrome where it's like being a, like if you're you know I remember one time I was in in the library at Murray State and uh, I was doing. It was when I was doing my grad work, and I was a research assistant, and I was manning the desk at the library, and this uh, dude comes in, it's like a little bitty skinny white guy who's acting like a, a thug, if you catch my drift, and the dude like came up to the desk and threw a book at me and tried to start a fight, <laughs> out, of, out of nowhere, and I'm just sitting there reading a book at the desk. So I, I just like jumped into this mode where I reacted. I jumped over the desk and chased the dude out of the library, and uh, you know it was just complete. Like I didn't even think about it. Or it was just a, it was just a reaction response type thing. And that's you know we kind of humans are wired that way, I guess, from you know just our our animalistic side of our being, where we you know we've got fingernails and teeth, you know, like like predators and animals of prey. So we want to bite back if somebody's trying to bite us mm-hmm. but uh, but it wasn't uh, you know it wasn't a thoughtful response that I had it was just like a you know reaction and I think that's you know it's kind of an example of what goes on and the mass mind is the same thing where they see these traumas and then uh, you know you, you see this what appears to be 9-11 going down and uh, well, let's just react yeah let's go get them some bitches and them towel heads yeah exactly that's what people did. They just reacted to it, and then uh, you, the, we talked about that before. How quickly they um, name the culprit. Well, this is exactly. This is, well, see what the reason for doing that. Even though it made it look, you know, pretty ridiculous, where it's like, oh, you already know who who did it. Like, uh, but you didn't never saw it coming. Okay, but you know, it, see that that's illogical. But it the re, you know, but the reasoning behind the timing of announcing who it was it's like well you know when the emotions that they're at their peak then you uh imprint the these bad associations onto this image and then oh mm-hmm. we'll show you the boogeyman here he is and it's like it, oh that says osama bin laden you know we now, knew I it think, was him i think when you look at that 60s invasion brit british invasion of music and the the, rev, the 60s revolution love revolution all that and when you consider how much of that was engineered, and as you guys were talking to Jan Urban about, in regard to the CIA being involved in so much of that with the counterculture, uh, what you begin to see is that, oh, so, you know, the, Be- the Beatles are over there with uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and they're exporting this uh, Hindu ideology, which is the basis for the New Age movement and all these alternative so-called spiritualities and what these things do is basically promote the ideology that everything is a dream state and if everything's a dream state nothing matters and if nothing matters then you're back to relativism right so if you're a relativist in philosophy then nothing is true and if nothing is true then nothing matters well you know I, I see that in People all around me. I see. Uh, yeah. I, I see that when it when it comes to you know, it's like if if we if I was to try to engage someone in a discussion about this type of stuff, 
it would be they most people and and I've actually tried uh, have empirical evidence of this trying to do this. Most people think that this is so gargantuan that you shouldn't even bother talking about it. Right. Okay. But I know that people are not stupid. I know that they're not that they're not dumb. They're not stupid because they will tell you the entire span of everything about Kobe Bryant's career. They can remember his statistics from 2003. They know who did what in what game last night. Um, they know all the scores the next morning. That is important, right? But but I'll tell you, like, circa 2002-2003, and I, I don't even think I knew as much, you know, even half as much as I did in, in the... Uh, post that time period I was I remember I was watching a game I was watching the, the, the have this channel I don't even know if it's still on because I don't watch television anymore but they have this channel it's called ESPN Classics right and they'll show these old games like from you know the 80s and the 70s and I was watching this old basketball game it, you know it was like it was like a you know, the 76ers with Dr. J on, on the team, right? And I'm sitting there watching it, and I had a, I had this uh, personal revelation while I was watching this, uh, watching this game. I was, I, I thought to myself, I'm all, this right here does not matter. I'm all, this was only momentary. You realize that, that, you could show someone this footage, someone who even likes basketball, they would not even care about this because it's not in the moment. It's not what's popular at the moment. If you were to show show them this, they would, they would be like, oh, yeah, this is old stuff. I don't want to watch this, right? And I realized that right there, that, that all of the stuff that people uh, cling to today... And, and they forget about they they discard it so fast, you know. Like, um, yeah, I call it the fetish the of the new, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely, absolutely, the fetish of the new. Any anything that's new, that's up to date, that's in the moment, it's like that. And, and no matter what it is uh, you're into, uh, another thing that uh, another thing that uh, hit me one time was many years ago working, and you know when I used to work in real estate. Sit, sit in cubicles and people can hear the music that you're listening to and there's this guy he was like you know maybe one year older than me or something and I was listening to probably some British invasion stuff like you were just talking about and and he's like what are you listening to and well you know oh yeah the, this band the Kinks they're like from the 60s and he's he's like uh I'm like, you never heard this before? He's like, well, yeah, but, I mean, why are you listening to that? And I was like, uh, I don't know, I just like it. And he's like, he's like, uh, yeah, I don't like old music. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, once, once again, it's, it's, uh, it, it's very, transitory, like everything that people like is transitory and they don't even uh, realize that you know, even even if it like like at the example I was giving with the guy who, you know, likes basketball or something, 
all of those things, you know, are very fleeting. Yes. But if you were to talk about something that mattered, right, someone would say, that doesn't matter. It doesn't, why, why, do you, why do you talk about 9-11? Why do you talk about um, all these media events? Why, why is that important? That's not important. Um, you're, you're not going to be able to do anything to change the way it is. So why why even talk about it, right? And then when you point out to them, and I pointed this out to a friend of mine, and I know I'm uh, going on here, but I'm trying to finish before I have to go. Um, I pointed out to a friend, I said, what do you mean 9-11 doesn't matter? I'm all, do you realize that everything in our life changed after that? The entire way that we live, the entire... Uh, society that we live in was changed after that event and th this was a guy that I brought, I brought up before um, talking to you Jay is a, you know he was like a Noam Chomskyite right yeah. so then he said he said to me he said well you know what Chomsky says about 9-11 that you know it, it, why does it matter remember that quote that Chomsky said that yeah I, uh, I knew he said blowback I didn't know no I didn't know that yeah, you gotta you gotta find that footage. It's like both him and Howard Zinn, and they're like like somebody brings up like, why don't you ever talk about you know nine, Building Seven or something like that? And he's like, Nine mm. Eleven doesn't even matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard him say that. Yeah, it was like a, it was like pretty bizarre. Um, Is it when that but, person? Was it like a uh, We Are Change person con uh, confronts him at like a book signing or something? Is that it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, okay, I've seen I know that. I've seen that. Okay. Yeah, so so anyways that's what that's what he said. He's all well nine eleven doesn't even matter. It's you know, like I'm all I, I don't know even how to begin to uh depict that statement. Like that is one of the one things that you can actually point to in the modern times that has completely and totally shifted your culture and shifted your reality. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned things in the past that I think John and I talked, or Chris and I talked about this a few conversations back where, you know, I was in high school, I remember being in high school and two things that just kind of stand out off the top of my head is where my buddies and I, we were always theater guys and comedian pranksters. So we would actually pull pranks on the school. We got a big kick out of this. We got some dupers delight in an, <laughs> in an innocent high school way. But uh, we actually, this is a little bit mean, but we kind of, we ran a uh, sort of incompetent person, a slow person for a student president, and they actually won. And the cheerleader who was vying for the position got very angry. And we were genuinely not trying to do, be dickheads about it. We were kind of trying to make a point, whatever that was in high school, when you're you know, 16, you want to be, yeah, let's make a point against the system, man. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, you know, to show how it was ridiculous, right? And so she went and made a big fuss and cried about it, and they gave her the uh, ele election, even though she did not get the, the majority votes. And that always stuck out to me because it was like, oh, so this is kind of like a rigged bullshit game here, right? Even in high school. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you start thinking, then you as you, you know, as you get older, you're like, who gives a fuck about who got high school president, you know, class president? Like nobody even remembers who who that was, right? Unless, well, we do because of that crazy event. But 
But who, you know, who cares? Right? That doesn't even. It means nothing. And so, just like you're saying with sports, like it's just a, a meaningless throwaway thing. But I th- really think we have to come to the realization uh, that, I guess, the way Gerald Salente said it, just that everybody's kind of living still like it's high school. Like everybody's still in that same click mindset. Then when you go out into the work world, you know, it's all the same situation of these clicks and everybody's trying to vie for this, uh, you know, corporate position or whatever. And the other thing that stands out is I remember walking through the halls of the high school and seeing this big announcement of NASA finding water on and life on Mars. <laughs> the bullshit that they say every fucking year that there's water and life on Mars. And I remember sitting there thinking, I was like, you know, this is this is just not making any sense. Like, uh, where where are they? They're not actually showing. I mean, I wasn't like figuring out that there was fake news yet. That, but it was just something about it just seemed like completely cheeseball. Like, it's the, this can't be real. And so, I guess you know, it's just you you have experiences like that where you kind of play with the system or challenge the system or whatever in, in your local setting and then you start realizing you know, oh so everything's not really as it's presented and then you know you go into philosophy and that's what you start learning is that you know most of the philosophers were kind of asking these kinds of questions they may not, may not have got the right answers but they were at least asking appropriate questions about uh, what's really going on out here and it, it may not be what uh, officialdom is actually saying Yeah, well, is John John drop off? No, I'm here, but I'm I'm gonna go. I might come. I might chime in um, a little later on if you guys are still there. So, so. yeah, okay. Um, you yes, taking off right now? Yes, I am. Hey, John, uh, do, uh, do you you agree with what I'm saying, or what do you, what do you think? Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, and I had a quick question for you before you left. So do you do think that Black Dolly was an actual ritual murder, not just like us getting rid of a hooker or a loose woman or something? No, I think that... I don't think that she was that type of woman. Oh. <laughs> I think she's portrayed as that type of woman, but uh, her past didn't really um, match up with her being that. It just kind of looks like she was kind of a starstruck... Mm-hmm you know, kind of girl from Chicago, or she might have been some sort of, like, um, honey trap. Oh, interesting. That's the other other thing that could have been possible, because she does have some sort of military connection. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you you think it was a ritual murder, not just uh, getting rid of somebody who might have knew something? No, I, I I think it was way too it's way too gruesome and way too high profile the way it was played out to to be just that and then like I said like I said um, there's all of the uh, bizarreness with all of the surrealists who were you know do, doing what what um, normal anti-establishment people do um, in in groups is move to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean. Uh, You've got the surrealists living in Hollywood the same time the Frankfurt guy, school guys are all living in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Just absolutely bizarre. But um, yeah, it's yeah, I definitely think it's a, a ritual murder, no doubt. Yeah. 
there's there's a lot more um, stuff there too. Like if if you read that Black Dahlia Avenger book, mm-hmm. um, the the writer even says that he believes that his father encouraged him to be a police officer so that he could figure out that his dad was the Black Dahlia killer and reveal it to the world. Did you did you read that? No, but I I I, 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 I did listen to Steve Hodell interviews, and uh, he kind of hinted. He didn't say that explicitly, but he he kind of danced around that more or less. Yeah, he's that, that's what he says in in one of his books. I can't remember which one is. He he thinks his dad was the Zodiac killer too, and right, right. I don't I don't think his dad was the Zodiac killer because I'm not so sure that those murders were actually. Um, real murders. I'm not too sure about those. I've looked yeah. at those pretty, pretty extensively, and they look kind of they look kind of suspicious. Yeah, I've read a bunch of Miles Mathis's stuff, and um, yeah, I think he's he makes some good points here and there. Some of it I think is a little a little overboard, but still, you know, still useful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I I haven't got around to reading some of his stuff, but the um. Just, just some stuff like re- rethinking what you know. When I when I used to read all this, you know, I started reading about the Manson murders in high school, mm-hmm. and then it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Well, I know he's written about the Manson murders. It hit me like a ton of bricks one day. Maybe Manson murders are fake, and I'm not saying that they are. I don't know for a fact. Obviously, that's one of the, one of the things. But there is a probability that they might be, and. Um, uh, a higher probability of that than than um, other things, but there's also the possibility that they were real. So, mm-hmm. and like I said, a lot of uh, Chris and I have talked about this before. Is that there's there's a great possibility and probability that a lot of the serial killers uh, were brought about for the purpose of kind of tagging on unsolved murder cases. Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, I did hear you know about that, right? Yeah, Henry Lee Lucas chalks up six hundred murders to himself. It's basically all unsolved murders, and now they solved them. Right. Yeah, hard to know with that kind of stuff. And I also think we live in an era when it's really easy to fake stuff too. You know, the, we've never had this mass media like we have now. Uh, I'm talking about in comparison to, you know, past centuries, obviously. And so there's just so much more ability to to stage things than there were, you know, 200 years ago. To, to affect a lot of people is what I'm saying. Chris, tell... Uh, I'm, I'm going to go now, but Chris, tell uh, Jay about the... Um, during the French Revolution when Madame Tussaud was employed by the... Uh, Aristocracy. Oh right, yeah, yeah. I was going to bring that up on. Uh, did, we, didn't we? Uh, yeah, I was going to bring that up to Jose, but uh, I never got around to it. That yeah, that's an right. interesting that's, little tidbit. I thought I thought about well, that too. It, it just didn't, it, it just didn't really go in that direction. Well, if you if you mean were, were there uh, fakeries before that, well, absolutely. And I'm not I'm not saying there were. I'm just saying that through through television and beaming shit out to you know millions of households it's a lot easier yeah it doesn't have the impact like it, right. it wouldn't That's or it. wouldn't have but it'd still be I guess John took off alright John take care of man pop it he, might, he said he might pop back in but yeah, yeah. Wait, one of my uh, 
I had a really good class on the French Revolution. I might have brought this up before, but uh, that whole thing about let them eat cake, that's not true. That's just made up. And what the the salons in France would do, they kind of function like, you know, tabloid gossip centers. And because <clears throat> the way the royalty nobility system worked is that you had uh, your servants, and the servants actually had quite a bit of power. So if you pissed off your servants, they could get back at you pretty yeah. pretty good. And you actually see this played out in the BBC series Downton Abbey. They do a good job of, of demonstrating how that goes down, at least from what I you know researched in my history classes. Uh, but uh, supposedly the story Let Them Eat Cake was part of the revolutionary propaganda uh, that uh, Marie Antoinette never said that. And so it would just kind of, you would have these salons and they would print up these flyers and, and it was these early versions of tabloids, basically. And they would spread around and, you know, it would kind of sway public opinion and try to get people into the revolution. And, you know, and I'm not saying that the royalty weren't corrupt. I'm just saying that this is the reality of the situation. You know, you, could, you would have these kinds of staged things. And, and maybe if uh, Queen so and so is fucking her cousin or something like that and the servants found out about it and she pissed off the servants well the servants would go tell the people in the salons and they would get out right right yeah yeah i i well i just think it's you know it's i don't think it's conclusive by any means or it was really just uh, conjecture but uh i just thought it's interesting like what why the interest in making lifelike wax figures because i it, it, but you can talk about the aristocracy stuff. You talk about, yeah, it's like these people in general. I don't think they're as interested in art as they purport to be. You know, it, it, it's only like another kind of a manipulation tool or a, a commodity or something like that. But so you know, it, it, if if it has some kind of utilitarian function, like uh, like for instance, you could. Oh, there's an art. Yeah, yeah. There's an art. There's an art they're interested in with the royal art, which is ma managing masses. <laughs> That's the art. Yeah, part. right. Exactly. And then you can use this. Uh, if you were like, uh, you look at some of these wax figures, and it's like, holy crap! Is, they look so lifelike, and it's like, man, you could pull off some shenanigans with those for mm -hmm. sure. And. Yeah, it's just conjecture. So, but I think about you know Madame Tussaud and being around the time of the French Revolution and all that, and then they allegedly cut off the heads of this aristocracy and all that. And uh, well, they say they what they cut off like forty thousand heads and uh, just chopping heads all day long. And so, like, am I saying that everybody's head that got chopped off was a fake wax mannequin? No, I mean, but. I think it would make sense that we talk about these revolutions, and I, I don't believe like any of these revolutions we read about are real revolutions in the sense that it represents a uh, shifting of, of the the power structure. Because I, cause I believe at the no, not at all. Yeah, so at at the top, I believe that uh, it, it, it's always been the case as far as civilization goes, because there already there's already. As long as you have civilization, right? You have, um, you know, if, if free trade, and then there's this interdependence of, of all these different quote unquote nations that uh, already represent a uh, a governmental organization of sorts. So, to step outside of that is to, you know, if you were truly to step outside of that, you would be. Um, it, you know, you probably have actual sanctions, which they say happens. But when you actually look into it, like um, 
I don't know, for instance, the Cold War with Russia, but you know, yet we're supplying them with grain mm-hmm. and and all that sort of thing. See, that's that that, that is uh, well. Go ahead, sir. Well, I, I, um, let me see if I could try to make this point succinctly as I can. I I, I, I think all these. Well, I'll just put it this way: these revolutions and stuff are uh, stage managed. Just like the American Revolution, the French Revolution was no different. And uh, to give the impression, to get, because the, what they're trying to do is create perception management on the masses. Say, oh well, th- this is a this event marks where uh, this you know quote unquote transition of power took place. Yeah. Now I agree that real power doesn't transition. However, I do think that when you read about these people, and if you if you've ever interacted with or met kind of really powerful persons or semi-powerful persons they do have that tendency to be like john was saying earlier you know kind of kind of drunk on power and kind of psychopathic and they have no qualms about uh you sending you know a hundred thousand guys from their side over to kill a hundred thousand guys in their cousin's side right so that their cousins ruling france and you know the their uh they're over in England or something. Right? I mean, they don't have any qualms about sending a bunch of people over there to kill, kill, uh, deplete them. I and that's how they operate. They play the game of nations. They play chessboard with the nations. So, as I understand, and you know, again, uh, any kind of historical research like this is always subject to. It's, it's not a an exact science by any means, but the story of the storming of the Bastille <clears throat> was hyped up by the revolutionaries. And the revolutionaries made it out like the uh, king basically slaughtered all these innocent people that were in the in the in the prison. And so you had Victor Hugo later wrote Les Miserables about you know, the, that was actually propaganda. Uh, when in fact, supposedly, there were only actually like six or seven people in the prison. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> the, yeah. the Bastille was like an old jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't full of you know like thousands of revolutionaries that were innocent and you know. The, the king didn't send in all these troops to slaughter a bunch of people. Uh, but that was what sparked the French Revolution. And so the revolutionaries stormed the Bastille, and you know, there's six or seven dudes in there, a bunch of <laughs> drunks laying around or something. But uh, <laughs> this was then turned into this big propaganda story uh, that fueled the revolution. Do I know for certain that the Committee for Public Safety chopped off 29,000 heads? I don't know, but... <clears throat> But I can definitely see degenerate European elites uh, sending, you know, their their uh, spies and forces into provocateur to do that kind of stuff. I mean, my opinion on it is that it was actually kind of the British elites and the bankers that were funding the revolutionaries to bring about a transition, not in power, because they kind of had the power through the money money system. But what happens is that the banker, the money power. Just like today, with you know the CIA and some puppet guy in the Congo or somewhere or Saddam, uh, if you ever step out of bounds, you, you know, take you down. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that you always get assassinated. You, there's the always probably the option of uh, faked death. I think that's as we've talked about many times that that happens a lot more than people think. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I would agree that I'm, I don't doubt there was stagecraft involved in the French Revolution. I know that the, the revolutionaries utilized stagecraft, and you could just think about them in the same way as we, you were mentioning the 
crisis actor kind of mindset of these kind of communistically thinking, even though communism is just a Western export and a banker creation. Right. You got all these dummies that believe it. And yeah. I'm telling you, I've, I've spent eight years at a university and we actually had on at that university, there were, there were guys that were former Eastern Bloc communists mm-hmm. and they believe it. Yep. They believe that one hundred percent across the board. It's their religion. Some of them are still the diehard old school Marxists who still believe in the old school Marxism. Some of them are a little more uh, realistic and kind of up to date, I guess, where they don't actually expect some proletariat revolution. But uh, you know, they've kind of blended in with whatever the will to power ideology of the present establishment is, whatever you want to call it. You know, that, that they're on board with it. <laughs> Right. And, uh, you know, I, I thought it was a great talk you did, uh, pretty recent. I forget when it was. It may have been a while back. But you were talking about Saul Linsky and all that kind of stuff. And, I mean, I've sat in these classes. I've sat under these guys that, that were, uh, I had a history professor, complete nutcase, just basket case guy. And he was a member of uh, the Communist Party in Russia for 13 years. And he left Russia, came to the U.S. to teach. He's one of the world authorities on Rasputin. <laughs> and this guy is a complete lunatic. Um, I had this guy for I don't know how many classes. And he's a, I'm, I'm not kidding. Like I'm not exaggerating. He's a mentally crazy. And he's this big Reagan uh, Republican. So that, if that Whoa, tells really? Me. Yeah. And um, this guy has written you know quite a bit on Rasputin, obviously. But he's supposedly. Oh, I, I, I'm not. I'm not a. Uh, not a Marxist anymore. No, no, no. I just come to you know the U.S. and, and basically promote all the, all the ideology, but say that I'm a conservative <laughs> Reagan Republican, right? Yeah. And I'm yeah. not saying Reagan Republicans are good. I, that you know, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you just have to keep in mind that on the ground level, the establishment is able to mobilize a lot of. Dum dums, especially these college age idiots. I would I would say that at, at my campus, fifteen thousand people. Uh, I would say the majority of them were on board with most of this the, the the agenda. You know, they would go along with it, and it's just like like you were saying that they would go along. if if some government dude walked in over from Homeland Security. We're going to run a drill on campus. We're going to need some people who are good, got some good acting skills. You're going to be like James Bond. We're going to need you to play a role. That would they would go along with it. I'm telling you, they would. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm sure of it. And uh, I, yeah, I think it's, that's an important element to kind of understand this stuff. Like, well, well, who, what's driving these people? What's what's the motivator? What's you know? It's this uh, hope, hope and change. We heard it in the. Obama campaign sloganeering and all that, and you know these these really kind of trite, kind of uh, easy, easy to package little um, phrases and slogans and all that. That 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 is um, that that is directly pinpointed and honed in to the to this this mindset, this Marxist ideologues that are out there, and um, yeah, absolutely, they they are going to. Uh, uh, go along with the agenda and feel like they are doing some great, fantastic thing that is in service to this utopia that they envision some somewhere down the road. And and, and 
And, you know, I brought up, uh, one thing I didn't bring up is the RAND Corporation. And, uh, I had a, I had a note and, uh, I got, I got a little off, off track and then I forgot to bring that up. Yeah, but the, yeah, but the RAND Corporation, um, is, uh, pushing this too. I mean, they have this, uh, uh, here's the only, I'll put this, I'll send this to you, um, building resilient communities, uh, an online training, uh, course that they have at the Rand Corporation yes. site. Yeah, that was a great point you made about resilient. And, and that these kinds of phrases, these buzzwords, are important. And uh, you know, at the university level, you would hear this kind of stuff consistently. They would teach this in the classes. You would hear about you know all the you know, we're going green and all that kind of crap. And mm-hmm. yeah, all those. It's all the same. The same. Uh, Marketing approach of getting people into these these sound bite nugget idea ideas that you just kind of just repeat this mantra of you know, gotta go green man gotta go green yeah and uh, you know, it's the same stuff with animals and and and, and you know save the hashtag type crap so right save, save Cecil and Cecil the lion got killed bag. by the way all the social justice warriors completely forgot Cecil <laughs> he was yeah what he was a big ordeal like two weeks ago well fuck Cecil he's dead just forget him <laughs> we, we yeah. got the feminists are got to pee themselves now out of uh, out of a social uh, social spectacle to make it make a point but uh, yeah I just I can't if you haven't been in the university setting ever or in a while, I really can't convey how ridiculous and bad it is accurately. It's it, because when I try to explain it, people don't think it's that crazy. And I'm not, I'm not a big fan of Mark Dice, but I'm telling you, like when you when he does those videos where he's interviewing the people out in California on the street, yeah, it would be absolutely no different on the college campus. It, it really would be that way. It really is. I like some of those. I, I, I think uh, it, it it does it goes pretty far to illustrate you know certain important points of the mindset of the people out there. Exactly. Even though I don't, I don't yeah I don't agree with a lot of his takes on things, but and if, and if you had just think about that, if you had some homeland security guy, and by the way, all the universities are all connected into the intelligence establishment across the board. It's all run completely, totally controlled. You know, some guy comes in, he's supposed to be some official or some you know, this is a PhD from Princeton, he's here to talk about blah blah mm-hmm. we, have, we would have all those people come to my university, we had uh, oh, what's her name, before she got supposedly assassinated, uh, Benazir Bhutto came and spoke before oh, yeah. her supposed assassination, Desmond Tutu would come speak, Danny Glover came and spoke <laughs> one of the Kennedys came and spoke and all these motherfuckers would just come and sit up there and just lie. Yeah. And when Danny Glover was there and he was doing his thing, he had some fake priests there talking about. I stood up and argued with him. <laughs> oh, he did. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Th- this was long. This was back in like 2003 or four. And uh, they were talking about gun control, the death penalty, and I said. I, I argued with this priest in front of him. He got furious, too, that I dared to stand up. And I, I said, how do you think, you know, outlawing guns is going to get rid of, uh, that's going to cause more deaths? I thought you were supposed to be against the death penalty. Well, outlawing guns is going to lead to more deaths. Mm-hmm. How dare you question me? I'm a priest of the Roman church. And blah, 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 blah. Jeez. It was in front of a crowd of people, too. But, uh, but yeah, so they don't, they don't like it when you when you ask yeah. those questions. But, yeah, how dare you, Jay? Yeah, how dare I? 
ask a question of the priest. My goodness, how out of bounds. It's like, that pisses me off. I, 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 yeah, it's like, yeah, how, how dare you question? It's like, what, what are you here for then? You know what I mean? It's like, why don't you uh, talk through uh, 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 the intercom system or something? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there ain't no chance Spe- anybody asking you anything. Speaking of, just a little side note, I was watching a show from the 90s that I uh, watched when I was growing up called uh, Parker Lewis Can't Lose, and this was a Fox series. It was kind of a satirical take on high school and actually actually pretty clever comedy for what it was uh, kind of like if Saved by the Bell wasn't completely stupid um, but uh, Parker Lewis is actually a pretty creative show and they would they would portray a lot of this accurately right so the student body the, the high school it was all very corrupt analogous to what I was saying about uh, our fake election that we had in my high school mm-hmm. and there's an episode where the principal is actually listening in to the to the classes on the different intercoms. Now, I've actually heard of this being done, that this does go down and is part of the... Now, supposedly this is done uh, to... Uh, oh, they're going to monitor the professors, right, to make sure that the professors are uh, teaching accurately. Well, I don't believe that. That's not what it was for. It's for all kinds of stuff, right? So that might be part of what it's for, but uh, you know, it's kind of a surveillance thing. And when I was at my university, they expanded the the campus security, and because of the shootings and the different, you know, all these events and supposed events and uh, the terrorist attacks, and so they built this huge. Uh, police complex on campus, and it basically turned into this this. Uh, be like living in a, kind of a big uh, psychiatric ward slash prison. <laughs> so that's what I could. Yeah. Like you go past the university and it almost looks like when you're driving past the federal penitentiary. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the what's thing- the likelihood that things would just shake out that way? You know, where it's like, oh, it's just, just you know, this this one type of uh, philosophy sort of just dominates. Doesn't make any damn sense. Yeah, and and why is yeah why does everybody teach the same thing? So, Mega, I'm rambling about. I don't mean to ramble about university. I just go on about that all day. But you know, make a long story short, you go into these classes. I remember my astronomy class back in I don't know oh five oh six somewhere in there. And I, I like astronomy. I was interested in learning about it. And the first, I kid you not, the first thing the dude does first day of class is he goes up and he writes on the board. He writes J E P D. And he says, "Do anybody know what this is?" Of course, nobody knew. I did. I said, "Yeah, that's the higher critical method of biblical studies." <laughs> the guy was like, "Holy shit! How does he know that?" <laughs> He's like, "Yeah, that's what it is. Do you know why I'm talking about it?" And I said, uh, "Yeah, you're about to launch into uh, a discussion about how everything in Genesis is bullshit and that modern scientism is accurate." <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "Hey, you got it, Sonny Bingo!" And so he just launched into how uh, there's no accuracy from textual documents and all this. By the way. Nobody seems to question Plato. The latest Plato documents are from the Middle Ages, which most people don't know that. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oxford manuscripts uh, are the supposed oldest documents of Plato, and they're actually from the early to late Middle, or early to Middle uh, Middle Ages. We don't have, uh, you know, a 100 BC document of Plato's works, right? So mm-hmm. people don't know that, and we don't see now there are you know what hardcore academics that specialize in Plato 
will be concerned with this question of authenticity, but you don't hear most people saying, you know, well, we can't really believe what's in Plato, right? It's all a bunch of baloney. Uh, you do hear this consistently about New Testament on Old Testament texts, even though the Dead Sea Scroll find actually backed up everything in Isaiah, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you can go find the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they, they vindicate what's in Isaiah, but, oh, no, 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 we still got to believe that all this stuff's made up. There's just no way that uh, Genesis could be in any way accurate or anything like that. So that's what so that's what I got. My first day of astronomy class was a lecture on higher criticism. Now, what does higher criticism have to do with astronomy? Nothing. But it was an inten- it was an intentional uh, presentation of attack on because they saw it as the Bible Belt, I guess, and probably a lot of students from. Yeah, I mean, you grew up with the Bible. They've got to be told about higher criticism. And by the way, higher, higher criticism is a big scam. I, I know a good bit about it. If you look at Julius Wellhausen, who was the German higher critic that pioneered a lot of this, a uh, very questionable person. And Julius Wellhausen uh, openly spoke about that he had an agenda, right? So this is once again that mythology that, that academics are somehow... Uh, neutral, and they don't have any agenda. Well, Julius Wellhausen, the father of textual higher criticism, said, "I freaking hate the Old Testament. <laughs> I want that. I want that shit destroyed, and I'm going to destroy it academically." Yeah, that's. Um, yeah, well, here's another thing too. I don't. I, I want to go into this with. Uh, uh, you know, you know, naturalistic materialism, Darwinism, and all that nonsense. Um, you're talking about a, a, a religious that you know it it falls now. People commonly associate the word religion with oh well, then you know you're talking about something uh, that has to do with you know the spiritual realms. No, not necessarily. You look up the definition of religion, and it it falls it falls squarely upon that definition. You know, yeah, uh, and people don't seem to get this it's like okay you have you have a religion that is uh, it, it's fundamentally in its, in its core principles it is um, an underpinning to secular humanist philosophies that uh, and, and that dovetails nicely within the concepts of like statism and, and statist authority and all that and so like the idea that oh well you know the, you know, we need to have competing views taught in public schools. It's like, well, now I, I brought this up before. It's like, well, that that would be the same as like if you were going to like have have like your son or daughter attend like a Catholic uh, private school or something like that, and then you insist that they incorporate like Scientology practices into <laughs> the school. You know, like that. So like, you can't do that. It's like if. It, that that's the thing is about about how all this is reliant upon uh, defining your terms and what exactly that you're dealing with. But since you're not permitted to do that because the authorities define the terms, right? They said, well, we define this as science, and science is this, you know. And then, but people in general don't know what the hell they're talking about when they talk about science. Yes, that professor, by the way, I request after this this astronomy class. I requested a private meeting with him because that same day or the next day, next class day or whatever, he, after his uh, higher critical lecture, 
again, no relation to the discipline of astronomy. The next day, he launched into a talk on uh, empirical science. Mm -hmm. Now, this was right when I was really, really getting into philosophy of science and, and digging in heavy and you know, really studying uh, logic and transcendental arguments and so he writes up on the board about how uh, we can only know uh, what we verify through empirical scientific methodology, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So I said, yeah, in this in this private meeting, I said, okay, well, I have some questions, right? So I'm a philosophy student. I'm seriously wanting to learn this stuff. I'm not trying to be a rebellious dickhead. I want to know what's true here. I love astronomy. I said, but I'm not understanding why day one we're talking biblical higher criticism. How does that relate to the science of astronomy, first of all, other than that it shows me that you have an agenda that you want to <laughs> wreck people's uh, existing worldviews? Uh, which, okay, so even if you do want to wreck everyone's existing paradigms and worldviews, then you ought to have a better answer on your end, right? You ought to come along and be able to explain a better coher a coherent system of, of what is the case. And, oh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm completely fine with that. I have a Ph.D. in astronomy, blah, 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 blah. And so he writes on the board, you know, everything that we know is empirically demonstrable. He said, this is where I start. And if you're going to start studying science, son, you're a really condescending asshole. Yeah. Uh, this is where you're going to start, buddy. And I said, okay. Well, so I grabbed the chalk and I said, uh, so, and I circled the phrase. I said, so let's take that phrase itself. I want to know how you know empirically that that phrase is true i'm not kidding i did this and the guy and i swear to you the guy sat there and he he looked at the the chalkboard and he tilted his head and he put his finger up to his lips he took his glasses off he wiped his glasses put them back on <laughs> put his finger back to his lips did the puppy dog tilt the head some more stared at the chalkboard he said, uh, yeah, well, you know, this is a question for the philosophy department. Mm -hmm. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to just tell you to, to uh, truck on over across campus to the philosophy department. <laughs> I said, okay, well, I like that, uh, you know, at least you're honest about not having an answer for this. But I said, this is an interesting question because what is it that delineates, quote, science and quote philosophy right what how and they all by the way seem to act like this is what just just obvious oh that's a philosophy question yeah it's oh, like this, oh, this is it's like an axiom it's oh it's just obvious which ones are which oh come on this clearly it's not obvious and that's what philosophy of science actually asks that that's it asks that very question and that's part of the reason why I, I love my philosophy of science courses. It was like <laughs> I was just constantly asking these questions and you can walk over to the biology department and start asking these dudes this and they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. They're, they're finally just like, uh, get out of here, please. <laughs> please just go back to that other building over there. <laughs> yeah, well, see what you're doing is you're, you, you want to question the premise, right? Okay, instead of well, we're going to launch into a discussion of oh how evolution works because I, I did this not too long ago and I took a camera and I filmed it and I went over to the university over here and I awesome, awesome. yeah and I had a had a discussion with one of the professors um, 
I lost part of my footage. I don't know where the hell I what what the hell happened to it. I think I had too big of a file and mm-hmm. something and it didn't transfer over. But it, I mean, it, it was like I I don't even want to even put this up because it's just so that is it's just so typical of the stuff that's already been demonstrated in spades with like the video I did with uh, uh, the calling the atheist. It was like it was it was identical and it's something that you're always going to consistently get it's like oh yeah here is the proof here's the evidence and it's basically he just started launching into one of his uh typical you know class discourses you know that he would normally do and then he's drawing these circles on the chalkboard that represent bacteria right and he's and he's explaining to me like okay here's what happens and then the, the, these you know the popu- you know population uh, bacteria, how oh these are developing um, uh, penicillin or resistance to you know wh- whatever antibiotics, and this is evolution and this is this is proof or not proof but you know what I mean this is how um, I'm going to explain this to you so that you understand it and 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 so I just saw, I said okay well you know this is something that's been observed ages before Darwin, you know, ad- the adaptability of organisms to their environment, you know, is something that's been observed and it was never held up to question and never had its philosophical implications until allegedly Darwin, even though that idea predates him by a, a long shot, you know, he, he wasn't the first to come up with that, but the, never mind that, but so, so allegedly he, he comes up with this idea that this, this is how um, organisms come into being, it's like, okay, that that's the thing I'm questioning. I'm not questioning that organisms adapt. It's like that's, right. you know, and that's not that's not evolution in the sense that you're putting me. I said, okay, exactly. How? What's happening at the molecular level? What's happening at the DNA level? That's that's. Um, and he didn't even want to go into that, you know. And then eventually, it came down to just what you described, where it's like, okay, that's not my department. I can't address that. You need to go. To uh, a molecular biologist, I'm not a molecular biologist. I don't know. Yeah, yeah go bug about. the dude down the hall, please. <laughs> right, and it's like, well, you know, um, it, you're going to get that. You're going to get to. You're going to start. Okay, if you don't want to accept the the arbitrary jumping off point that they're going to s- set up for you, right? It's like, well, we're going to we're going to go up here on the uh, Hopscotch board, and we're going to start at position uh, five, and then we're going to yes. do our hopscotch. It's like, no, let's start our hopscotch we're where it begins one. at one. Let's go right. to square one. And it's like, no, 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 we, we can't do that. If you want to do that, you got to go to another department. Yeah, and then when you go to that department, you'll have to find the right guy who will then tell you, oh, no, you need to oh, go talk to the other guy in philosophy who does epistemology. <laughs> and then when you go talk to the guy who specializes in epistemology, he says, oh, yeah, this is a problem I dealt with uh, in my grad paper. Uh, go find my advisor, Dr. Google Gobble, over at University of Blah, Blah, Blah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and what does that remind you of? In religion. It, it, yeah, it, that and if you've ever had any dealings with um, bureaucracy, bureaucracy, yeah, fighting a traffic ticket or anything like that, same thing, <laughs> same thing. It's like, well, it's not. Yeah, you've got to go to like twenty-five different desks to like solve some, you know, because you you went, you got two tickets and you got one point over your your driving limit, and that now this is like some nightmare of 
bureaucratic red tape and you've got to go drive. Oh, you got to drive to the county seat in Nashville and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, or, you know, you could point out uh, a glaring inconsistency or a mistake or something like that. And it's like, well, okay, how do I get this resolved? Oh, we don't have like, a resolution. No, we, <laughs> yeah, we didn't. Well, I don't know. I, I just work here. It's like, well, okay, so, but you're the same person that's telling me that I should just go ahead and pay this and I should just go ahead and do this and do that. You have the authority to tell me that. But when it comes down to, okay, so how do we deal with this? issue this problem this clerical error or whatever it happens to be that's not my department i have a buddy you'll love this story he's the guy he's the aerospace engineer and uh, he's a real firebrand kind of dude i may have told you this but he got a ticket one time and he thought that you know the cop was clearly in the wrong and you know he tried to explain it and the cop was wasn't having it and it's i don't know it's going to be like 150 bucks or something Mm -hmm. so my buddy who's you know not the kind of guy to put up with bullshit I'm not kidding you. He went, and he had actual big placards made up <laughs> detailing the scene. And he came into the courtroom dressed up to defend himself. Not a lawyer. Uh, and he had he even had one of those, like, pointers, you know, like where you're, like, yeah. pointing at your, your diagram. So he, like, set had this whole setup with an easel and everything. Right. And so the cop's sitting there, and he's, like, you know, thinking, what the hell's going on? And my buddy said, uh, Dave said, he launched into, like, a two-hour, like, analysis of every detail of what went down that day. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said, yeah, I understand that it was only, like, a $150 ticket. He said, but I wanted to make a point. I was like, I'm not I'm not letting you just tell me i got to pay you 150 bucks." And finally, the judge just said, all right, look, just forget it. So he just threw it out. Because you know he, he wasn't, he didn't want to sit there and listen to you know two hours of this like, detailed presentation <laughs> about like where the cop car was at this timestamp and you know yeah, right I, you know it, it it yeah it just comes down to um, well authority without accountability you know I I'm yeah. a professor and I'm going to tell you how it is um, it's like okay professor you're you're an authority right so let's let's explore that. Let's explore that premise and and see how far this goes. And then it's like, oh well, I admit that I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. You're gonna have to go over here. It's like, well, I thought you were the, you know, I thought you were in a position of authority enough to dictate to me what what biology is and what it isn't. But well, now, if, not. if this is so obvious, why is it so difficult to figure it out and get to the meat of it, right? <laughs> Well, I mean, oh, yeah. it's just a Darwinism. It's so obvious. Like when you were talking to those goofballs on that show and that cue ball idiot that was sitting there like, uh, it's just it's, it's evolution, Chris. It's obvious. It's evolution. Yeah, it's a fact. Come on. It's a fact. Now, it's okay, like, okay. Well, it's evolution. It's so obvious that everything testifies to it, right? It's just everything's evidence, everything. Why is it so hard to get like clear answers on these questions and without a, a zillion fallacies of either or fallacy, authority fallacy, ad hominem fallacy? Like you can't you, you can't even have a, a reasoned conversation that in, that it, that remains civil that's not full of a zillion fallacies about how bad you are for asking easy questions, right? That should right. be easy to answer because it's so obvious that Darwinism and evolution truth. Well, you know, he's going to bring something up like, uh, well, they've 
they've done comparisons between, and you know, here we go again with okay, you know, comparative morphology or whatever. Something you always hear. So okay, I got bones in in my wrist, and a whale has bones that are similar. So therefore, we're related. It's like, well, that's okay. How? Is that true? I mean, it's like we're we're we yeah. establish that, you know. So yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. It's just that you you draw these inferences, or you draw these conclusions off of these. I love the comparisons. Yeah, I love the, mor- the morphology stuff because that's usually their starting point, and it's such right. a bull- it's such a bullshit bad argument because it's based on the interpretation of symbols, the the interpretation of of appearances. So, yeah. in other words, uh, the, all the zygote uh, kind of looks like uh, kind of looks like a lizard, but it kind of looks like a fish, and it kind of looks like a, so. There must be like this similarity between uh, amphibians and uh, the, the human zygote because they kind of look the same, and there might be this little vid- vestigial tail here. So, so by that kind of reasoning, uh, because I see a penny. A penny has uh, what looks to be the impression of Abe Lincoln on it. Uh, I can draw the conclusion quite rationally that Abraham Lincoln gave birth to pennies. <laughs> yeah, they're all his pennies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. It's just vacuous. It just it has no bearing in actual... Cause in any other context, you, you're not going to launch into that. Yeah, yeah, you can't operate like that. And, and a good one, you know, that it's good to bring up, and it's going to be shot down with. Oh, that was that was a long time ago. It was like goose barnacles. So you have these barnacles that had this like appendage coming out of it, crazy looking thing. With mm-hmm. and then so you take this like uh, uh, I think it was, his, it was his foot. You know, the part of the barnacles anatomy was his foot, and then it has this like uh, you know a barnacle shell. So it resembles a uh, uh, sort of a duck bill. So they so they surmise that well that. That's how go- uh, geese evolved out of these barnacles. <laughs> <laughs> that was. That, I'm serious, man. That was. I know. Uh, it's a mythology. Yeah. It's no different than when you look at hieroglyphics and the Egyptians have a dog head stuck on a human body. Yeah. It's just it's just fill in the gaps with your artistic uh, license and imagination, and here's a CGI representation of a Tiktaalik that looks like. Uh, 1995 Max Headroom uh, episode. <laughs> it was bad CGI, right? Well, yeah, either that or it was like a um, a codfish that got run over by a truck or something. I mean, what what are you looking at? You know, it's like, well, you have to have an expert to give you the proper interpretation or else it's not going to mean anything to you. Uh, yeah, it's like right. uh, it's like seeing uh, it's, they're not operating any different than the people that see Jesus in their uh, cheese uh, their cheese sandwich, right? Like, how is that different? It's like, well, we see a pattern here, and this pattern means this, and it's like, well, is that evidence? Well, I, I guess it's evidence. You know, it's it, only it, evidence if you're accurate in your semiotic interpretation of the pattern, and you may not be. Exactly. So yeah, so that that goes back to the underlying premise. It's like, okay, how did you establish that as being uh, a, a piece of evidence? Well, it's they can't do it without relying upon some presupposition that that this is evidence, yes. you know. And then, but so you press them on, and you press them. I say, well, you know, you need to look at this peer review paper and this peer review paper. And there's so many of these peer review papers out there, and that's just and that constitutes evidence for evolution. It's like, well. 
what is your evidence for peer review being valid? And it's like, well, no, you're not supposed to ask that. You know, you, I, and I guarantee you that husband and wife, partner, whatever, that duo of, of goofuses, I guarantee you they've never gone into the lab and looked in, looked no. up these different peer review papers. I mean, give me a no. break. on. Well, okay, one, one thing he brought up is like, okay, they've done comparison between, uh, uh, okay, Chimp DNA, ape DNA, and, and human DNA, and they and they said, okay, yeah. there's these ERVs or these uh, endogenous uh, retrovirus, yeah, yeah, right. And okay, that's that, so that's strong evidence that you know evolution happened. And it's like, well, okay, so that's that's a scientific claim, right? That's 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 a scientific claim. It's like, well, in, until you go in to the nuts and bolts of of that claim. Uh, you, you really don't have anything. So, but they want to present that as evidence without any kind of further exploration, and then they can sit there and bombard you all day with this stuff, right? You know, yeah. so right. So, and then that to them is okay. I've I've proven it to you. I've proven my case, right? Right, and I'll- you're an idiot if you don't want to see the evidence because <laughs> we've given you all the evidence. It's like okay, first of all, right? Have you like like you're saying? Have you looked at this yourself? No, they read it in uh, Dawkins' book, you know, Selfish Gene or whatever. Right, you know, we're you know the same the same knucklehead that told you that uh, ten years ago that ninety eight percent of DNA is vestigial junk, junk right. and does nothing, and then now they can see patterns, which is yeah, like quite certain. Yeah, I've always said that junk DNA is not junk DNA, and in fact, is the strongest proof of evolution. Massive, massive amounts of evidence. Massive amounts of evolution. Evidence. That's, that's exactly what he said. He said it's massive amounts of evidence that you're carrying around with you, Jay, in your body right now that is evolution is true. Yeah, I love the, the elasticity where every single thing, whether it's whether it's a complete contradiction within ten years, oh, it's still complete proof and evidence for evolution. Yeah, right. But, uh, it's important to point out too with that. Uh, difference, right? So, okay, we're supposed to have this minuscule difference in DNA between a chimp and a human. Well, number one, that was all based on that older idea that there was a bunch of junk DNA. Yeah. Which so it's, also, number two, it, mm-hmm. it's also important to point out that even if that's the case, mm-hmm. well, we're pretty freaking different from a chimp, so that minuscule amount <laughs> is pretty yeah. significant. It's doing something different. It, obviously, well, and the, the endogenous uh, retrovirus argument only works when you presume that we have the exact same lineage, which is the very thing that you're setting out to prove to begin with, right? So, in other right. words, the fact that uh, these retroviruses operate this way in humans and chimps uh, is supposed to uh, prove common descent. It only proves common descent when you assume that the origin of the DNA has to be from humans evolving from an ape. Now, it leaves out the possibility that there were actually different kinds, species, created. So, I, in other words, and I'm not saying this is a proof for creation. I could just make the, the claim. I could say, oh, yeah, well, God made uh, apes that way and he made men that way. And uh, right. because he made apes and men from the common stuff of the earth, whatever that means in Genesis, uh, they share commonalities. And uh, man was said to be in Genesis, uh, have dominion over the earth. So he shares, in some sense, a connection to all created life. 
right. oh, that's crazy, that's insane, how could you believe that? Uh, well, but see, that's the thing, is that right? that's my presupposition and that's my paradigm. And so what you're saying to me about retroviruses is only an argument for retroviruses when you presuppose common descent. And that's the thing that you're trying to prove. Well, another thing, too, if you if you take it on a service level, how they're presenting it, it it does it it does appear to be pretty solid evidence that there's some kind of commonality between it because because they're but what they're it, what they're proposing is that like okay these retrovirus uh, retrovirus sites in the DNA uh, we can we can identify these conclusively and these are um, non-coding vestigial. Mm-hmm. Uh, insertions of gene sequences that came about through some viral infection in the past lineages of the development of humans and chimps, and, and we share those in common. Now that sounds brilliant. That sounds right. like wow. That that is wow. That's pretty, you know, uh, home run evidence. You know, the, mm-hmm. of, until you look into like okay, here's the question I ask: is like how do you know that what you're looking at is a is a retroviral infection site? <laughs> well, it turns out that they've determined that um, at least some of those do important things within the physiology of chimps and humans. Like one of the vi- supposed, quote-unquote, viral uh, non-coding junk DNA sites actually code for, like, re- re- in, in some some stage in the development of the embryo, it's like, oh, this, this virus site kicks in. So... If yes. that's, yeah, so if that's doing something, that's obviously not a holdover or a junk vestige of something. Yeah, that's what I was saying. It's, it's First of all, it's based on that older right. baloney notion of the junk DNA. Exactly. Right? And if that's not true, uh, <laughs> right. And so no, just because you don't know the function of these things, uh, it doesn't prove that they're useless, right? Well, they work off that presupposition that, know, that yeah, these, right. are, these are... These are uh, viral infection sites, and then, but then you know when it can be demonstrated that oh these have functions. So what, what you would have to then conclude is, so you're telling me that the chimps were just waiting around to be infected by a virus in order to get them this important piece of code that <laughs> allows them. It's like that is just absolutely insane. Like how? What? You, so yeah. you, instead of I, dropping it though, they persist in this fantasy. You know. Yeah, up, up, down, down, left, right, B, A, select, start. That code uh, has a use, and it gives you infinite lives in uh, Contra. <laughs> if you play Nintendo. Which every every kid in the 80s who grew up with a Nintendo knows, knows up, up, down, down, left, right, B, A, select, start. Uh, that is not a useless code, right? But uh, if I said uh, up, up, down, down, left, right, B, A, select, start to random persons, they'd be like, what are you talking about, dude? It doesn't make no... You're talking jibber-jabber. No, I'm telling you a code, but you don't. You just don't happen to know what that code does. Yeah, you have no point of reference for it. So, like when you go in looking for patterns, which is absurd from an evolutionary standpoint. Yeah, exactly. You, yeah, because they're looking for patterns and then looking at patterns as if they have significance, where every other context they don't. It's like if you take, like for instance, the 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 part of the DNA or the codes for bioluminescence in, uh, like, different octopus and stuff, like, in mollusk and different things that are out there in nature. So bioluminescence, they say, is an example of convergent evolution where, oh, well, it just ha- ha- happened to happen 
multiple times throughout evolution, independently of each other, because there's no known, uh, you know, tree of life relationship between these um, bioluminescent characteristics and these different uh, disparate uh, organisms. You know, so so therefore, it had to. We have to conclude that they uh, evolved independently. <laughs> and it's like, well, okay, so you have this wildly improbable uh, event occurring that's giving you this similar trait. So in this instance, the pattern has no significance. We just we could just chalk it up to just pure coincidence. But over here in the chimp, when we see similar patterns, oh, they have so much significance that we're gonna we're gonna you know make so much hay out of this that we're gonna you know and this is a proof for everything. It's like okay, so I was asking this one guy I was debating this with. I said, how do you know that's not another example of extreme convergent evolution then? It's like, expl- please explain how that... But see, I I think another thing, too, is like we have to assume that these scientists are doing their due diligence when they go in and, and study these things. But from what I understand, that they, they, they cherry-pick and pick and choose oh, yeah. and, and discard. Because yeah. with the 98% similar, similarity between human and DNA, you can read other places where chimps have 12% more DNA than humans do. Mm-hmm. So it's a mathematical impossibility that we have ninety-eight percent similar DNA. See, it's yeah, like yeah, yeah, and uh, they'll also say things like uh, we have uh, really similar DNA to it's either lizards or hamsters or something. Well, <laughs> yeah, obviously, sea urchins. There's a significant difference between the physiology and makeup of a human and a hamster or a lizard, right? So you know, even if it is like two percent difference or something or whatever the difference is supposed to be this week uh, those differences are quite significant so you know the useless argument when you try to make that point uh, yeah I mean the, the, what is the, the, and that's supposed to be the knockdown point for common descent and I don't buy it right I mean I, it, it, even uh, question, now questioning those points obviously doesn't prove my position it doesn't prove uh, that there is some sort of special creation, but but what I'm saying is that from a philosopher's standpoint, epistemically, you're not in any better position epistemically in what you think is an, is an origin claim than I am, right? Now, I think my claim is true, and I think that it's true for various reasons, but what they tend to do is, because they don't understand basic philosophy, most of those people never took critical thinking, they didn't take logic classes, and they don't understand that what they purport has to work, has to be consistent with with the claims. You can't just make assertions and claims and not have these things be coherent and line up because they just assume that like they have the pro- the reason and rationality is their property, right? That well, science owns reason, right? You're part of religion and that's superstition. I actually don't believe that. I believe that the division between faith and reason. I think that's kind of a invention of the. Uh, Enlightenment guys, uh, this is something that Locke talked about quite a bit. It's something that Kant talked about, and those were pre- philosophical presuppositions that they had in their philosophical systems, right? You know, where they they assumed that uh, well, there's no re- there's no reason, evidence, or basis for believing a religious claim. However, science is based on empirical verification of facts. Therefore, those claims are more certain, and in fact, they are not. And you can actually point out all kinds of areas where scientific 
claims, scientific claims, empirical claims, are absolutely no more certain than a religious claim. And in fact, they're very similar. Uh, as we've said many, many times, the idea of all knowledge coming through uh, this through sense experience. That's not a claim that you can uh, verify through sense experience. And so therefore it becomes a starting point of faith. It's a faith-based starting point. It may be true, it may be false, but it is a starting point that cannot be empirically verified based on the system itself. So before we started this call, we were talking about Kurt Gerdell and incompleteness theorems. And Gerdell argued with, with Bertrand Russell about this. That argument that I just made is, you can, that's a logical version of the same thing that Gerdell was making with, um, with mathematics. Because you can translate these things into form, formal logic. So you can say, if you make the claim, uh, all knowledge comes through sense experience, right? That can, I, you and I have talked about this, I know, but it's good to reiterate it. You can actually translate that into kind of a logical argument because it's a universal claim, right? You're saying that all human beings everywhere at all times always and only know things through their sense experience. And the problem with that claim is that it's all-encompassing and therefore it reaches outside of the scope of the claim itself. Mm. And by that very nature, uh, by that claim by its very nature, is no longer self-referencing and no longer empirical. So it, it, it cancels out the very thing that it tries to do. And if all these scientists had had basic logic and, and had a grasp on this, they would, I think, they would make a lot more progress and not be duped into a lot of these bad uh, ideologies and systems because it's exactly what Gerdell was showing Russell with mathematics is that, look, you can't have a completely coherent mathematical system, a formal system that doesn't reference something outside of itself. In the same way, when you try to make a, a universal claim about empirical experience, it's impossible. Yeah, that's what we're, we're talking about with the uh, the unexamined premise, where the naturalistic materialist operates from. They want to start at a certain square in the game, and then launch off into their discourse from there. And uh, with all this presupposed uh, baggage that they carry along with them, that. It often, more often than not, or the overwhelming majority of the time, never gets challenged. Yeah, Husserl was good in, in challenging this. I'm not, I don't buy into all the things that Husserl said, but he was, earlier on, he was kind of a Platonist, and he was uh, doing phenomenology in a kind of a mathematical way, and so when he wrote Logical Investigations, he wanted to from a position of what I can gather, at least, sincerity, he wanted to try to tell the scientific community that Hey, look, science is not just empiricism. Like it, it works on logic, and so he wanted to, to try to say, as a mathematician, look, scientists, you're utilizing abstract principles, things like math, numbers, and logic, even if you're not like coherent of it when you're doing your, your stuff, right? Right. But when you're following these methodologies and you're trying to produce patterns and recognition and science. That's actually working on a logical basis, even if you don't recognize it. And so what he did was he said, let me lay out for you some investigations of logic that show you that there's a logic of logic and that science isn't just a science. It's actually based on logic, and logic is based on metalogic. Now, this obviously fell flat on <laughs> most uh, ears of scientists who had absolutely no interest in this and didn't give a shit. 
and why is this math dude, you know, coming over here to the science building trying to tell us what to do? And now the reason for this is because Husserl studied under a dude named uh, Brentano, who was a rank empiricist, and Brentano was so radical that he didn't he didn't just uh, teach uh, empiricism. He tried to originate this idea of what's called psychologism. And psychologism is the idea that oh, it's not it's not all these mental states of uh, empirical sense data that you're recording like a biological camera like John Locke thought or David Hume. No, no, no. You're just having like sensations. <laughs> That's it. Like it's just it's just mental sensations that are coming to you. Uh, so it's an even more radical version of this this idea. And Husserl, as a mathematician, studying under the sky, and he's like. This is this is ridiculous. <laughs> I, like I've studied math all my life. You understand that like mathematical concepts are not sensations. No, 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 no. Math is just a sensation that you have, right? Like math is like feeling hurt. <laughs> right? Math is like when you're horny or something. And Husserl's like Husserl's like no, math is an actual objective invariant thing in the world. You know, we may not be able to touch it. But it's not like sensations. Are you like I don't love the number one <laughs> one day, and then, and then uh, because I hate the number one, the next day like suddenly the number one's gone and it disappears. Yeah. Right? It just doesn't it's work not, like it did before. Yeah. You know, like so, like if, if all of humanity like got together and collectively decided to uh, <laughs> like rid everyone's mind of the number one, like 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 on Brentano's basis, then there literally would no longer be a number one. <laughs> Well, I got in. I got into that uh, <clears throat> a little back and forth with um, uh, Jason Cavalito there, and you noticed he brought something up, and I've heard this before, and I've read some stuff about this with um, okay pattern recognition and, and stuff in nature. Yeah, and uh, you know, okay, you were talking about something that's you know mathematically improbable, uh, you know, let's say. And I've heard this too, where it's, it's proposed that, like, okay, you can look at any particular mountain range, and you can look at the weathering patterns, and you can you can uh, look at um, you know the appearance of it, and it and it, and it has a distinct uh, pattern of weathering. It has a distinct pattern of you know the different uh, uh, cracks in the rocks and all these different features that define it as this you know a distinct you know a geological formation or a you know mountain range or a plateau or whatever it happens to be that you're observing in nature um so what you're looking at is something that is it's to to think of it in terms of its its probability well it's it's highly improbable that you would get that precise configuration of erosion and patterns like that so you're you're in, if you want to look at it that way, that you're only imposing any kind of significance to it after the fact, after you're just based on yes. observance. Right. So that, okay, so that doesn't make sense if you're going to take that and apply, if you're going to take that and apply it to something in other, some other realm where you're getting uh, patterns that uh, repeat. Because mm-hmm. if if he wants to propose that as something that's, that's significant as far as you know improbability, or or you can look at something that's statistically improbable, but yet have a impose significance on it after the fact. Well, if you're looking, if you're trying to apply the same thing to biology, then 
you would have to say, well, there would be no significance in seeing the same identical or something very similar mountain range in a totally unrelated, like, if, let's say, uh, in the Wichita Mountains out here next to where I live, and I can go and take a picture in Afghanistan of a mountain range and it has almost the identical pattern. Mm-hmm. It's like you don't see that. Mm-hmm. You, you, you don't see that. But in biology, you have all these examples like one example is like the sheep's head fish where it has teeth that bear a very striking similarity and resemblance and pattern to human teeth oh okay yeah where it's like okay so you have a repeating patterns in biology that can't be explained by uh a, a common descent because you know we're because evolutionists yes. are not going to tell you we evolved from sheep's head fish because they have teeth they say, oh, that's convergent evolution. So that's a pattern that emerged spontaneously <laughs> by a random process that has no significance other than it just looks like a, uh, um, it, it looks similar. Yeah, in, in those same phenomenology classes, we did uh, several, spent several days on ink blot tests and Rorschach tests and, uh, there's an actual term, a German term that escapes me at the moment, but it has to do with the way that the mind will fill in blanks. Uh, so there were you know, experiments have been done many times where uh, people might have one eye covered, and then you know they see a sentence, read it several times, it's on a screen, and then uh, like the last time it blinks, maybe certain words are left out or something like that. Well, the mind will fill those in, uh, even though later you discover that that uh, those words or lines weren't, weren't there that last time or something. Uh, this happens as well in those famous examples of the woman who's, it's a painting, but it's also a skull, right? So it's, is it a woman or is it a skull? Well, it's both. But uh, different people will uh, say, oh, it's the skull. Oh, no, 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 it's the woman. Uh, the, and these, these are actually uh, instructive for in understanding how the human mind receives information and interprets data in in our visual spectrum and when you delve really deep into this this subject matter there's a good book called uh it was a philosophy book of the year a couple years ago by a guy named alvin noe n-o-e uh action and perception and that book uh, i don't advocate everything in that book because he's a little bit on the scientific side of things but there were a lot of insights into experiments that were done on human perception and what was good about that book was that he was critical of the Enlightenment blank slate tabula rasa idea. And he cites a lot of uh, perception experiments that were done that actually demonstrate that the human mind is not just a blank receiver, it actually also participates in imposing and giving a meaning to the data that's out there in the world. And this is the big, huge fallacy of scientism and the Enlightenment and it's taken centuries to gradually get away from this ridiculous notion uh, because the problem is that the reason you can see why the scientific empiricist crowd wouldn't want to adopt that because it means oh we actually aren't neutral coming into the lab and interpreting these facts we actually bring with us a interpretive matrix by which we read the phenomena of our experience right now the scientific types will sometimes be afraid that, oh, so now what you are saying is that we don't know anything and everything is just subjective interpretation. No, 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 no. That's a dialectic. It's both. You receive information from the outside 
you are also interpreting the information on the outside. And you don't come to anything with a completely blank slate, brute, factual, just, it's just there, bare objects. And this has to be stressed because this is just a, a, a completely bogus, dumb, false assumption that people have about how humans operate in the world. And you and I have touched on this in the past. That you just, you, it's just not possible. It's not humanly possible to go into the lab and not have preconceptions and not have a, an interpretive schema, uh, a matrix of, of how you read the objects of your experience. It's not, it's not humanly possible. I mean, you, what do you? How are you? How would you do it? You could like clear your mind and, and, and like zap yourself of all previous experiences. It's not possible, right? Yeah, that's. That's a really important point because yeah. I think that's 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 what that's what uh what what I get around to when we're talking about the unexamined premise of you know peer review or peer reviewed science or the scientific community is that um, is that people out there I think generally not just your atheistic materialists and all that those people I think generally it's like assumed or it's taken as a given. Yes. That yeah. the scientific community, their only one primary concern is with objective truth and, and, and empirical facts and evidence. And the, and the assumption is that when they look at an earthworm, they can look at the earthworm and just figure out the truth, <coughs> truth so-called about the earthworm, without any preconception of <laughs> what that is. And that's not when they approach that earthworm, they're approaching it from the presupposition that has been that has not been questioned. That this is some object or some living thing, being that uh, took aeons to come to be. So they've already entered the lab with that reading, right? Just like you would go to read Flannery O'Connor or Nietzsche or Dostoevsky, you do a reading of this text based on how you've previously, you know, felt and, and experienced, uh, you know, existentialism or Southern Gothic or whatever kind of literature you're reading, right? You're doing a reading of the earthworm. Now, it doesn't mean, I'm not saying, and this is what they always do, is say, oh, you're saying nothing's true, it's all subjective, uh, you're an idiot. No. All I'm saying is that I think this is a fact of human experience and human epistemology that it's not possible, what you're asking for. Now, does that mean that you never discover truths? No, I don't think so. I think that we do learn things. I do think there's objective truths. But you can't be completely neutral neutrality is a fallacy because it assumes that humans are like these sort of computers or something like you can just wipe your mind and just receive mm, breathe in the sense impressions breathe them in just to receive the impressions of the earthworm don't don't think about those previous earthworms that you played with that you stuck on your fishing lure when you were a kid no 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 don't think about bible stories <laughs> just just think about the lab think about the earthworm let the earthworm wash over you <laughs> be the earthworm <laughs> so it's the mystical experience of the lab. That would actually be a good article. Yeah. The mystical experience of the lab. Feel the soil moving <laughs> through your innards and out through your... <laughs> yeah, I, I know. It's Well, see, that's, that's the... Um, you were talking before. I was listening to your a conversation you were having uh, in one of your previous interviews were you were launching into your life experience as you know different jobs and stuff you had and how and I, I wanted to bring this up because you know I, I've had like similar experience where you come to the realization that when you're in sort of like an institutional framework where 
um, you think that okay, there's certain goals and objectives that are in place in in your work environment, right? Mm-hmm. So you know the end goal is to uh, crank out you know a, a product or a uh, whatever it happens to be. You know, like in in my instance, I've worked in web development stuff like that. So. Uh, in, in the online ad department, let's say for instance that one one job I had. So you think, okay, that that is the primary objective is for me to crank out this uh, product, which you know happens to be whatever it is, flash animations, ad advertisements, banner ads, or um, in one case it was uh, uh, a a um, it. A display that was going to be in put into lobbies of banks and stuff like that that was uh, would play um, it, it pre-prepared advertisements and and, and newsreel footage and stuff like that that was uh, okay. You think okay? Well, you're going into that with that kind of idea that okay, this this is the the, the primary goal or the objective. But what what you run into. Uh, at least from my experience, and you said this too, and I think uh, like a lot of people you're going to talk to out there are going to have the same experiences where, uh, no, that is not the primary goal. The primary, the one of the things you run into is inner office politics, yeah. where you come to the understanding that no matter how I, how good you think your idea is, or how uh, how good that other because you, it's like, oh, you may not, you know, or I may be self-deluded, thinking, oh, like this is a, this is such a great idea. This needs to be done, and this would work so well, and this would fit with the needs of this particular client, you know. Um, and then even though you, okay, you got your coworkers agreeing with you, you have the client agreeing with you, you have, but the boss has, or the, or the supervisor has. Their own particular ideas of how you know you need to do your job and how you need to do um, this or that or the other thing, which is you know by because you're the one doing it, you're the one creating the product, is that okay? This is going this is going counter to the objective of getting this product into the hands of the client, but you know you have to understand that there's inner office politics at play and there's things that have to be. Contend, contended with that are outside those objectives. You know, you see what I mean. Like it, it. Yes. It, you. Um, so, and I think that that's not just my experience. I think this has like been uh, countless numbers of people's experience out there in the so quote unquote real world, where they're going to run up against the wall, where they're going to have to understand that okay, in order to get this objective through the process you have to deal with this uh interpolitics that's at play that is something that is totally unrelated to the stated goals of your institution or what you know and this is something that is alleged to be absent from like the body of science or the scientific community or uh you know like that that that's totally un- unrealistic. Putting sort of like superhuman uh, qualities on this thing called uh, science. Yeah, even Nietzsche made this point where he and I don't agree with everything Nietzsche said, but he would castigate the scientific enlightenment types of his day 
by making that point saying you idiots think that you are the last vestiges of those who carry the flame of truth and objectivity and ab absolutism <laughs> but uh, in actuality you're no different than the religionists and so N Nietzsche would call the pale-faced atheists of his day evangelists huh? uh, they're, yeah. they're just evangelists for the enlightenment gospel is what explicitly what Nietzsche said I think that's in uh, uh, Eke Homo I believe is where he says that but but yeah, he's making that point. He's saying that, what world do you live in, right? I mean, have you never been out of your house? Have you, do you not understand like basic politics of the real world? So you see, you see government corruption. You see corruption in religious institutions. You see whole, huge trades of vice, right? Gambling or prostitution. But so, and then what? The lab. The academia is uh, immune to this. <laughs> That's absolutely absurd. Like it's what, ridiculous. But that. But is... they need to. They need to prop that myth up that 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 institution is you know the the last vestiges of uh, absolute truth or whatever it is they think that they possess. Reason, right? The great institutions of reason, right? Right, and then you could go into like a, that documentary we've talked about this before, Expelled. Mm -hmm. Where they're going through, okay, different anecdotal accounts of how, okay, so I expressed this point of view that was counter to the official dogma, <laughs> and then I was, you know, persecuted against. You know, it's like, well, and then, you know, I, I couldn't get tenure, I couldn't get any traction within the, the world of academia or get uh, my papers published when there was no other objective reasoning other than it was contrary to the established dogma in some respect, maybe not even to any kind of real extreme. It was just uh, something that was uh, counter to the, the, the commonly accepted religious belief that is entrenched. I was told this in, in grad uh, class uh, under the advisors. I was told because you sit before a panel and they decide to don you and award you a master's. Uh, and then the same with PhD, right? And you're told, uh, I was told explicitly, quote, you're entering a society. Now, I mean, it's not like literally like a secret society per se. Uh, although at the graduation ceremonies, they do have the holdovers of this sort of uh, elitist sort of uh, quasi-secret society, I guess you could say. Because it's very similar to the way that the colleges do sororities and fraternities where they're they're not like full-blown masonry or something like that, but it's it's like a watered-down quasi version of a secret society. Mm -hmm. And I know about this. I, I never joined any of those. I never wanted to be a part of it. I'm not a, a joiner of cults. And uh, but I, I had girlfriends that were in sororities, and they would uh, relate their experiences to me. I also actually didn't went and did research. I tried to do a piece on fraternities and sororities when I was at school. Uh, and this was actually frowned upon. They, they were not. I, I went and met with some of the heads. I was like, I want to do uh, an interview. I want to talk about uh, what do you do there? Is this is this a network where you just uh, it's like a buddy network? Uh, done this uh, lend towards corruption? Mm -hmm. uh, and they were not at all happy about that. Right. So I was told to leave. Please. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. Yet. So what was it I, called? What, what was what? This. Uh organization. Oh, well, no, you know how, like, if you go to a university, 
you have all the fraternities and sororities, right? So you have like the ATO and the Alpha Delta Pi's and the there's a yeah. know, there's a yeah. million of them, right? And you know, I had different girls that uh, I dated that were in these different sororities and stuff, and they would talk about what all they went through and being princess of their sorority or whatever, <laughs> whatever their roles are. So I was always, you know, I've read a lot on secret societies, and I would read about the history of frats and sororities and what they are is kind of like watered down you know like low level versions of that stuff like like car, like cheap copies kind of of like higher level secret societies and I mean they're not like going around and you know, sacrificing animals or anything like that but they go through that same kind of hazing period trial period and it's very it's very ritualistic some of the rituals actually are quasi masonic for some of those college uh, frats and sororities Oh, yeah. And I would bring this stuff up, and they were always like, no, that's not what it is. You don't understand. You're not part of our sisterhood. I'm like, I don't want to be part of your sisterhood. <laughs> uh, I might be interested in you. You got a nice booty, but uh, no, I'm not interested in your sisterhood. Thank you. And I never wanted to be involved in any frats or anything like that. But <clears throat> So what I did was one, one day I got the gumption. I was like, I'm going to go talk to these, because we had an office. Right? Like You go to the university, and they're be like the frat, you know, sorority office where all the heads of the different ones, I don't know what, they sit around and push papers in there or something. So I went in there one day. I was like, yeah, I'd like to request uh, a, a meeting. And they're like, uh, it was this chick who was head of Alpha Delta Pi or something. I don't know. And she's like, okay, what for? And I was like, I want to talk about what you guys do. And she's like, uh, what do you do? I was like, I have a web- website. I do news media and uh, it's, it's in independent, independent research. Um, why do you want to know? I was like, because I want to know what you're up to. Like, what is all this about, right? Uh-huh. To me, it looks like kind of a secret gathering. What, what is this? What I'm investigating. And uh-huh. she was just like thrown for a loop. She's like, I, I've been in charge of this sorority for years, and we're not doing anything crazy. It's not. And I was like, okay, well, can I get your name? Can we do an interview? No, no. no. <laughs> Now, and I'm, again, I'm not saying that they actually were. All I'm saying is it's kind of a low-level good old boys network, and that's what the frats and sororities function as. So you can have this sisterhood to always fall back on or brotherhood when you get into the workforce. It's it's just, it's actually pretty retarded, right, because you're paying for all this stuff. So it's like a racket, too, you know. But, uh, but yeah. Because so. Jay, Jay, Jay applied for Lambda, Lambda, Lambda. <laughs> delta, Delta, Delta. I kind of help you, help you, help you. <laughs> anyway, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm rambling, but but you get my point. It's like right. You you have a microcosm of everything at the university, right? Of the macrocosm. So you've got your cliques and your frats and your sororities and your government officials, like the head of the university or whatever, and you know, it's your president, blah blah blah. But then, is this something that is, you know, nefarious? You know, well. I don't think people will see it that way because I think there's there's this kind of natural inclination to kind of fall into some sort of these like, these these quasi hierarchies and this yes. other nonsense and stuff like that. So um, and then you know there's obviously peer pressure that that comes to bear on any kind of organizational structure like that. Well, and when you get to like you know scroll and key skull and bones that kind of stuff is right. I mean, that's oh pretty- yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just amplified to the point yeah. where it's it, it, it's it's this uh, yeah it's, it's just this sort of sifting mechanism door okay how far will you go and then like okay so how far to the top do you want to climb you know well did you did uh, Jay did you listen to that interview I did with Adam Parfrey? Uh yes 
And so his book uh, on secret societies in America, it's really ingrained into our culture to be part of a fraternal order. Yes, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. That, that's, especially, the, that is the, that's the American uh, Enlightenment revolutionary ethos, all the founding fathers, yeah, most of them. Right, and, and that's what I was going to say is, no matter what civic institution you're involved with, you're always connected. To, so, I mean, I, I know people. I know people who are lightly, you know, like uh, back in my hometown, who are lightly involved with the community. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, just a, just a particular family that I'm thinking of, and the dad is a. Moose Lodge member, a lion, mm-hmm. and the mom is like a Rotary Club member, right? And like I said, those are that's real light stuff. It's not, um, you know, not really anything. What's the what's the other one? Not the moose, but the uh, elk like lodge. the bucks. Elk, elk Lodge. That's what it is. Yeah, the Elk Lodge. Um, so yeah, that those. Uh, those things are almost a given no matter what it is um, so if you're involved civically it's almost um, it's it's almost implied that you're going to be part of some sort of fraternal order absolutely yeah yeah and the the college level stuff is like you said that's kind of the recruitment ground kind of the weeding out area you know what are you willing to go along with the did you go through the you know hazing of you know being naked a week or whatever it is? Yeah, I remember one guy. Uh, trying to remember the name of the uh, fraternity that he was in, Alpha Chi. I don't remember what it was, but this is like 10, 12 years ago. But. Uh, <laughs> He was talking about how, oh, it's such a spiritual experience, man. I, I'm not supposed to tell you about the initiation ritual, but uh, they brought me in, and they blindfolded me, and they laid me on a table, and they put a sword to my chest. I'm not kidding, right? <laughs> I'm like, uh, so, like a low level, like a basically a copy of Masonic ritual? Oh, I don't know about that, but man, it was a spiritual experience. They told me I was risen from the dead, and I was a new brother in Alpha, blah, blah, blah. Wow. And I'm like, well, yeah, so that's just like a watered-down version of masonry. You know what else, too? I was just to go back to the, uh, I know I'm, I'm rebutting into your guys' conversation. Um, to go back to the Black Dahlia, this has not ever been, I've never seen anybody bring this up, but but the, the way that um, it's been analyzed, the way that she was positioned, when um, they found the body and her legs were uh, her legs and her uh, arms were put in a particular position and when I read it you know when I looked over some of the information again years ago her her legs were like a compass right yeah it reminds me of uh, Jack the Ripper Story, right? Yeah, J- Jack the Ripper. Same, same thing. They were, they were all three Masonic uh, murders uh, with the particular, um, you know, yeah, the, that, the, that, uh, that that diamond swearing compass type uh, symbology, which was in one of those paintings that uh, either Hodel did or Man Ray or somebody did, and it, it had the etchings. 
it wasn't right. on the, exactly. it wasn't on the pelvis, but it was somewhere on it was on the face. It was a, like the Saturnalian etchings on the face. Oh yeah, her um, it was her uh, upper torso. The way her hands were positioned, it's like in a it's like yeah. in a Masonic alien, like uh, like a hail. But at the same time, it was like the um, uh, the the bowl, like a bowl, like a. Um, it was man laid. He did a he did a portrait of a woman's upper torso with her hands raised, but it's in a shadow to make it look like a bowl. Oh, the Minotaur, right? The, the Minotaur. But um, the other thing that doesn't get mentioned well, is that one of her breasts one of her breasts were sliced off, and that is completely and totally a cult, especially in Freemasonic. That's what your breast is exposed, like the god or the or the goddess. Yeah. Well, there's all, but there's also another painting. I know the Minotaur that you're talking about, a man, right? But there's another painting, uh, and I can't remember if it's a painting that Hodel did. That may that's probably wrong, or uh, one of maybe even Dolly did it. But uh, one of the surrealists did it, and it's a it's a torso with the arms and legs gone, and on the the face of the woman is etched uh, a bunch of uh, it's I don't know. Hard to describe it, but it, it's it's these that Saturnalian uh, square and compass type image. It's like a bunch of them on top of one another, etched onto a, a face. Yeah, these the and and uh, Chris and I have talked about this before. I don't think we were brought up with you, but a lot of the stuff that you see in you know being played out in, in the public, um. Like you know, Monica Lewinsky, uh, or you know, even maybe maybe even the Hillary Hillary Clinton um, email scandals, or whatever it is, uh, Richard Nixon's Watergate. These have a lot of Freemasonic implications. That these are actual hazing processes played out in the public, and whereas you, being part of the general public, you believe that you're watching a scandal. But what you're really seeing is a hazing process to move someone up in uh, degree. Yeah, some people have posited that. I, I think there's probably something to that. I definitely think that you know the, the situation with Monica was scripted, as uh, Chris has pointed out. That that is obviously what's in Wag the Dog. Um, and certainly, I think that you have this higher level scripting of events like this. And I do think there are numerological, esoteric meanings behind all of it. And I, I don't remember who it was. Somebody was making an argument that maybe at a certain point, like if you're Miley Cyrus or something like that, and, you know, the, the like maybe you go through a period of degrading in the media, you know what I mean, to like like you go undergo this process of, uh, of uh, d- degradation and destruction of your image uh, in order to, in you know, like an esoteric ritual sense, like, Initiate you into the next level because that, that it always involves this process of like death of the old person and then there's the transformation you know the, the butterfly into this new new state of uh, psychic awareness or whatever it is you think you're getting from it right uh, so perhaps, right that's, that's in the old that's in the old mystery schools as well too yes right yeah so so maybe yeah maybe uh, you do go through a, a like you said a hazing uh, that. Uh, you have to let uh, the world dis- destroy you and tear you down, or something. Yeah, that I've heard this before too. That uh, these celebrities will undergo this um, 
it's pretty typical for them to undergo like this process of public humiliation like yes. they'll have this uh, event or something like that or a, 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 I don't know caught drunk driving or wh- whatever it happens to be and then they'll go through this kind of public shaming and that's part of their yeah their I- initiation uh, process that, that all these top celebrity people will eventually go through at one point or another one stage in their careers or what have you yeah and i mean i think a lot of people would say oh it's just publicity it's just organized uh stunts or whatever uh it could be both i mean it could be yeah you know what i mean it's not like it has to be one or the other um it looks to me like britney spears was really losing her freaking mind right i mean she was yeah if she was putting on just an act it was it was a really good act but it looked to me like she was really losing it Right, it's the same thing with like Anna Nicole Smith. I mean, yes, yeah. That that lady was not a very good actress when she was in a movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, but then, but then all of a sudden she starts acting like uh, you know. I'm sure you've seen some of those bizarre, uh, that bizarre video footage of her like morphing into like a six year old child or something. Yeah, there's yeah. She's like wearing bunch of uh, makeup where she looks like a clown she's acting like a kid and yeah Br- Brittany does that same thing with Barbara Walters or somebody uh, or Diane Sawyer yeah. you see that one uh, I don't know it's one of those video music awards or some nonsense like that where uh, a lot of these you know let's say like, you know, if you look at like the Vigilant Citizen side he, he goes into a lot of this stuff where He's kind of looking at the esoteric nature of these, uh, well, it, whether it's a halftime show or sort of the right. music awards or something like that. And there was this one that, when you were talking about the Black Dahlia thing, it brought to mind, uh, uh, what's her name, uh, Pink, some musician or singer. And it was really overtly Masonic. And mm-hmm. she had... Yeah, I've seen uh, that one. Yeah, she had one breast exposed and the checkerboard pants on, I think. And oh. then they had the one leg rolled up and and uh, did the hanged man simulation and yeah and all of that stuff. So yeah, that, those are put out there in front of people, right? And uh, it, it kind of takes on different various forms. And yeah, we also saw that in the, Brit- the Britney Spears, uh, Christina Aguilera, Madonna, Chemical Freemasonic Wedding. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Where they, they did their lesbo kiss, and there was like a, sn- a snake on stage or something crazy. Yeah, that, that, that was full-blown. complete. I mean, Madonna comes out dressed as a worshipful master. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's, that, that's just all being... Done, uh, you know, done out on stage. I mean, Janet Jackson's uh, costume malfunction where she has one breast exposed with a sun symbol on it. Yeah, you remember the? I, uh, I don't. I didn't see many breakdowns of this one, <clears throat> but uh, I remember watching. I don't care about the Olympics, but there was a few years ago when they had the Olympics, maybe Greece. Or I don't remember, but uh, Annie Lennox performed. I remember that part of it, and it was the. Olympic ceremony where they had all those uh, 
like hospital beds of babies and then there's like big huge dead corpse babies floating around that are like blimps you remember that oh yeah that was, that was bizarre the, the and, whole... yeah, and then tw- later on in that uh, nobody co- pointed this out I thought it was crazy there was this uh, bus that rolled out and it looked just like 7-7 and the, the top of the bus like exploded out <laughs> right and there was like all these celebrities, right? Yeah, singing on uh, singing, yeah, on yeah, top yeah. Of, yeah, singing on top of this like uh, quasi exploded opened up bus. Uh, uh, even it, it was a British, uh, uh, whatever you call those red buses with two stories that everybody double decker. Yeah, it was a double decker, uh, just like what happened in Seven Seven, and it was like Jennifer Lopez was standing on top of it singing or something like that. Yeah, there, there was um, well, Annie Lennox. Uh, Sweet Dreams is a very occult song. Um, yeah, I thought it was, was interesting that she, she was a big, a big promoter of abortion. I thought it was interesting that she was singing right, like right after the you know dead baby psychiatric ward or whatever that was. <laughs> Weirdo. And I, I want to even say Danny Boyle, the director, if I recall, is who organized that, uh, and he's done quite a few esoteric weird films like Trance, that movie with James McAvoy and Rosario Dawson where he's put into a trance and he's uh, involved in an art heist, which is a, a very fascinating, I thought it was a fascinating film, but uh, Danny Boyle is supposed to be an atheist, but it looks to me like he's presenting some you know pretty hardcore esoteric stuff in, in that, in that uh, it wasn't Super Bowl, it was the Olympics, I think. Yeah, that was the Olympics. Was that in England? That was in England. Okay, it's England. That makes sense then. That's what it was. It wasn't Greece, yeah. Yeah, speaking of Olympics in Greece, uh, I was, that, that actually brought something to mind because I was reading. I was going to ask you this. Have you ever done a critique on the movie The Vegas with uh, Michael Caine? The, the what? Uh, the Magus? The Magus? Oh, yes. In fact, what I did was actually read the novel and uh, really really long wordy novel but very important and instead of the because uh, I did watch the movie and I didn't think the, everybody said how bad the movie was and it's not good and it's different from the novel but uh, I did uh, uh, I did like the movie okay but certainly the novel is far superior and that novel is like I, I don't like using the terminology of Vigilant Citizen, I'm not a big fan of Vigilant Citizen, but uh, just for the sake of simplicity, that is uh, like one of the ultimate Illuminati novels, to put it simply. I actually, I actually didn't think the film was that bad. <coughs> well, <coughs> it's not bad, uh, and it's not as bad as most people have said, but it is a little goofy uh, compared to the novel. Now, the novel does include... <laughs> Uh, ritual magicians using crisis actors. <laughs> I'm yeah, not that's, that's why. I, that's why I know. I know. That's why I was bringing that up. Is yep. that most bizarre part of the film is when he's like think when he finally starts to realize that all of it's fake. Yes, <laughs> and I had uh, when I wrote the. This is three or four years ago. I wrote an analysis of the novel. The dude that runs the John Fowles website. Uh, Messaged me about it. He was like, "Hey, this is interesting review you did." Blah blah blah. I think his comments even still on the uh, 
on the article, but uh, I went to the to the site, the John Fowles site, who's the author of, of the Mages, and you come to find out that the makers of the game with the, with Michael Douglas, the Fowles estate actually tried to sue them because <laughs> it's the yeah, same plot. Yeah, Chris, remember we talked about that movie, The Game? Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, that was full of crisis actors and all kinds of crazy stuff like that. But now the the Magus was written back in the 60s, so here you go back, you can, here's a whole intricate plot of that going down back in the 60s, and uh, yeah, I, 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 what's I'll go ahead and, if you don't mind, I'll go ahead and ruin it, because I, I remember the novel vividly. I was very, like, blown away with it. Uh, what I said in my analysis, I said, The Magus by John Fowles is a peculiar novel. It's not like anything I've read. It's a mix between the TV show Lost and the Michael Douglas movie The Game, with a bit of eyes wide shut thrown in for good measure. Imagine Aristotle Onassis with a penchant for psychological warfare. <laughs> because the that what happens is that the guy, Conchise, Who's the Greek uh, billionaire magnate owns this island, uh, which uh, he he lures this uh, young British Oxford uh, chap who's sort of this lascivious uh, ne'er do well nihilist to the island, and uh, after a breakup with his girlfriend, and he begins to enact all of these scenarios that are both ritualistic based on Greek mythology and, and the gods as well as having the intention of questioning Nicholas, the protagonist's view of reality. And not just his view of reality, but he also puts him in a bunch of moral quandaries that cause Nicholas to question his nihilism and lack of uh, morals. And ultimately, this is kind of to give... What Conchise is doing is he's... It's, it's like the ultimate version of Duper's Delight. So it's not just duper delight, but it's actually like imagine being a billionaire magnate who who gets to enact theater in the world, and so he actually enjoys constructing these large scale real world plays with reality, and that's what he does is he just continually puts Nicholas through these different psyops, uh, ultimately not just for his own pleasure, but also to kind of lead Nicholas down this this pathway and the climax I'll go ahead and ruin it but the climax is that there's this crazy scene where it's this sort of occult ritual where Nicholas is put on this judgment seat uh, and he's tied down and he sees all these different people wearing like goat masks and, and it's kind of an eyes wide shut kind of scenario and he learns that they're all a bunch of uh, psychiatrists, scientists, and professors <laughs> who are all the buddies. And, uh, like, you know, there's a bunch of actors and stuff, too. They're all the buddies of Conchise, the, the millionaire. Billionaire. Well, he's a millionaire, I guess, back in the 50s and 60s. And uh, he says, so we've shown you all of this, and you have all these opinions, and you don't like what I've done. And he says, so you're on the judgment seat, so judge us. It's a very fascinating scene because he puts Nicholas, right, the victim, supposedly, in the judgment seat to decide what he wants to do with everybody. And Nicholas is caught in this moral quandary. And ultimately, 
Conchise runs off and, and lets Nicholas go. And Nicholas is just kind of like baffled. You know, he goes back to Oxford and he's just like, well, what did I, what was that? And my impression of the end of the novel was that basically Nicholas came into contact with a class of persons who operated in a completely different paradigm with a completely different perspective. And he just could not fathom it. So he couldn't fathom like the, the, alternate version of morality and ethics and, and modus operandi that this billionaire magnate person and his class of people uh, operated by. So ultimately I kind of read it as like a, I don't want to say it's something trite, like a, like a class warfare thing, because it's not that, but it's more like a, you know, you can't fathom the lifestyle of, you know, Queen Elizabeth. You can't fathom uh, Aristotle Onassis, right? And that's kind of who Aristotle Onassis kind of get the impression it might even maybe it maybe it is him. Like I, you know, when you start looking at the Bond stuff and the tie-ins to Diamonds and Forever, I, in my analysis of Diamonds and Forever, I even talk about how you know it might be talking about Aristotle Onassis. I don't know. It's crazy stuff going on here. But uh, so anyway, that's I'm rambling, but that that's how I read it. Uh, it's, it's pretty it's pretty bizarre stuff it's also um, well like you well I mean like you recently wrote um, an eyes wide shut um, uh, analysis as well yeah I just I reposted the old one yeah yeah and so you that's what, what else you have is this kind of view into um it's kind of a similar thing to that. Oh, too, yeah, that yeah, yeah, exactly. You're right. I'm sorry. And so, yeah, Bill Harford is seeing, oh, I'm not at the top of the food chain. There's actually a level of people above me that I don't get. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then, like, like, you're, like you're saying, they have this completely indifferent uh, code of ethics and um, all that type of stuff. Now, the, the debate always between, you know, with Eyes White and Chud is always... Was Kubrick trying to tell you something? Was he a good guy or a bad guy or whatever it is? And that's really pretty irrelevant, right? To the whole scope of it, um, it's just these you know these movies they get put out there for a purpose, and definitely you know you can argue over what the ultimate purpose is, but uh, you, you definitely have to know that just to be able to put, put out there into people's consciousness. Uh, not even that they're going to understand it, but it's definitely out there and it has some sort of, um, you know, esoteric. Uh, it's kind of like magic. It, it's in your con- it's in, it's in your subconscious, even though you don't understand it. But it's there, kind of like wallpaper. Yeah, and, and the, it's interesting too that the presentation of the magus, uh, the novel, is not supernatural. And it's important to understand that the, uh, for lack of a better term, Illuminati that, that Nicholas gets involved with, uh, they're, they wear the costumes, but they're not uh, really believers in supernatural. Uh, they're pragmatists. It's, it's, it's for fun. It's, well, for Conchise, it's for fun, right? Because he was... The, his character is uh, angry from what happened in World War II and so forth, and 
he was put into uh, compromising moral situations, and um, so he sort of lives out these moral quandaries that he had in uh, Duper's delight on a massive scale. And uh, but the occult society is really they're 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 into scientism, really. Uh, at least that's how it's presented. Yeah, there's like tarot cards come up and all this stuff, but. I, I came away from the novel with the impression that like, this Illuminati is just into power politics. They're, they don't, they're not invoking uh, forces because all the gods that uh, Conchise was presenting to Nicholas were were actors. <laughs> they were they were uh, scenarios that he constructed like a film director. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I was thinking about this how. You have this uh, ruling class, you know. You know, people refer to them different ways, you know, whatever, wherever they happen to be or what have you. But uh, you know, exercising political power over the masses, and that's one thing. But to get a large number of people to believe in something, like you kind of get that in that. Uh, it, there's that famous dialogue in that novel 1984 between O'Brien and Winston Smith, you know, where, okay, how many fingers do I have up? And then, you know, it's it's four, and well, it's not four. It's, you know, what we what we tell you it is. It's, it, there's something to that, I, I believe, that is, uh, I think it's pretty profound, it's pretty important to recognize this in our society, in our system, is that, it's it's not enough just to get you to believe in untruth. I think it's it's important that you believe something that's so patently absurd, that's <laughs> so against your senses and your sense of uh, uh, reason or sense of you know or common sense or maybe you call it or or whatever. There's something about that I think that is it, it maybe at least in their mind and their perceptions that makes them more uh, powerful. As you know, maybe being even uh, to to put themselves in the in the position of gods, you know, because you hear that in the occult um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. kind of the the goal, or you know, we're just we're talking about uh, 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 what's her face, um, the new agey gal that was prominent for a while, um, Shirley McLean. Shirley McLean. Yeah, uh, Shirley MacLaine, and then what well, was what was her thing? It's like, oh well, I I I am becoming a god, and you could become a god too. Well, what to create reality, you know, and to get to, to, you get and get the masses to buy into it. That that is a form of uh, you know creating worlds or creating universes or something yes. that are that are yeah that are uh, don't exist other than the perceptions of people and. To get people to believe in absurdities, I think, is to take that to an extreme to where, you know, it is sort of this ultimate exercise of power. It is. That's what Con Maurice Conchise in the novel tells to Nicholas at a certain point. He's like, he's like it, it becomes evident that the, that the gods, the, the appearances of the gods that he staged were not real. And he's more or less saying to Nicholas, yeah, but I had you believing it was real, right? And Nicholas is like, well, yeah, you duped me. He's like, yeah, so you operated as if it was real. Well, yeah. He's like, right, so 
ultimately was real. <laughs> now it wasn't, but but you were operating on the worldview, on the presupposition that uh, I was actually bringing these uh, you know ancient Greek gods back to to the island of Praxos. Uh, and then Nicholas is like, "Well, you duped me." He's like, "Yeah, but you believed it." And but, but uh, here's a good point. I, I don't want. <clears throat> let me. Would you mind if I read a quote here? I think it's relevant because it it's, speaks to your point there. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. So <clears throat> when I was watching and, and analyzing the Diamonds Are Forever, <clears throat> which also includes the fascinating scene of Bond running into a stage moon landing. I was thinking about uh, uh, Aristotle and Assis and Fleming, because when I was doing a lot of research on Ian Fleming, you come across in biographies where Aristotle and Assis approached Fleming to, to put the money behind the first uh, Bond film, and that didn't go down. But what, what's interesting is that they did get to be buddies, and... <clears throat> I said, no stranger to Hollywood, Onassis was also a friend with a number of numerous uh, prominent directors, including the Greek film executive Spiro Skouris. With these connections, my thesis in concert with the insights of Basil Valentine is that Diamonds of Forever is a film that provides crucial insight into the coded reference of William White as a stand-in for Howard Hughes, as I argued in my Martin Scorsese article. Hughes was intimately tied to the CIA through Robert Mayhew, an intelligence establishment figure who emerged from the CIA-dominated advertising world. It is possible that Mayhew was involved in reporting the kidnapping escapade of Hughes, which the Gemstone Files allege was orchestrated by Onassis, which I'm not saying the Gemstone Files are true, I'm just pointing this out, leading to Hughes being spirited away to, reportedly, the magnate's lavish island, Scorpios... On this island, and on this note, there is a parallel to the 1965 postmodern novel The Magus by John Fowles. In the story, a young English lad is intentionally led to a fictional Greek island named Fraxos, where a wealthy magnate uh, and former Nazi collaborator arranges elaborate psychological and theological operations to test Nicholas's will. Playing with both reality and classical mythology, Maurice Conchis eventually breaks Nicholas's resolve having completely altered the protagonist's paradigm of reality. Rather than freely choosing his own dalliances, Nicholas discovers that his own story has been organized and directed by troops of actors and academics at the behest of an elite mastermind. This crisis actor. Could this be a coded reference to the Gemstone Falls? While that is not clear, it is interesting that Onassis is rumored to have had contacts with many global elites such as Eva and Juan Perón in Argentina. So we have billionaires, Greek islands, and possibly coded occult messages. It's quite a tale. As I said of the Magus, the book is spiced with references to tarot, Greek deities, Baphomet, Gnosticism, ritual initiation, the Eleutherian mysteries, etc. Conchis eventually reveals to Nicholas when he's drugged and captured and placed in the judgment seat that the secret is science. While Nicholas is supposed to judge the rest of the Illuminus under his uh, present under the sign of the pentagram and Baphomet, Nicholas decides. Uh, Nicholas ends up confounded as a group of doctors and PhDs dissects his whole life with psychoanalysis. <laughs> Nicholas is then forced to watch a porno with his ex-girlfriend being banged by a black guy. Uh, this is all, all of Nicholas's actions on the island have been recorded by secret cameras. 
And so here we have a Bentham-Foucault-style panopticism uh, where the prisoner is subjected to the all-pervading gaze of the eye of the elite. So Nicholas not only cannot escape their influence, but he's also held captive to a narrative that they construct about him. In short, he is helpless, although he thinks he is free in his atheism and nihilism. So Maurice then turns out to be a combination of the trickster slash Magus in the tarot. That's why the tarot deck was mentioned early in the novel, as well as the prince slash ruler tarot card with his unlimited wealth. He can hire any troop of actors. He can recreate any scenes. He can arrange any events he so desires. And no matter where Nicholas goes or what he does, he cannot escape Maurice. Every time Nicholas tries to construct a mask, this is why masks are very important in that story as well as in Eyes Wide Shut, this mask functions as an excuse or an identity by which to hide himself. Uh, Conchise then comes around to smash the mask and remind Nicholas of his existential dictum that he is condemned to be free. Enter Jean-Paul Sartre. He continues to operate in the Sartre in bad faith and in inauthenticity to the end of the novel until he appears to concede that he is helpless. Yeah, and what was his what was his problem? You know, this Nicholas character... So he could conceive of anything like that. Yes, and he's a Dawkinite. It's important to place him in that nihilistic, materialistic... I mean, that's made very explicit in the novel. Nicholas is a dogmatic, atheistic materialist, and he's a nihilist. He many times says this. And anytime anyone, when he gets to the novel, he's interacting with his ex-girlfriend, Rick, whether it's a traumatic breakup, he runs away to a Greek island for a vacation and he's always arguing with people about uh, God right, and interestingly, the point that Conchise is kind of trying to make to him is that you actually think you're God that's why he's placed on the judgment seat at the end of the novel Hmm. and you're not God, and in fact you're so not God that a another human being can actually rip apart your entire paradigm. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, because he would have to have some kind of insight into the idea that such a construct was possible. Exactly. If you know so much, Nicholas, well then surely you would know about what I do, right? how the world really works. But you don't, and you've pl- you've made all these judgments, right? You've pronounced all these uh, assessments of the world, of God, of morals, of man, of me, of you, of your girlfriends, um, but you don't even have a basic idea of the fact that there's fucking crisis actors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we're going to just relentlessly screw over your paradigm until <laughs> and have our way with you because, yeah, you have no conception of such a thing as even feasible yeah, you're going to pronounce grand metaphysical claims that you know God doesn't exist, but you don't even know about the fact that there's a crisis out there. Well, then it would be naturally follow that uh, whatever the elite chose to do would be within the would be permissible if his if his whole worldview is correct and that uh, there yes. is no higher authority but man. 
And that's why, yeah, that's why he puts him on the judgment seat and says, "Make your judgments." And Nicholas basically is has meltdown, <laughs> like he doesn't know, <laughs> doesn't know what to do. Well, you can't say you can't do that. Exactly, right. And this yeah, is—I yeah. thought John's point—that was a great point by John to connect that to Eyes Wide Shut too, because that's what that's what happens to uh, Tom Cruise's character, Bill Harford, is that he he goes through this whole ritual process. Everything is his situation has been organized, all of it. All the way back to the very beginning party, at least, and uh, you know they're in that final scene at the, the ritual or whatever, and he's like, uh, or when he's talking to Ziegler, and he's like, "You're," he says, "You don't know what you're dealing with, Bill. These these are not people you want to mess with. <laughs> like, uh-huh. In other words, you're not at the top of the food chain. You you don't you don't know what you think you know. <laughs> you don't even know where the where the food chain is. Exactly." Yeah, like your paradigm of reference for this is not even close. Yeah, so he gets put through the wood chipper, through the ringer, for, <laughs> for real. Yeah, it'll just just run ragged. And but about interest, and I'm not saying that I'm not advocating this. But what I'm saying is that the elitist's perspective in both stories is that. I don't want to say their actions are justified, but what, what I'm saying is that it, it, it's in, I think it's intended to give the impression that Tom Cruise's character and Nicholas in the book condemn themselves out of their own mouths, I think is the point of it. Uh-huh. Right, because what they bought into is... And then what they experience what the experience is an outworking of the very the lies that they that they willingly bought into That's right and uh yeah that is something that uh i i've, I've kind of i've tried to express uh, it's been a while back uh, it was the concept of government exper- government government conspiracy and how if you are of a particular worldview, uh, which is, you know, I think people subscribe to maybe unconsciously even, it's that's it's the concept of okay, you recognize authority, you recognize authority, and you don't feel that it is. Uh, of a necessity to have the authority adhere to the same rules and laws and procedures that they enforce on others. <laughs> yeah, right. right. So you, you'll have these apologists for, you know, police abuse or whatever it happens to be. Or So, I mean, so you've separated, at least in your mind, you've separated the concept of authority from, you know, this concept of law as if, you know, there's the law representing not necessarily codified laws we understand it what you'll have to be subjected to when you go to court but somehow what it what it lends itself to is some sort of abstraction of of this um, objective uh, set of standards that are allegedly being adhered to when you go undergo this process but see you have people that um, and I think it's a pretty from what I can ascertain, it's a pretty large 
segment of the population that buys into this idea that, oh, well, if you're designated as an authority, then that lends you certain um, immunities from this thing called law. So, you know, we can accept that, oh, well, yeah, judges don't don't have to, uh, you know, be subject to the same uh, penalties that an average person would because, well, they're a judge. And it's like, well, no, absolutely not. You would, you would say, well, even if you were to logically confront this, you would say, well, no, they, they would have to suffer a greater penalty since they are in the position that they're in, right? So if you they violate the law, then they should naturally be subject to, if, if anything, a greater penalty than the average person would because they're supposed to be a representative of that. But see, no, people don't accept, they accept the, uh, you know, the police and the judges and stuff can get away with more than the average person and they and they are comfortable with that. So what you're doing is you're, is you're instilling an authority without accountability, without um, it, adherence to this abstraction called the law. And so that's what you end up with. You end up with, okay, so you recognize this human being as an authority over you for no other reason that they're designated as this authority and that it has really no any kind of basis on anything that's logical or reasonable. Uh so then what you end up with is the is this um, uh, another sort of abstraction that is independent from any objective standard at all. You see what I'm saying? And, yeah, and, yeah. and thereby government conspiracies are impossible because uh, the people who are designated as authorities in the system are above the law by your consent to it, you know, I mean, not not that any of us necessarily consent to, you know, because yeah. we're we're being, you know, uh, subject to this by, you know, force and the force continuum and 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 the the threat of jail and the threat of, you know, but w- w- that being said, there's still people that take it much further to where they're like they'll accept uh, a degree of corruption, accept a degree of, you know. The, the judges and authorities skirting the law to a large degree, right, right in, right in front of everybody's faces, you know. So, so for them, government exper- uh, government conspiracy isn't possible because that would necess- necessitate that the law applies to everybody equally, when clearly it doesn't. So, yeah, you can't break a law if it doesn't apply to you. So you can't conspire because cons- the the word conspiracy. In, in, in infers that there's laws being broken and there, there's wrong being done. But if, if you equate legal and lawful with moral and righteous and just, then, you know, and then you you don't apply the law to the authorities in power, then government conspiracy is not possible. It reminds me of the story, and I don't know if it's true, but you, you read in books and, and people talk about the Islamic... A sect of the Hashashim and the assassins, and then supposedly you get recruited into the group that the guy tells you, "Oh yeah, come with me," and then he he gets you all stoned, and then he would take you into this like secret garden, and he would uh, let you uh, sleep with a bunch of hotties, and then <clears throat> when you come out of your your drug trip. You're back in your bed or something at home. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if this is true, but it's a good analogy. And and the uh, sultan or whoever it is would come to you and he'd say, uh, "Yes, my son, you see, 
uh, I took you in a vision to uh, you know paradise where you saw the virgins that you'll get in the garden and uh, you're back in your bodily state now come fight for me and you know we will kill the infidel or whatever and then so you find out as you grow in the ranks of the Hashashim sect or whatever you get up to the top and then the sultan uh, leans over to you one day and he says guess what uh, the real secret is uh, everything is permitted and nothing is forbidden <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. what oh, oh yeah that uh, that was uh, not a vision I actually took you to my sex garden and uh, you were just stoned <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Now, that's probably not true. That's probably all exaggerated. Uh, but uh, it's a good analogy for what you're saying, right? I mean, so it's like everyone buys into the assumption that, oh, uh, there's skyscrapers here, and there's these banks, and there's these big, pretty government buildings with Romanesque architecture and uh, Greek columns, and wow, it looks imposing, right? <laughs> This is uh, this is a rational system. Otherwise, there wouldn't be these columns and windows and buildings everywhere, right? Skyscrapers. Uh, and then you find out, oh, actually, this is not rational. It's a completely <laughs> a big con. It's a, the whole thing's running on drug money, vice money, mobs, cartels, uh, uh, flash trade, banking scams. Uh, you know, it's, it's all it's all not true. And yeah, so. You either face up to the real, uh, or you believe the fantasy. You know what I mean? Well, the thing about that too is, if you had a meritorious hierarchy, like you know, allegedly some cultures had in the past, or maybe still do today, or I, I, I don't know, but I what stuff I could read about and look at and maybe is suggestive of that you know like you know I mean, if you like look at maybe some of the american indian cultures in the uh pre invasion you know f- world here in the in this continent and all that uh you know you don't need imposing structures and imposing buildings and uh to create this perception of of power and prestige and all that you would you, you, the merit would be uh on, on its face, true, and you, you you wouldn't have to put all the energies and the expenditures into those opposing stru- uh, imposing structures and facades. Yes. So uh, actually, the facades itself is proof of its illegitimacy. Actually, if you look at it correctly, that's a great point. Yeah. Well, well if, if the meritocracy is true, then how come there's all these scumbags at the top? <laughs> so. Right. I mean, but then, too, it's like the same thing with scientism and the scientific community, so-called. It's, okay, where is your evidence of its legitimacy? You claim that it is, and you believe that it is, but where, what evidence have you seen that it is, it is not uh, illegitimate? Like, there's plenty of evidence out there to suggest that it's not. So even if you want to disregard, like, um, oh, let's say the the expelled documentary, some of those just you cast that aside and say, well, that was that was a prejudice, that was that was a you know an unfair uh, assessment of the academic community. Let's let's just say that it is for the sake of argument. Okay, so but then still, what evidence do you have that establishes is legitimate in the first place? And that that's the th- that that holds true with 
the government authorities, academic authorities in general, not just in specific arenas of you know biology or what have you, uh, or anything else for that matter. What, I mean, what what evidence do you have that establishes its legitimacy to begin with? Yeah, it, I'm reminded of that guy. Usually, you know, like the bestseller list is kind of a joke, and it's not going to be. It's going to be like Oprah reading list or something. <laughs> not something you should waste your time on. But I have gained a lot of insight from that Robert Green dude who does. He did that big. Uh, you see a lot of corporate types read it. He did that book called Seduction, and it's it's these big old fat books of you know 500 pages of different chapters on the art of seduction. Uh, he's got one that I just picked up, uh, The 48 Laws of Power. And yeah, I know it sounds cheeseball, but it's actually insightful because what he does is he, he he references all these historical examples, you know, presuming that they're true. But uh, So what he, he gives you kind of the perspective of how a mindset that is just interested in power would function. Right, so it's it's kind of a pragmatic. It's kind of like how would Maurice Conchise be thinking as he's interacting with uh, Nicholas? How would uh, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski be approaching the world or Kissinger or something like that? And it's very insightful because he talks about like it's not so much the power that you have, but the projection of power. Like that's more important than the actual power that you have, and so yes. that's important in understanding the things like military strategy or, or, or psyops and warfare or whatever. It's like that section of uh, that I've mentioned with you guys before that series, The Americans, where when the Soviet spies get all these documents from this uh, general who's uh, actually giving them uh, false flag. <laughs> it's a it's a disinformation he's passing on. And the Soviets get all this bad info, uh, part of which is correct, but they don't know which because some of it's not. So they get all these documents. Part of it's accurate because it's talking about like the internet and stuff. And uh, then they get these documents about this like super weapon. <laughs> uh huh. And those so this in the storyline, right? So the Soviets are supposedly trying to figure out what is this crazy ass weapon? How does this thing work? And then the, they find out later. They meet back with the. Uh, Traitor general, or whatever, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I was forced to give you those by the Office of Naval Intelligence. So we don't have that weapon. That's just some crazy sci-fi thing we dreamed, dreamt up." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but we had you so Soviets over there, like wondering, you know, what the heck is this uh, like super gun or whatever? How does it work? Can we build one? I don't know, man. It's crazy. But um, so you know, it's it's that kind of stuff, like. And then that's uh, it's again you know it's insightful for kind of trying to get a picture of you know what's what's Kenner Kissinger thinking when he gets up from breakfast right <laughs> after after he consumes his dead baby corpse that he's eating or whatever right? when he when he wipes the dead baby off of his mouth what's he thinking about uh, you know it's a so baby, uh, he's got these laws and things like that, like projecting power is more important than the actual power that you have. You know, theatrics is important. Never outshine your master that you learn from. Uh, don't trust your friends. Learn how to use your enemies. Uh, always say less than is necessary. Don't reveal your intentions. Uh, uh, always be in the limelight. Um, 
yet uh, retain an air of mystery, pose as a friend, work as a spy, crush all enemies totally. It's like Machiavelli type stuff, but it's kind mm-hmm. of updated. But uh, insightful nonetheless. Well, yeah, that's how I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that's how the people in the at the top or whatever you know I, I don't see them necessarily as at the top I see them in whatever perceived power that they have I think it's that that the entire system in its entirety is 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 uh, that is that is the illusion is the these yeah. constructs that are you know and even somebody that has uh, wealth and power so to speak I mean what exactly does that mean in reality well i mean you can only let's say you own you know 15 private jets you can only fly on one at a time you're <laughs> you're still a human being and you still have the limits that uh i would or any you know you do or anybody else these people that purport you know to be so all powerful uh, i think unless, where their true you... power lies is in this creation of myths exactly that's what that's what conscious does yes Exactly, and I sent you an audio uh, that I picked up somewhere. I think it was I was reading something, and then um, it, it led to something else. And there was like a, 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 an excerpt from a television series, and I, I wasn't able to watch that particular episode of that of that TV series. I couldn't find it online to watch. So, but it was they it, it gave a synopsis of it, and it was a piece of dialogue that was between the characters in this in the show. And it was just really interesting what the guy was saying, but the plot of this episode of this television show had to deal with this uh, this author who was writing these stories, and the stories were impacting on the other characters in the film. So they like he would write something, or he would come up something in his imagination, and he and when he put it on paper, it would work itself out in real life. And then oh, yeah, the dialogue consisted of him talking about the power of myths or the power of stories and how that it would make him it would made him into a uh, sort of a god yeah there's a Will, <coughs> Will Ferrell independent movie uh, that has that plot um, there's also an X-Files episode of that as well but uh, in the, the movie's called Stranger Than Fiction I think and uh, Will, Will Ferrell is this writer and the, half the movie is kind of him in the real world and then he's, he's writing and then it's like what he's writing is coming true and then so as the writer you know he's kind of sort of becoming this godlike character so it's it's, it's demonstrating that, that point you're talking about uh, that, that's also I've mentioned this too the film uh, Hugo the Mark Scorsese movie that's Ben Kingsley is playing a director and he's one of these old school like 1910 20 era Hollywood directors back in the early days and he's playing this god character. He's a magus. He's a magician. And because he can direct a film that then causes people to think it's reality, uh, he's taking on that godlike status, right? So even if it's not real, if everybody's believing and operating like it's real, then that's really mad, quote unquote, magic, right? Movie magic. That was, uh, it's achieved its intended effect. And then it's totally dependent upon um, the mark, you know, or the... The willing acceptance of, right. of the mark, right? It's the exact same uh, principle in the movie The Prestige, the Christopher Nolan film that uh, that I've 
done analysis of and talked about quite a bit. Have you seen that? Right, yeah, I've talked about it before. Um, okay. Because I, I, I noticed, yeah, there was a lot of stuff in that film that was uh, that I thought was pretty profound as far as kind of understanding some of this stuff. And uh, I think one of the things that was communicated in that in that film that was a, a pretty important point was that um, people's suspension of uh, of a belief. When they're confronted with something like a a, a, a magic trick or something, mm-hmm. and they they just they don't have any kind of insight into the links that the magician will go mm-hmm. in order to create the illusion, and that's something that you know, was was something that was known to the magicians, and they talked about amongst themselves. Yeah, and but for the average person it, it had no concept of that like trade secrets <laughs> right trade secrets and then one of the things was the the old man and the fishbowl trick i thought yeah. that was like probably one of the most poignant scenes in that whole film where they're having that dialogue about okay how does he do this it's like this guy's half crippled it's like he said he says like watching we're watching him get into this carriage and he's having to have his assistance help him into the carriage he says you're watching you're watching his magic trick right now so that that's whole that's his whole uh disability is put on he said that that's they said that he's living the character yeah he's living the character how he pulls it off and that's inconceivable to most people so that that's and then but that was paralleled later as you find out later in the film how the one character yeah, so Christian yeah. Bale tells uh, Hugh Jackman, he says, the way this dude's doing it is that he's living the character. And Hugh Jackman's like, you know, oh, I don't, there's no way. I, nobody would go to that length. And then, yeah, exactly. So what the, the reason Hugh Jackman gets duped ultimately is that <laughs> yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't know. realize that Christian Bale has a twin and they're willing to go to that length. Yeah, yeah, that was the, that was, that's how he had insight into the whole, whole thing with the. There's some great, uh, insights in other movies along these lines that deal with con men that that point out these kinds of things uh, you know he, insights into human nature uh, well I, mean, I guess you could go all the way back to even like Shakespeare for for that kind of stuff you know insights into human nature in, in, in theater but uh, there's a good a, I thought it was a good film a, a comedy that came out uh, some years ago with Adrian Brody Rachel Weiss and uh Mark Ruffalo called Brothers Bloom and it's a whole you know comedic satirical approach to yeah I saw that to the role of con men I thought it had quite a few insights and also some curious parallels to another film about stagecraft and con men that Mark Ruffalo was in uh, Now You See Me about the stage magicians who uh, stage different large scale events and bank heists and so forth uh, that I thought was very, very insightful too. So I, I did an analysis or analysis of, well, not Brothers Bloom, but of uh, Now You See Me. Oh, but can you send me that? Yeah, and you can even go back to, uh, is it Planes, Trains, and Automobiles? That's a pretty funny, that's a remake, but it's a pretty good comedy with Michael Caine and uh, Steve Martin from the 80s, you know, where they're, where they're con men. And yet, you get a lot of uh, a lot of the same insights, you know, portrayed in that film as well. 
Yeah, I, had, I think I've seen that one. But no, 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 I'm done. sorry. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, that's it. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is the Michael Caine and Steve Martin comedy. The Plains, Trains, and Automobiles is uh, Steve Martin and John Candy. But uh, Have you seen The Usual Suspects? Believe it or not, that's I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't. <laughs> yeah, you need to watch that one, too. I know, I do, I know. That one is... Uh, Forgetting it, but uh, is it along the same lines, right? If it's the same one I'm thinking of, I'm pretty sure it is. Is, is it got Kevin Spacey in it? Yeah, and, and it's like the lineup of Brooks. Yeah. You're trying to figure out which one it was. Yeah, that 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 one has... I uh, won't give the ending away, but it, it's it's got a it's got the... Surprise ending, and it's it, it's a lot of along that lines. Yeah, the whole revelation of the method type thing. There's a lot of interesting dialogue in it, and uh, it's a pretty good movie. It's pretty watchable. Yeah, it's, yeah. It reminds me too. I had some notes of a couple of things I wanted to mention to you. I don't, can we still talk? Or do you need to go? Or oh, I can still talk. Okay, so I, I saw two good movies this weekend. Uh, yeah, well, too too good, one bad, but <clears throat> excuse me. So the Martian, right? <laughs> oh, did you see that? I did, right? Because I thought, okay, well, this might have something worth worth writing about. And I don't know what Ridley Scott's problem, but like he quit making good movies a long time ago. So I have not liked any Ridley Scott movies in a long time. Blade Runner, of course, likes one of you know one of the best movies ever, but. What is wrong with you, Ridley Scott? Like, you just keep making these dumb movies. Now, so there's this great article that came out in Breitbart, of all places. Ridley Scott confirms NASA-timed Mars water find to boost Matt Damon Martian movie. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So he came out with it, huh? Wow. Yes. Right? And uh, so I sent you that article, and it's it's got the statements in here. Now, and again, I've bitched for a long time about NASA, how ridiculous it is, because every fucking week, month, you name it, there's a new, quote, find of life on Mars, and it's not. It never is. It's just bullshit. And Yeah, they've been doing that for a while. I know, and, and you guys have pointed that out many times as well. There it's is just, life confirmed. They had a picture of a... They had a CGI picture of a mountain and water or something, right? No, and the squirrel. There's squirrel in the Oh, the squirrels are on the right there. Mojave, Mojave Desert Squirrel. Yeah, it just happens to look just like this, you know, Mojave Desert Squirrel. around. He's hanging out with the bipedal beavers. <laughs> <laughs> but, what, but what's interesting is that this shows you that, okay, so what you think is this, what people think is this scientific uh, exploration of, Mars, will we find water? Will we find life? Is actually there to promote a movie. Yeah. NASA is Hollywood. That's what I'm getting at. Now, I know you guys know that, but uh, this points directly to that, right? And I think we, you guys have talked about it, or we've talked about it, or I can't But uh, so James Cameron is going to film this crap, right? He was originally slated to. He was going to film the Martian. No, no, no! He was going to film the Mars mission. <laughs> oh, right, yeah, yeah. James Cameron. I know how absurd. But <laughs> no, he's a camera tech now, man. <laughs> they they need him to operate a camera. Fucking seriously. Right, and so yeah, they so they just NASA just happens to have that facility in out in Mojave Desert where they test 
the Martian atmosphere and yeah right now so you're watching this movie right with with Matt Damon you're not going to believe how we're doing actually you, you will I'm, I don't I'm almost tempted to say I'm not kidding you that this movie is intended to be a joke showing you how ridiculous it is that what you think about the space program is true it's kind of an in your face revelation of the I think it is an in your face joke really because uh, I'm not kidding you so Matt Damon gets stranded on Mars uh-huh. and he he his little home base dome facility thing gets messed up right so what he does he takes plastic tarp and he duct tapes it <laughs> right and so he's stuck on Mars for like a year and so he's living there and he's broadcasting he's recording himself and he's kind of going nuts or whatever and, uh, and so he he uses like uh, bungee cord I'm not kidding bungee cord and duct tape to uh, patch up the door that gets blown out to his <laughs> to this little dump facility so then uh, he's, it's freezing cold and he doesn't have any food to eat so he takes the astronaut poop that uh-huh. the, all the other astronauts had in the, in the uh, dispensed into the facility systems and he grows potatoes <laughs> Oh, I thought you were going to say he creates a primordial stew and he terraforms Mars. And uh, we might as well be that. It, it he becomes grows potatoes. He grows potatoes in his uh, duct tape uh, uh, greenhouse that he builds. Then he he drives. <laughs> it gets crazy. So he drives across the planet because he's got to meet meet up with everybody at this other rendezvous point or whatever. And there's like an old uh, '90s pod that is there right so it's all still this which actually the 90 space pods of NASA are really the same pods from the 60s so nothing has advanced <laughs> since the 60s right oh really well no but I'm so I'm saying like in real life you know the the technology that NASA presents as what's going on out there right uh-huh is like these these space pods and technology that they were using back in the sixties. Well, you know the Soyuz rockets; they, <laughs> they admit is from the sixties. The what? The Soyuz rocket, the one that shuttles people, personnel up to the ISS. <laughs> there, okay, there you go. <laughs> Which is actually just underwater, right? Yeah, the, the, or the ISS is like, oh, oh, there just happens to be this model of it, uh, you know, where it's underwater. Yeah, the exact scale. Simulation yeah. model in the in a swimming giant swimming pool that a giant pool yeah okay so so Matt Damon gets to the other side of Mars drives across it by heating himself with a, a, an old nuke that was laying around are you serious because it's freezing on Mars so they so they know so they say so Where then did he, he find just, an old nuke uh we was just there <laughs> laying around <laughs> yeah Arnold Schwarzenegger left it there on the, <laughs> the last uh, no uh, uh, Bruce Willis uh, from uh, <laughs> Armageddon, they dropped it uh, oh, when, yeah. when they were f- flying on that, that uh, meteor or whatever. It fell out of their spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> so he grows taters on Mars. He, he lives on tater tots for a year. Oh. So then he gets to the other side. I'm not joking you. And the, with you, the, they decide that the space pod that he's going to rocket out of the Martian atmosphere on is too heavy. 
so they take all the windows out of it and they take the nose cone off because the nose cone is too heavy and he puts a tarp over it. what I'm not, yes he puts a tarp over the top of it like a freaking sailboat tarp <laughs> and he, he rockets out of the Mars atmosphere to meet with Jessica Chastain and the crew who left him behind who used Earth as a slingshot to to rocket back to Mars, right? Oh, man. Uh, which takes, I guess, a year journey. Uh, and then so Matt Damon's flying... No, this is the best part. You're going to love this. So he's left the Martian atmosphere. The tarp falls off, by the way, because of all the wind. Martian atmosphere. So then he's just kind of floating around in his spacesuit inside this, this capsule... And they can't figure out how to get him to the spaceship from his capsule. So Matt Damon says, let me poke a hole <laughs> in my suit and the air, no, the, man. the air pressure will propel me to the spaceship. Uh, which, by the way, so I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, okay, how is air pressure supposed to be happening in a vacuum? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I haven't done this test, but I'm just sitting here thinking common sense. It doesn't seem to me like air pressure would propel you in a vacuum, right? Uh, is that I don't? Is that maybe I'm wrong? Well, that's the whole thing about rockets. Do rockets even work in a vacuum? Combustion and, uh, in a vacuum, exactly. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so he pokes a hole in his hand in his spacesuit, and it's like. <laughs> You know, like the air is like pushing him away, right? To, oh my god! To the spaceship. It's so dumb, right? Now, anyway, so he gets back to Earth, and I, I got just got the impression that throughout this, it's almost like this is kind of Capricorn One, right? Uh huh. I mean, yeah, it's Capricorn One's about Mars too, right? But it's wink, wink, the moon, right? And this is about Mars too, but. Uh, wink, wink. This is kind of telling you, hey, look, this shit is retarded. <laughs> like the, the the way that it's presented and how we're told that all this went down is just completely retarded. It just it, they just give you one silly scenario after the other. Yes, sort of a mocking of the. A mocking of the masses. Yeah, I, I get. And, and, and what's what, the reason? It kind of is annoying. Is that the Martian was presented as if it's all about science, right? So yeah, the point of the movie is that the only reason Matt Damon survives a year on Mars with no food and growing taters is because he's a botanist and he knows science, and that's brought up numerous times in the dialogue of the film. Science, science, science solves science problems, solves the problems. Uh, so that's how he lived, right? And but actually, I believe it's a joke, and it's saying, "Ha ha, you think you believe science? You believe scientism? You're an idiot! You fell for this dumb movie." Because the movie's presented like it's scientific. It really is. It's presented like, "Oh, we want to give the most realistic uh, scenario how it would go down if Matt Damon was stranded on Mars." Right? Have you heard this expression? Have you heard this term? Comp- Competence porn. <laughs> no, but I like it. Yeah, look at look at that. the Martian co- competence porn. That would great. That's how I'm going to have to title my article. I have to give you credit yeah. for that. Because well, I am going to do it because it's just too funny. This this thing is like 
it's like a joke version of Capricorn One that's way over the top. Well, I'll get a pick up a pick up a bundle of uh, Harbor Freight tarps, some uh, duct tape, <laughs> some bungee cord and duct tape. Well, no, no, I take that. MacGyver, back. he's like MacGyver, dude. No, no, regular duct tape's not going to work in the, those extreme conditions. You're probably going to need to upgrade to like that gorilla tape or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it has no way regular duct. I'll need the, I won't just need. I'll need more than just the bun, bungee cords. I'll need like the, the the straps that you like use a jack to like you know. Yeah, well, of course, NASA's going to have all the. Oh, yeah, the best bungee cords. Super good bungee cords and super good <laughs> duct tape. <laughs> oh, man. Probably got some good tarps laying around, too. Yeah, they're real good. Yeah, they're, gonna, they're not going to monkey around with no <laughs> harbor free tarps. So that, that was ridiculous. No, like, yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah, in your face, just mocking people that believe in scientism. Yeah, I can totally see that. I, yeah, if it's on uh, if it's on a pirate bay yet, I'll check it out. But it, it, it that that uh, you're gonna be laughing. Uh, you're gonna be it's you're gonna be like, <laughs> you know, holy shit. Oh, I was laughing at the preview. I was like, yeah, you gotta you gotta be kidding me. But you no, know, it's he, what does he say? I, I'm gonna I'm stuck on Mars or something, and I'm gonna I, science the shit out of this. Science the shit out of it. It's like okay, I it, I. Uh, yeah, I totally can see that being just a total just mockery of it. Because, really, people, you know, you, I've had enough. I've had enough discussions with these people that, like, you know, that that. Uh, well, I just give you one example, a recent one where I, I do the where I did the analysis of the whole moon laser thing with the MythBusters and their. Oh yeah, yeah, their yeah. Same. I followed all that intently, right? Yeah, ultimate proof that we were on the moon and the ulti- they said ultimate proof because we can now bounce a laser off the moon which they were clearly implying that, that such a thing is not possible without a reflector which um, other stuff whether it's true or not it contradicts it you know other official things that saying oh we are bouncing off the laser off the moon in the 60s yeah we can bounce radio signals off the moon and everything else um, and so some guys coming back on there telling me that uh, oh well um, yeah, you're an absolute moron. Of course, they got to lead in with that, and then ad hominem attacks and all that. And then you know, here's a link that proves conclusively, yeah, we went we went to the moon, and you're an idiot if you don't believe this. And then okay, I said, okay, I'll buy it. Let's watch this. Okay, it's three minutes. Okay, I'll look at it. So it's some it's a, it's some bimbo, and she's like on there talking about. Oh, here's footage of the moon buggy, and then it's it's kicking up a rooster tail, and some scientists somewhere did some calculations on the rooster tail and how it flies and it falls back to the ground, and they conclusively proved that that that's impossible to simulate with Earth's gravity. Yeah, and I'm like, okay, so yeah, that, that tells you a lot. It's like, well, all that people need is some reference to some scientific study somewhere that states that it's conclusively debunked that it's not it's like that that's that's all you need you just need a reference to something that you haven't you haven't checked out for yourself or you don't know anything about what they're talking about the parabolic arc and all that bullshit right but in my news feed i see within two or three weeks scientific studies that are completely contradictory so what am i supposed to do how do i ferret this out mr scientism 
Right, but... I mean, literally, literally. It's like black holes confirmed, uh, New York study says. And then literally a week later, two weeks later, black holes completely not not, <laughs> not exist. Confirmed. Right, yeah. sides of the study. We're completely wrong, yeah. Uh, DNA is 98... We're 98% identical to chimps. And then the next article you go read is, yeah, we don't know what 98% of the DNA even does. Mm-hmm. So how do you reconcile those things? I don't know how you can reconcile those things. They say, oh, well, they sequence, they sequence the gene, and the sequences come out the same. It's like, well, of course you're going to find some similarities. I mean, if you just look at a human and a chimpanzee, there's certain striking morphological similarities, right? I mean, that's not <laughs> that's not contested. So why would you expect a totally... Uh, a totally different DNA sequence altogether. You wouldn't expect that. Why would you expect that? Why would anybody expect that? Right? I mean... Yeah. This whole subject, though, of NASA has really annoyed me for a long time, like I said, since high school, because it's obviously... And I'm not saying that... Oh, I'm not saying that NASA's covering up for aliens. I don't think that at all. Uh, I really think it's it's like a Hollywood front, you know what I mean? Like they, I think they decided a long time ago. I think rockets are real and satellites are real. <clears throat> uh, I don't know what the situation with the moon is. I think all those videos that are presented uh, are fake, quite clearly. Uh, do I know if anyone can go through the Van Allen radiation belt? Well, I see these NASA people saying two different things, so I don't. I don't. I basically just don't believe anything NASA says. So, you know, and I have a like I said, I've had a buddy who uh, contracted for NASA for a while as an aerospace engineer. So I know, I mean, he was like really doing stuff and designing shit. You know, it wasn't that wasn't fake, uh, but clearly, I mean, there's just so it's just so much bullshit around NASA. It's like, what the fuck is that? Yeah, I mean. It, it, it on one level it's like a Hollywood set, but there's some real things that they do, like they they do some rocket stuff, right? Uh, but but now it's like we're presented as if it's all the same rockets from the '60s. I mean, come on. Yeah, and then uh, I have on my blog I I posted up. It had nothing related with the conspiracy, nothing related to anything about whether or not we went to the moon. It's just some guy, he's given a tour of a Atlas rocket, defunct, because uh, people are buying these or converting the houses and stuff like that, right? So he's given a tour, he's saying, oh, we got this and we got that. Here's here's your, you know, if you purchase this property, you're going to have this 20-ton steel door that, you know, is extra secure and all that, you know, kind of a house... That they're balloon housing, yeah. And then he goes into like, oh yeah, Atlas rocket was a balloon. I was like, what the? What did he just say? And he's like, yeah, it's a balloon, and it it doesn't retain its shape until it's full of gas. And I was like, holy crap! So I, these damn I, things are balloons. This was mentioned in a uh, a movie recently too. Uh, I forget where it was, but I was watching something, and it was after I saw your clip, and I watched that thing you're talking about that you put up, uh, and you mentioned it on one of your talks. I was watching some other thing, and they were like, "Oh yeah, we got to uh, fill that up with all the uh, helium." <laughs> yeah, I was, and I, I was like, "Holy crap, that's what uh, Chris was talking about." Yeah, so. I didn't know that. I mean, I 
I ran across something that somebody was suggesting that in, in a in a NASA debunking thing, and he was just saying, "Yeah, it's it's a it's a helium balloon." I said, "Dude, I mean, what are you what are you basing this on?" It's like, okay, that's interesting though. And then I I don't know how I ended up running across that. I, I think I was just looking at the the missile silo thing. I, was, I just thought it was interesting. I was looking at, it and that guy just launches into that. And say, "Oh yeah, they're balloons." I was like, "What?" You know, but uh, if you've got, but here's a question, and I, you know, again, I I don't know about aerospace engineering, or anything, so this is like not my field. But okay, if you've got a stealth bomber that can fly around and do all this crazy stuff, why do you? Well, can you not just fly a stealth bomber up there? I mean, why do you need this uh, like big balloony rocket thing to carry the shuttle up? I don't understand that. Yeah, because the idea is that you have to have all this tremendous power to overcome Earth's gravity and to get free of Earth's gravity, right? The multi-stage rocket. That oh, is that what it is? So, like, a, be- a beat uh, of stealth bomber can't, do, like, fly? I thought they could, like, fly super fucking fast or something. But So they can't get enough momentum or whatever. I mean, I'm, I don't know. I'm just saying. So just to kind of just fire itself out of the atmosphere, get enough speed going that it can just... Yeah. Uh, turn itself up and then just break out of the atmosphere. Well, I I don't think I don't think rockets work in space. I, I really don't. I don't. I don't uh, well, they, yeah, right. I agree, but it seems like what, what they seem to do is kind of like you know uh, they get discarded. Like they just you know they fall off when they reach a certain if this if all that's true. Like they reach a certain level and then like that's dropped off and then you got your shuttle, but then the obvious question then is well what's propelling the shuttle you get these pictures these images of like fire blasting out of the back of the shuttle (laughs) the exhaust or whatever it's like yeah well if if wind propulsion is not going to work in a vacuum how what's what is the what is the fire the the force pushing against well, that's the that's the thing, right? And I mean, I've seen okay, there's people that are doing their own little experiments, and then they take a balloon, for instance, and put it on a string, and then uh, tape a piece of paper behind it. And I said, well, that's not really a good uh, because you're you have two opposing forces, so you still have the 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 force of the air pushing on the paper, so that's a counter. So you're you're canceling each other out. So that's not really a representation of fact. Mm-hmm. But I but I thought would one thing that was a really good demonstration is where they take like a little uh, plastic car that's got a balloon on it and it's got a straw like a like a drinking straw sticking out, and then you air up the balloon and then as it's as it's you know pushing the air out of the, through the straw it propels the little car along you know and it says okay yeah that that's that's an example of a it's sort of a sort of a rocket the principle is there right so you. The only difference is it's just scaled down, and you're using air instead of, you know, some ignited gas or something. The principle is the same. Take a vacuum cleaner with like a shop vac or something, and and stick the hose up to where the the air is coming out. So that would, you know, because you're representing a vacuum, right? So, mm-hmm. so you're you're sucking the air into the vacuum at, at, at the same time that it's coming out of the nozzle there, and and the damn thing doesn't move. You know, it's like, okay, so if it doesn't work there, how is it going to work in space? Because the vacuum of space is going to suck it all the, suck all the 
air out instantaneously. Well, instantaneously. Yeah, there, there's nothing to push against. I mean, you know, the whole idea of wind propulsion is that you're you're pushing against, you know, air molecules, even though they're they're small and, and disparate. You're still pushing against that. Well, what NASA would tell you in some of those instructional videos is that uh, that they put out there that's supposed to tell you how the science of rockets work this it, that it's it's pushing off of itself like the molecules push off the inside of the chamber as they're exiting out of the uh mm-hmm. the rocket and that is on the same sort of principle like if you were to put on ice skates and get on an ice ice ring and then you 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 take an object or something and you um throw it you'll go in the reverse direction of the you know, equal and opposite reactions. You know, so that's what they're saying. The principle of the rockets work on. It's like, well, I, I you know, I recognize that that's you know that that's there's there's some validity in that where there's there is that you know th- those that equal and opposite reaction that that uh, I, I I don't know the technical word for it, but you know, it's like okay, but the the question is 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 that a strong enough force to move you around in 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 a vacuum? And that, and this is all assuming that there is such a thing as outer space, which I don't even know. Well, or that it is a vacuum. Like, how does? I mean, you can go high up on a mountain, or if you're like high up in a plane or something, and you can tell that you know there's less oxygen. But you know, does that mean that like there's a vacuum? (laughs) I don't know. I haven't been to outer space, right? Right. Yeah. Like, how do we know there's such a thing as outer space? Except for you know, or, or another good question I think is. Okay, how expensive is a rocket? Well, I mean, you could go buy your own rocket, and you could, without too much outlay of cash, and you can get it pretty darn high up in the sky, man. You know, like just the stuff you can buy off the shelf. So, what what's what's stopping like a a private company from uh, sending something far not, far out enough into space to like you know get some real good images of the earth or exactly. whatever they want right. to do like why why aren't why isn't that just a regularly occurring thing in the in the year 2015 like, yeah where's our live feed from the from the from the space station yeah why haven't they sent a, a, a unmanned probe up there like they said they were doing in the 60s the soviets yes. they said they did it and they said we we've done it and they're saying the japanese are doing it and they said there's a lunar reconnaissance orbiter that nasa something sent up there is like okay why don't you affix a decent camera to the thing like you're supposedly doing with mars you send it all the way to frig to mars you know it's like yeah, land it on the moon and point it toward the Earth and have like a real time feed of the Earth. That would be phenomenal, right? Well, I think if you, yeah, and this is obviously speculative, but you know, if you look at the, you know, they have to have advanced craft since the stealth bomber. And that can't be the latest. That's like from the sixties. That can't be the latest. I mean, I guess it could be, but. But surely people, you know, have been in, interested in <laughs> investing in ways to, uh, you know, explore beyond beyond what was the uh, supposed 60s NASA technology and rockets and Apollo shuttles or whatever. So my suspicion is that, <clears throat> like, I remember one night, and, you know, this is obviously just my personal testimony. I don't believe in UFOs and the sense of aliens or anything, but... Uh, I did one night a few years ago. I was out 
and we have a base near here. Uh, was driving through a kind of a nature preserve area, which is not far from the base. And I did see a completely silent drone one night, uh, and it it flew right over, probably a few hundred feet over where I was parked out at this this nature preserve. Uh, it wasn't a hot helicopter. It was not an airplane. <clears throat> it was some kind of a, a like high tech drone that that uh, they were flying out at night or something. Uh, but it was very, it was completely uh, completely silent. Uh, it made absolutely no sound. But obviously, it was human made. It had like blinking lights and shit on it. Uh-huh. Uh, very wide though. Like obviously, it wasn't a private uh, guy flying his little radio control thing or something. So it was it was about as wide as like two or three cars. And uh, you know, it flew, and then it just kind of it kind of shot up really quick. <clears throat> so, and I don't. This is I, I hate it when people tell their bullshit UFO stories. That's not what this is. I promise you. Yeah, I've heard a couple uh, of good UFO stories. Uh huh. I've heard a couple of good UFO stories. Are you joking? Like they're bullshit, or you mean like potentially a real like advanced? Thing? No, just people that have a, a couple of people that have told me just what they saw and and yeah. and the way and the context and, and and who they were and what they the way they told it to me. It's like I what I I, I don't. It's like they're not. I don't. I never got the impression they were bullshitting me. Yeah, so this thing went shot after it went over, uh, and it, it it flew like really really fast, and it took off pretty quick. <clears throat> and you and knew it was a drone. I feel sure it was. I mean, yeah. I don't know for certain what it was. It didn't look like it was a, a thing that could house a, a dude. Uh-huh. Uh, like it, it, if if a person was in that, it would have been like <laughs> really cramped and shitty. Uh-huh. But. Uh, uh, and I had a, a buddy at the time who was, uh, he'd been in the National Guard, so he'd been to some of the local bases, and he, he said, yeah, well, actually, they are testing out some really advanced drones that can, like, take take off without <clears throat> a runway. They can take straight off, and then they can kind of, like, zip around and stuff. I don't know how they do it, but but so I, I, I feel like that's what I saw. Like, they were just kind of out flying some drones at, at night, and, and then these things can go pretty fast and they're really quiet and they do hover so you know how they do it i don't know but um so i'm guessing like why would you could you not what you know why aren't they flying that shit around maybe they are you know what i mean like what uh i don't know i'm just speculating like it seems like that's what you know that is what i think the ufo phenomenon is it's just advanced technology that uh, we just don't know about but uh, oh yeah i yeah, that's that's my take on it too. I, the there's, I mean, there's just been too many people that have seen stuff that doesn't have any read, read doesn't lend itself to any kind of uh, explanation. That you know, okay, well, but, but here's the thing: it's like, oh, so is that that so you got to conclude that that's you know, Space Brothers coming down? No way. No, like why why would you unless you're conditioned to draw that conclusion? Yeah, why, why is the space probe putting a blinking red light just like an airplane has on it? Yeah, of it, right? so they don't so they don't collide with the so they don't collide. With the, uh, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you know what? I I used to live me, me and my, my wife and I before we were married. Um, we used to live in the town of Whittier, California, 
and Whittier, California, like all of the planes that are going to land at LAX, they all like sit in position. Um, they all sit in position, like waiting to land, right? So yeah, sometimes like we would sit. Up, huh? Yeah, they'll just yeah they sit sit out there. You know, how many miles? That twenty miles out, and um, they'll just you know sit there and get wait to get called in. Well, me and my wife would sit out in the on the back porch some nights, and we just watch, uh, you know, watch the stars. And there, there were quote unquote shooting stars every night. We we would look, at, we would you know see something, and we'd look at each other, and we go, "You see that?" Like, and and uh, obviously I don't believe they were shooting stars happening every single night there was you know obviously stuff going on and this was at you could tell it was at altitude way way above where the planes were yeah yeah right and you would just see little you would just see little lights just zipping across the sky I've now, seen once too, again, yeah. it's, it's, it's not a satellite it's, it's something I don't know why but yeah yeah, and it would it would happen. I'm, I'm telling you, every night because you know we didn't watch TV. We just go out on the back porch and sit out there. Yeah, and yeah, it, it would just be little little lights just zipping around up there. And um, like I said, I, I or like you guys said, I don't. I never bought the whole alien nonsense. I used to watch X Files back in high school. And I used to have debates with this friend of mine, which I, I wish I kept in contact with that guy. He probably actually knew, like, some... He probably actually knows some pretty cool stuff now. Um, because he was hip to a lot of, a lot of like, New World Order stuff, like, back when we were in high school, but I didn't know about that stuff. I just used to say... I just used to tell him, I'm all, no, that's, there's no aliens. I'm all, you know, you, I think UFOs are real, but I don't think aliens are real. And uh, that was one of, without even having the knowledge of like what we're, you know, what you guys are discussing or what we, Chris and I have discussed in the past, that always made sense to me. Like, all, okay, you saw that in a movie. That's why you think aliens fly flying saucers. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I kind of think, I've kind of been thinking that science fiction is kind of, as a whole, a psyop. Because you go back to H.G. Wells, and he's, you know, big-time Fabian Society talking about creating, you know, the global government and all that openly in numerous books, open conspiracy and all that, uh, New World Order, right? Um, it's almost like science fiction was drummed up to just kind of be the new mythos, you know? Like, I mean, Scientology is just an example of that, of a sci-fi space opera created religion, but really scientism and science fiction are the same thing. It's not yeah, that's, that's a good that's a good point too, because you know, um I think one of the things that I always use as, as an analogy is cultural wallpaper. And like you have these things that are kind of wallpapered into the background of culture, into the background of your mind. And um Science fiction is definitely a cultural wallpaper because it's it's such a great re it's it's been such a great reinforcement tool. It's like a you know Chris Chris has hit me to so many things that I I never knew about that are just little little 
things that I'm like, wow, I, I never even knew about that thing. One of those things is a great moon hoax, right? Right. right. And, but then you also think about at that same time, you know, not, uh, not too far before that, you had Jules Verne. Yes. Right? Yeah. And, and um, what's that uh, popular Martian uh, uh, John Carter series? That's right. Yeah, John Carter series. So, so people were right, uh, you know, they were right for the picking. Uh, to be psyoped into thinking, oh, there's the man in the moon, and you know, uh, there's uh, bipedal beavers on the moon. Um. <laughs> what if the Royal? What if the Royal Society? I'm just tossing this out there. What if the Royal Society concocted science fiction to be the new mythos, and meanwhile also suppress? Like big scale metaphysical and physical truths. I'm I'm very much open to that. I don't know yeah. about I don't know about flat Earth. It's, something's not right about that. But I do think that definitely there's a lot of weird things about the physics that don't match up to what we're told in our mainstream, mainline academic public brainwashing. You know. But uh, so there's all, kinds, there's all kinds of anomalies about all that that, that, that just don't work. They don't make sense. And so maybe they concocted a plan, and again, to speculate, a plan to give everybody a completely synthetic overlay because they know human psychology, and, and science fiction would be a big part of that. Uh, and so that's kind of how we're all sort of uh, stuck in this low level of understanding about shit that's... Well, I'll, I'll even I'll even go one further with you on that. You know when when you know like like Isaac Asimov wrote you know uh, like the Foundation and, and yeah. um, I've read Foundation. I, yeah, I Robot and uh, all the rest of that. Okay, so you you read a lot of these guys who get into tech, right? Like a lot of the older the older guys and they and I can see this definitely happening where 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 you're already um, you're already filled up with this fantasy the sci-fi but when somebody starts telling you like like hey we can make this into a reality okay uh, I, I know you've read iRobot but see we can make robots right the same, I mean, I know, I know the robot predates iRobot, but I think what happened with, like, iRobot and, um, uh, what's the, uh, other, what's the other one? Oh, it conditions people to accept you as the god. So if you can say, if you discover these secrets, and so in Asimov's Foundation series, he, it's Google. It's a predictive algorithm that tracks mass movements. If you can put that... Right. <clears throat> And he's more or less talking about the internet. If you can put that into your, you know, 40s and 50s science fiction novels, and then when it comes along, uh, the populace says, "Oh wow, As Asimov, our new prophet, he knew this back in the 50s and 60s." 
Well, I think the tech. I think the tech guys, like the guys who are like involved in the making of it, um, they get all infatuated with 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 the sci-fi, and that's kind of what gets them into it too. You see what I'm saying? It's like it's like yeah. as Asimov. Like we're we're bringing Asimov's vision into reality, and I I know there was robots before I robots, but what I was what I was gonna say is like that's kind of the book where it kind of gets down to like okay, this sounds pretty realistic. It's, this isn't the robot from Metropolis or the you know Lost in Space or whatever, right? It's not rose. It's not Rosie from the Jetsons. Uh, you know this is this is like real deal stuff, and then you also have. Um, you also have these court like I mean I have I have stacks of of like science fiction paperbacks from the 50s, 60s, 70s and some I mean a lot of them I haven't even read it's just I, I went to a garage sale one time and they were selling them all for like five bucks like a hundred of them or something right so anyways I was looking through a lot of these and and a lot of them you know the the titles and the the cover art and everything. You know, like uh, just ones I can think of off off of the top of my head are uh, like the Man Machine, and it has all these like humans being made inside of these uh, pods. And and so there's all of these uh, things that were coming out in those sci-fi books that whether they're actual whether they're actually real or not. They were they were planning on projecting that out as as real, but they had to do it through science fiction first, right? To kind of to kind of get used to the idea. And it's funny because you brought up the Royal Society, and and um, this corresponds with Darwinism and eugenics, oh yeah, and all of that as all of that as well. Because it's like you said, it's an overlay of. Of uh, and a suppression of of real you know metaphysical science and that type of stuff. I, I I do agree with that, and and when you start getting into all of these uh, things, you start seeing a lot of these things like like lining up with each other. Like there might even be people there's there's people out there who have no idea what you you know like what uh, I've I've heard you talk about this on your Plato talk. They don't know what negative eugenics is. I, I just use this, the term eugenics because I don't really believe in uh, breeding science. But, um, well, but, well, so, certainly, so certainly you would agree, though, and I, I did hear your, your comments on that, but certainly you would agree that you can um, produce different offspring. It was done with, uh, like, carrots and stuff, right? Like, you can tailor offspring to have certain traits through breeding. Right. The only... The only problem is is that because because creation is so random it's not guaranteed it's like if i it's like my daughter right well it may not be guaranteed but it's that you can have you can have general principles that that seem to apply even if you have anomalies right so in other words if you want to have a good looking fit mate i mean that's what being well-bred and well-born is and that's just the ideology of most humans prior to even prior to Malthus or any of those people that tried to make it into a scientific process, that's how most cultures oh. operate. Right. Okay. On that point, on that point, which I heard you talk about on your Plato talk, mm -hmm. here's the here's the here's the only problem with that: the people who run 
who are the eugenicists are not good looking and they're not smart. <laughs> well, now wait a minute. So, you're right that that uh, the Huxleys are kind of ugly, sure, and that that when you when they're started to inbreed and all that, that it produced all these problems. There's no question there. But uh, have you looked at a lot of the royalty? The that are pretty fucking hot. <laughs> the chicks. I mean, okay. I know. I know. But see, here's the but but. Two, two, two really attractive people usually produce attractive children. Yeah, but then there's the problem of inbreeding, though. That's the thing. No, no, and no, I, I think, I, I think, that. so, so, so let's say, um, Cleopatra was allegedly smoking hot, right? Mm hmm. But she's obviously from an inbred line. And then you have a point in where, you know, like, say, the, the Windsors, the Saxe Coburg Gothas, uh, by the time the 1800s rolled around, and even carrying over into today, where, I mean, they're all horse faced, they all look like a bunch of freaks of nature. Well, yeah, um, okay, so I'll admit that. So, but, but the, the, the thing is, though, is that when you try to, the general principle of two fit members of a species coming together to produce uh, a fitter uh, offspring, I think, is just obviously true in nature. But when you take the scientific approach and say that, oh well, then that that means that there's actually not a problem with incest, and we should uh, you know intermarry with our sisters or cousins or something, that uh, you know yeah that, that even nature itself tells you that's wrong because it produces well, a, well, well see that, that's why I that's why I, I I think you and I both agree but but the term eugenics like like eugenics technically comes from Galton right I, uh, I know it's in the Greek uh, I, I know it's in Plato right what's that it's it well it's a Greek word right yeah it's it's from I, I know it's from the Greek but he like kind of coined that in the modern sense right Right, but it's like John was uh, or Chris was saying earlier about breeding, right? Like people knew how to breed carrots, knew, people knew how to breed things in a certain way. Uh, animals, uh, farmers, prior to Darwin or, or even prior to Malthus, right? So it had nothing to do with the the scientific uh, adaptation of the, of the British uh, Royal Society. Right, but when Plato talks about uh, you know the eugenics that he that he's talking about in um, in the Republic, right? Yes. That that is that's don't don't you don't you think that's borderline like uh, social science? Oh, it totally is. And I was trying to argue that in the in the piece that that's the the beginnings of the idea that the state can can uh, should control the population. Okay, so if eugenics is is social science is the state controlling breeding um then you choosing the most fit mate for you is not the same thing well okay the word means as i understand it just means uh, good genes good genes racial hygiene right so however you want to however you want to parcel that out what if you believe in race or not uh lineage good lineage with being well bred right so aristotle for example has several uh, treatises where he talks about w what is it to be virtuous and well-bred so right. 
he's talking about <clears throat> eugenics, but he's not talking about what Aristotle is discussing in, in his section on politics and virtues. He's not talking about uh, the state controlling breeding. He's saying if you are a member of a family, and you know, obviously back then marriages tended to, to more often be arranged than they were situations of like courtly love, which comes out of like the Middle Ages and late Middle Ages. If you're, you know, your dad, you're going to choose a, a good uh, mate for your daughter. Uh, your daughter, obviously, her some of her desires would play into that most likely, right? So the choices would be made for the mate uh, to produce more well-bred people. And I mean, I, I just think that's a, a general principle of tribes and cultures throughout history. It's not an invention of Malthus. What is an invention of Malthus is borrowed from Plato, where the because the Republic is an ideal city based on reason it's it is the bertrand russell kind of uh scientistic uh situation so i you know i'm i'm just i i'm trying to be what i see perceived to be as honest with the position so do what are the what do the nazis do well the nazis said that it's a scientistic control but it's with the germanic peoples they're the the ultimate peoples right uh, obviously i don't think that's true uh, the British uh, aided that idea. They put the money behind Hitler. Uh, they've had their own different experiments to the Royal Society, to, and they're the ones who fostered Darwinism. So I, I do think, though, that there is such a thing as race. I do think that there's such a thing as being well-bred and, and uh, passing on a good lineage. Uh, I'd be prepared to defend that thesis if anyone disagrees. That does not mean that I buy, buy into the extremes of uh, racialism or uh, racialist ideologies, but I do think they're real things. Uh, well, what about? Um, yes, I think I think race is a. I mean, obviously, obviously there are uh, specific. I, I, I when I think about race, I tend tend to think about it in the ultimate sense of like there was. Uh, there's a probability that there was only originally these certain types and then down through history uh, because when people try to say oh I'm a white I'm a black I'm this that or the other thing I mean uh, 100 years ago the black people in Africa were saying that blacks on the other side of the river were a different race from them yeah, right? yeah I'm, I'm, so, right, I'm aware of the, the it's not hard and fast I understand that right yeah, so so race changes definition all throughout history as well. But it's like um, today, you see, that's that's the and, and like like I was saying, um, I I think we generally agree on the same stuff. It's like um, well, let me put it this way: so well, if, if, there, if there's negative. Oh, I was saying. Real quick, let me just say this real quick. If there's negative eugenics, if there's negative eugenics happening, right? Dar Darwinistic or social Darwinism, mm -hmm. then you have a people who are purposely being dumbed down or being purposely put into a situation where epigenetics uh, can foster a lower class. Dysgenics. I think that is possible scientifically. What weaponized dis dysgenics, I believe, yeah. Right. So then if the person who is then um, uh, you know, you uh, the weaponized uh, dis, you know, uh, dysgenics is now fostering uh, uh, is now scientifically fostering a class of people whose uh, 
epigenetics are you know switched off to make them uh, you know um, more dumbed down or more slave like or more uh, passive or whatever it may be, right? Mm-hmm. Then real eugenics, in the sense of, in, in the sense of of um, like this type of ultimate person, it's it, it cannot technically exist because it, it's not left up to random chance. But see, the 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 pushers of the idea of eugenics. They'll they'll uh, they'll never talk about that. They'll they'll make it seem like oh yeah it's random it's you know and everything is random right. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like a, it's like a it's like a rigged chessboard. Well, let me put it this way. So, like, if I as as a personal choice, you know, if I want to. Yeah, I, I, I like white girls, and that's my preference. Uh, you know, I'm just not into, generally speaking, I mean, yeah, there are some pretty girls, you know, other races or whatever, but it's just not my taste. You know, I, I've always liked white chicks, and <clears throat> I don't feel bad about that, right? And I don't think that I should should feel bad about that. I think it's ridiculous if somebody, but then there are, there's all kinds, you hear this in, um, this is now being, you know, kind of portrayed in, popular media that if you are actually preferring your own race then you're some sort of bigot or you're like a Nazi or whatever which is just preposterous. I mean it's just ridiculous. So I'm not going to feel bad for my tastes and preferences and obviously I'm not saying that like you have to there's no feasible way that you can like enforce Jim Crow laws or something like that that's that's not going to work. But what I'm saying is that you can't tell people that they can't have their preferences, but that is exactly what the so-called progressive left actually does. They do try to turn things around to where even if you're heterosexual, right, then you, you've got bigot problems. And so, oh, my gosh, if you actually are heterosexual and prefer white girls, well, you know, call the, uh, here's the SS. The, the SS is here. You're a Nazi. Where's the, you know. That's just retarded. That's just insane. I mean, because that's how most humans have operated throughout history. Is that, like, you know, they prefer, generally speaking, people who who are like them. And I just don't think it. You see that in nature, like to like. So I don't see any. I don't feel any guilt. I don't feel bad. I don't see any problem with, with that. And if some social justice warrior tells me that I'm a bigot because I I like females of my own, you know, type of person. Uh, it's just what I like, so you know what I mean. So I, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to expand this into like an idealistic situation of constructing the ideal republic or uh, some pure racial scenario. This is not real. It's not realistic in the world. Uh, but right. I, I think, I think there's been multi. I mean, I think there's been multiculturalism since the beginning of time. Right. And I realize that multiculturalism is a hijacked term. And it's and multiculturalism is weaponized, but what it what it is is like anything that's weaponized, um, culturally speaking. The and I'm not I'm not implying that you're saying this by the way. I'm just making a statement sure. uh, separate from what from what you said. You see, the what because cultures may be weaponized against another culture does not mean that the culture itself that has been weaponized was necessarily bad. Mm-hmm. So it's like when they bring, you know, like uh, my wife's Mexican, my daughter's obviously a half breed, 
Mm-hmm. And um, I've always liked Mexican women. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always found them attractive. That doesn't necessarily mean that I wasn't a victim of some form of weaponized culture. You know, I, I, I factor that in. Like, like hey, maybe I was um, exposed to a particular type of culture for some form of weaponization, right? To, you know, but but at the same time, you can also factor in, like, well, geographically, I, you know, live in a state where everybody's Mexican for the most part and always has been. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the people who who were uh, white here, they, you know, they came from the East. So it's, it's, um, so I, I, you know, like, like I was saying, I'm trying to, I try to look at it from all angles, but like a a lot of things get pushed and and don't, not explained. It's like, it's like you could say like, like, you know, the illegal aliens are stealing everything from, you know, from you and they're, uh, they're a big tax burden on you and everything else like that and and then uh, there, there's not if, if you listen to uh, you know general conservative mainline talk radio it, it's basically uh, Mexican bashing all day long mm-hmm. and and the culture of Mexico isn't necessarily any more any worse than, than the United States is lack of culture right yeah no I'm not I'm no fan of Americanism by any means I agree yeah so 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 what what they'll do is and I've actually heard guys do this I've, I've actually heard them do this well where they will talk about like they'll say they'll say like like do you do you want chickens running around in your front yard do you want people dumping laundry soap in the in the gutter and, and you know like like pointing out cultural things, like do you want corn growing in your front yard? Right? There's actually this black guy out here. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to remember his name. His name's Terry something. He has a he has a radio show, like a local radio show, and uh, like his whole thing is is how the blacks are being displaced by all of the uh, all the brown people out in L.A. Right, which is true. That is happening. Yep. But his radio show centers around, uh, it's funny because, like, I'm listening to all the things that he, that he hates about all the Mexicans. I'm thinking, like, dude, that's just actually kind of cool. Like, he's like saying, like, do you want, do you want corn and vegetables growing on your front lawn? I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah. Well, my view on that is, uh, Patrick and I had a a good, I thought, uh, conversation about this, uh, few weeks back on the Sunday Wire where we were discussing the Virginia shooting. We got into the, the issue of uh, immigration and immigration. And this is a false dialectic because what's going on is that neither side of this are correct because the globalists quite openly and clearly, I've, I've uh, cited this article many times in the BBC, but the EU guy, was Peter Sutherland, says that migration, immigration must be used to destroy existing homogenous cultures. Uh, I recognize that that's a loose term, homogenous existing cultures. I understand that. But regardless, uh, from the perspective of the EU bureaucrat types, they do see it, populations as a weapon, and it's a way to change demographics and uh, shift things, just like the French Revolution or any other thing like that, to a more uh, hospitable situation for globalism. 
That said, it's also not true that uh, there's some sort of great American culture that the migrant population is going to destroy. America is kind of pretty much a deception anyway. So both sides of that are false. The, the idea of ISIS invading Mexico that certain talk show hosts make stories up about and promote, as I'm sure you know who I'm talking about, that's not true. There's no ISIS compound in Mexico. It's complete bullshit. It's a fake story. Uh, yet the alternative media runs with this to make the Tea Party patriotards think that ISIS is crossing the border. Complete. That, that was uh, that was. Uh, are you referring to? No, uh, you're thinking of. Um, I'm not saying that you're, what you're saying is not true. What I'm saying is, uh, I was actually talking to Chris about this not too long ago. What, what, what the hell was it? Was that 2005? Like uh, Al Qaeda's got nukes. Well, there was a World Net Daily article that I pointed out. That, yeah, World Net Daily, yeah, yeah that's, that's right, that's right. Yeah. I'd have had nukes, but there's a, another news organization that has run the story last year that ISIS has a compound in Mexico. Completely fake. Not true. This was going around alternative media within the last eight months. So No, back, back when Al-Qaeda was the, was, was the big deal back in 2004, 2005, mm-hmm. um, Al-Qaeda was sneaking across the border disguised as Mexican illegal aliens. Remember that one? And that got rehashed last year with another alternative media source. <laughs> exactly. Chris, and so that's Chris you, need be, you need to be scared. You need to be scared there in Oklahoma. Remember I told you. Remember, yeah, the, remember I told you. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, ISIS has nukes. <laughs> That that WellNet Daily story, by the way, says that the way they were going to set it off was like uh, an old '80s alarm clock. It's like an old LCD uh, faced alarm clock. Uh, some wires. <laughs> Whoa! I just got that in the mail earlier. <laughs> hey, hey bo- both of you guys, I've got this. Um, I've got this. Uh, I, I was I was just at, at a place right now, and um, I I snagged one of their magazines off of of, of the uh, in the lobby. This is an August 2014 issue of Scientific American magazine. Okay. Not only is it filled with some amazing articles and use amazing in quotation marks, but here is an ad. I thought you guys would get a kick out of this, and you probably should have. Take down this phone number so you can uh, maybe maybe Chris might want to make a phone call to these guys. Okay. The Freedom from Religion Foundation. Okay. Yeah, the okay. Freedom from Freedom from Religion Foundation. Jerry Coyne, founder, author of Why Evolution Is True, professor of ecology and evolution at the University of Chicago, SF. FFRF uh, director. Here's here's uh, Mr. Coyne's quote: "In religion, faith is a virtue. In science, faith is a vice." Yeah. <laughs> just repeat and, the and mantra a, from from the Enlightenment on. Just keep repeating the mantra. Oh, faith is a vice, but it's a vice that they stick their head in and clamp down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. This, this guy looks. He looks like a Neanderthal. He might, he might be a Neanderthal. <laughs> Keely. He does. I'm not, I'm, I'm not joking. Yeah, Glenn Keeley's right. He he looks 
like in the undertow. And then at the top of the ad, in big, bold letters, it says, In Reason We Trust. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> hey, the, the irony, too, the, the, uh, I, did, I wanted to say real quick that the Muslim population is like nil, right? Of the U.S., at least, right? There's like point some percent, right? So the whole mythology of the Tea Party patriotard type ideology is uh, completely fictitious. And that's what they try to sell is the, the idea of the invading Islamic terrorists and ISIS and all this stuff. So that's just so what that, I that's, that's, that's That's one of the things that, that originally started to turn me off to Patriot Radio because you would get this schizophrenic analysis mm-hmm. where it's like Al-Qaeda is not real, but there's real Al Qaeda, and they're coming to get you yes. at the same time. Right. And I was, and I started to notice that, and I was like, "Oh, wait a minute! I thought I don't have to be. I thought I don't have to be scared of Al Qaeda, but yet at the same time, I got to be scared of Al Qaeda." Mm-hmm. And so there was that schizophrenic analysis, along with a plethora of other stuff that I just started to notice, and and you know, going what? And, and it was the same thing with. Uh, with the illegal alien stuff, it's like um, it's weaponized. Like like I was saying, cultures are just weaponized and and uh, pushed up against each other so that friction is caused. Yes, but but I, I will say this. I I will say this. I I think most the majority. I'm not saying that all of it, but the majority because I I've been. Um, racially discriminated against being a delivery driver in Los Angeles. Uh, basically, uh, you cannot be a, you cannot be anything but Mexican and, and work in a kitchen in Los Angeles. Even the Chinese food restaurants are staffed with Mexicans. Well, that's how it is here, too. Yeah. And, and, and if, if, even if you're, like, from Honduras, I mean, if you're from Honduras or someplace like that, you don't even bother trying to get a job in a kitchen. Because the Mexicans hate people from Honduras and El Salvador and all that, but um, but so for the most part, as much as the media hypes up how everybody hates each other, I don't totally see that on the street. All the you know, as much as it's hyped. Like I said, I've had instances of that in my life, but for the most part, everybody just leaves everybody else alone, and then the yeah. media. And the alternative media to make it seem yeah. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminds me of uh, Chris is uh, talking about the Wild West. <laughs> I was laughing at that, uh-huh. and uh, I was actually I was working on my Chris impersonation. Oh, got here, got if you call her enters, we got here. I was thinking about Wild West. I don't know if I believe in any of that. <laughs> so you, you're gonna go down down to the general store, right? And uh, you might as well get ready to blow a couple dudes away, get your sack of flour or whatever. You freaking sack sack of flour, you're gonna kill a few dudes. I don't believe <laughs> but that was making me laugh as a great it's a good example of that too like you know you get the impression like oh it's like a Mexico is just a war zone constantly and 
Oh, the Wild West was nothing but dudes having shootouts and six six slingers, slingers, gunslingers everywhere. Yeah, just a regular recurring thing. And I, you know, I lived in Cal- I lived in San Diego, and you know there were bad areas, but uh, you know I, we never got like attacked or anything where I lived. I only probably got in about five or six shootouts when I, the whole time I lived out there. <laughs> <laughs> Usually, it was, like my, my Chris, it was my Chris impersonation on point, and they work on it. Oh, it was <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> it's an all. It's, uh, it's it's a compliment, Chris. I'm not dissing. No, that's fine. Uh, no, that's a that's a that's a uh, if you got somebody impersonating you, that's 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 a good sign that you're somewhere. I don't know where, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, I, like like I was I was saying on that call that that, that there's a great book out there it's put up, put out by the University of Oklahoma Press, and it's called The Gunfighter, uh, Man or Miss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was dying laughing though. You talk about uh, you take, go grab a sack of flour, but you know you're going to have to take out a couple dudes to get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they're waiting for you to get your hands full, so you can't get your pistol out. <laughs> yeah, every day you got to. The do daily that. war zone, right? No, that's ridiculous. I mean. But that's what we're told, right? That's because oh, there there was not enough law, you know, not enough law back then. Yeah, right. Well, well, not but, enough um, laws on the you know, yeah, and 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 I I think uh, we flushed that out pretty good. How that's kind of your um, that reinforces the idea that you don't want to go back to anarchy or anything like that ever. But at the same time, too, if if you go watch um, what was that movie we talked about before, Chris? Uh, Empire of Their Own. The you know the Jews in the Hollywood movie. Oh yeah, wasn't uh, that Hollywood like uh, is a Hollywoodism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a, it's like an A and E series. It's it's not like a you know a conspiracy movie. It's like a and it was like a like an A and E series, right? Uh-huh. And um, and so it's got these people, and they're talking about how how um in the westerns. The westerns are the like they they were talk they're talking about and there's something about how like there's you know Jewish mysticism and legend all mixed into American cultural movies that Americans identified as culture and the idea of the black and the white you know like the um, like uh, the good black, the good and the classic is the, yeah yeah and all all of the legend all of the uh, and, and that's what that's what they're going over there. They're all, yeah, these are all classic uh, Jewish folk tales, and we just put you know them into these stories of westerns and uh, other other things. But we've infused American culture, and what they were basically saying in that movie was that uh, yeah, all of, all of the culture that America believes that they were getting from their films is actually this uh, arcane uh, religious mysticism. <laughs> that's that's interesting. That. There was I I, I have a I, I was listening to a talk uh, Thomas Sheridan did and I don't I'm not advocating uh, some of his stuff's good some of it I, I don't agree with things got a little, little out there but uh, he did have a good analysis of the history of Hollywood where he was talking about how there was kind of these phases of like early early Hollywood was very wasp and white and then there was like a, 
Catholic kind of phase a little bit, and then there was kind of like the takeover, like a Jewish kind of transition, which uh, I thought that was an interesting analysis. Well, well, there, there's an interesting part about that movie, and, and Chris and I discussed this when we talked about that movie. It is, and even Alan Watt brought it, brought it up too, which uh, I, I thought that was pretty cool. That I was like, I was like, okay, somebody else noticed this. That the guys who started Hollywood were all Jewish guys from four different areas of Eastern Europe. And they all at the same time just decided to move up to the West Coast and start filming companies. <laughs> Not so, only they start film companies, but they just just dominate, you know, it's like, well, that just well, was, spontaneously I under, happens. I was under the impression that that it was kind of like a, a white wasp thing first, like early, early days. No, no, no. No, well, the first... The the first guys are like Adolf Zucker and um, Carl. Um, uh, what's the guy's name? Now, what about uh, Louis P? I thought that, Go ahead. like early on, like the early development of the camera, there was there was like kind of a Nazi period. Oh yeah, yeah. The, but see, that, that's that's not technically see, that, what you're saying. You talking no, about no, the no. Uh, that film? There was there's all these different ones, and they were like. Uh, Klu Klux Klan was yeah, like birth, of a birth, birth of a nation, yeah, and that, yeah, D W Griffith. D. But a lot of the early, a lot of the early directors are German, right? That's what I was getting. But, at. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, like Fritz Fritz Lang and Eric Vaughn, whatever his name is, the guy yeah, who's in some football art. Uh, D, uh, Marlene Dietrich, you know, they were like the the first uh, kind of big film stars. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's all true. But see, there's there's a and this is where uh, the white nationalists might get mad, is there was actual collaboration between those Nazi German types, the uh, people, and they actually were affiliated with the Nazis later, um, and and the, you know, the Jewish directors. So it, well, it, there, yeah. there was no... Go, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I could see that because uh, reportedly... Uh, Mark Hacker, he knows a good bit about it, said, was confirming that I'd heard from Richard Grove, that, which I didn't know this, but uh, apparently Reinhard Galen uh, trained the Mossad. <laughs> like early yeah. on. Like early on. Yeah, that, would make, that, that makes total sense to me. Any, anytime, anytime you look into any of this stuff, I really don't see any real opposition. Mm-hmm. At the top, so I, I don't, I don't really truly believe that all all of these these uh, secret societies and these people uh, really at the top battle each other. Maybe on low, on lower levels they do, like we've discussed. You know, I really do think that that there were communists and uh, other and American intelligence agencies battling each other, but yeah. not at the top. So it's the same with secret societies. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no. Well, Jens, I, I, I got some. I got some dinner waiting for me, so I, I'm gonna um, yeah. shove off. Hi, John. Well, I wanted to have I set the afternoon commute record is is uh, four hours and fifty minutes. What's the record? Can I can I top it? Uh, yeah. I don't know if we've we've exceeded the the record. <laughs> is John? Did he leave or? Not yet. I'll, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go right now. But yeah, you, 
You guys probably, if you went for like, like 20 more minutes, I think we'll do it. Uh oh. <laughs> what are we at? We're at four, four hours and 30 minutes. Okay. Yeah, I just need to go to the store sometime today, but... All right, well, I'll let you go then. That's that's cool. Well, I don't have to go now. I'm just saying that... Well, get get your six-shooter, get ready, because... <laughs> yeah, well, I already... I got them. I got, always got my gr- pistols greased and sitting at the door. When I walk out, I strap them on. It's Oklahoma, yeah. I mean... Head down to the general store and stop by the saloon. <laughs> <laughs> get me a sarsaparilla. <laughs> Sarsaparilla, some beef jerky, and then I head back to the house. Usually, you only know, like, you only have to get into uh, one, minute, one or two guns out. What's that again? Twenty minute horse ride. Yeah, twenty minute horse ride both ways. And uh, yeah, Chris, Chris is usually he's usually the uh, Pony Express guy in the town, but he put it off today so he could do the call. Yeah, well, that and then telegraph operator, but we we, yes, we do that shifts around here, so we don't have to like. He has to he has to ride he has to ride in the Oklahoma City just to pick up one letter and bring it back. I got a, a weird question just to see if you got have you guys ever looked at number stations and all that stuff. It's pretty interesting. You talking about the uh, short wave radio shit? Yeah, and how it ties into like uh, espionage and NS, rise to NSA and all that. Yeah, I've touched on that before. I haven't went extensively into it, but yeah, that that's interesting. Yeah. With what, the, short wave? Yeah, we talked about that, John, right? With uh, Oh, yeah. Short wave started by the CIA. Yeah, the CIA right, and all but that. Then, but then uh, I find the whole the whole idea of number stations really fascinating, too, because that, that would play into the rise of uh, like the NSA and, and cryptography and all that, and the, oh, yeah. the spies, you know, they really would listen to those stations and you know, like take down uh, their messages or whatever for the day. It's just, it's just neat stuff. Yeah, there's a guy on uh, this one music site that uh, I've uploaded some stuff to, and it's just kind of a co- collaborative, like a music site thing, where people put up their own music and all that and uh this guy had a he had some several songs that incorporated those uh broadcasts oh, and it's wow. really yeah it's, it's kind of yeah, some of it's really weird up. shit like the, you know playing like weird music and like, ch- children screaming or something <laughs> laughing yeah something. it's really strange and I, uh, I don't i don't know what the hell to make out of some of that stuff but uh yeah it's and then reading off of is some female voice reading off a bunch of numbers and shit? Yes, just, I don't exactly. Know. Yeah, fourteen, thirty-two, seventeen. Yeah, nine, there you go. Eight. Yeah, there's a movie that uh, obviously it's, it exaggerates things, but I think it's insightful. Uh, with John Cusack, came out a few years ago. He's a hitman, as always. Always been a hitman. Called Number Station. Um, it's dumb, but it's worth watching for that aspect to it because uh, British intelligence base is you know, sending out their their number codes every day. It goes back to World War II, oh, yeah. the Enigma machine and all that. Yeah, you know that Zachary Taylor guy, uh, John, that was on uh, Tim's call? If he if he, if he he listened to any of that, it, his fucking head would explode, probably. <laughs> Is that the guy with the nanobot, nanobot dude? No, he's a... Uh, everything is number, you know, numero- numerology and shit. You know, everything, like, is number, everything is numbers. 
His <laughs> brain would melt <laughs> his ears. The gematria. Um, there, you know, there's one more thing I want to mention real quick, and then I really got to go right now. Um, you brought up a good, uh, going back to your uh, full circle with your Black Dahlia uh, analysis. You mentioned uh, the quote from Sid Hudgens from um, uh, LA Confidential. Yeah. Also a uh, James Elroy novel. Mm-hmm. I think LA Confidential is an overlooked great movie that that uh, really does. Uh, if you watch it in a in a fashion, uh, I've never seen anybody else. Uh, recommend it in this in this way but that movie is is really one of the best uh examples of you know uh, an analogy of how the system works yes it is great and i agree, definitely agree with you la confidential is a better movie than the black dahlia for sure oh, oh. by far honestly la confidential is one of my top 10 movies of all time Oh wow! Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I love uh, both noir and neo noir, and, and I thought uh, I thought it was great. Absolutely. Yeah, and and it does a great job of showing you like you've got the the uh, cop who does everything by the book, then you got the yeah. cop who resorts to brute force, and then the yeah. uh, the higher ups play the two off of against each other, you know, yes. play them off against each other, and yeah. it's good. Yeah, Captain Dudley Smith. You can tell after watching that movie that he's fully aware of all that he's doing the entire movie. Yeah, and, and the whole theme of Hollywood being a complete facade. Right, and, and that that on you know that as well. And um, yeah, I could I could talk about I could talk about film uh, for hours on top of that. There's another film I wanted to bring up to you as well. It was. Um, it's a little bit different putting it in in a different context and that would be have you ever seen the movie In the Mood for Love by Wong Kar Wai Uh, I have not okay I would I would recommend you watching that film it's a it's a film made in uh, Hong Kong from like 2001 okay I'm making a note In the Mood for Love okay this uh you know, talking about uh, film analyzation, and um, this this is a film that might possibly be completely and totally unaware of itself as film. Hmm. It it's um it's it's a uh, it's a period piece that's supposed to be taking place uh, mostly in an apartment building in Hong Kong in the 1960s, mm-hmm. and like LA Confidential, it's like near period perfect in the in the uh, yeah uh, in the costuming and and uh, the, the makeup and the hairstyles and all that LA confidential really is pretty spot on right and uh, this this movie even even the film like the film that he's using is very uh, grainy um, yeah. and it really does uh, achieve um, like you're watching, like you're watching these conversations. It's just, it's just a movie about conversations between a man and a woman who are who are friends because their their husband and wife are cheating with each other's husband and wife. 
And so these two people, they're not romantically involved. They just become friends because their spouses are cheating on them with each other. And um, and so it's just these series of conversations that take place in these apartments. And um, and it's really, except for like, there, there's like this one montage where, uh, where, you know, like they're walking in the rain and there's music behind it. And so that's where the film becomes self-aware. But as, as far as... Uh, as far as the sequencing, I, I thought you would uh, get a kick out of that film. So yeah, definitely check yeah, that one out. We'll check that out. I've got some. Well, I'm gonna. I'm embarrassed to say I still haven't seen Unusual Suspects. Not not out of any reason. Just kind of fell through the cracks and uh, never got around to it. But uh, but yeah, man, I've been watching a lot of the Twilight Zone lately too. Kind of going back to that, and I noticed at the end of Twilight Zone, in the credits, it actually says "Made in." Tandem with uh, the Department of Defense. <laughs> really? Yep. Oh. It's in the credits at the end, and that's why the first episode uh, is uh, more or less M- MK Ultra. So you know, you, then in the pilot, you find out that the dude is in uh, sensory deprivation tank the whole time. It was all a big military experiment, and that theme comes up quite a bit oh, yeah. in the series. That's right. Yeah. You know, just an interesting tip that I noticed kind of reviewing it but, but uh, I did not know I didn't realize it was made with the consult- consultation of the DOD with that one episode or the whole series uh, we, I've seen it at the end of more than one I haven't, I haven't checked the credits of every episode but that would lead me to believe that uh, you know the Pentagon was very much involved in that show for sure oh, that's, oh, that's the first time I heard that that's interesting that they would have that actually in the credits. That's yeah. Next time I next episode I watch, I'll I'll take a screenshot of the credits for you. Wow. Is that on Netflix by any chance? I've heard that it is. I don't I don't have Netflix. I get tired of it. Yeah, I re-signed up for it. Uh, actually, I wanted to watch that uh, the dark uh, or Black, Black Mirror. Mirror. Black Mirror, yeah. And uh, so I said, oh, that's. It's the free month trial, so I said, "Well, yeah, I'll do that." And then, if I feel like canceling, I will. But I watch watch that uh, White Bear episode. That's the one that uh, I was really want you to see. Yeah, that one was really heavy duty. I oh, you did watch it where it was the, fake, the whole fake uh, suburb and all that. Yeah, that was wow. pretty tripped out. I I, I, I was. You didn't actually, we, like you said. Oh, I want to tell you this, and it's going to ruin it for you. It's like that. No, you, you didn't even really give me the you didn't give me the uh what you call it the the clincher or whatever but i was i was still take i was still taken by surprise when the whole thing kind of unfolded i was like wow that's pretty trippy it's a, it's a theme park where they bring people to learn justice justice theme park yeah and the whole thing with the uh well this is going to give it away anybody listening but well they had a anyway the whole memory wipe thing that was that was uh, yeah, and so that means that interesting. You know, you, you kind of don't even know if she really did. She might not have, you know, killed that that kid. It could yeah, have that's what I was thinking because you kind of pick up that impression when she's kind of going back into her memories, and then it's but the way they portray it in the show is 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 when she's recalling the little girl and all that. It's like this really chopped. Choppy, Choppy it's like kind TV of screen, yeah. 
like if you would have, like if they're representing some kind of implanted memory or something like that right, which is right which wasn't expressly stated but that was maybe can be inferred from that I don't know but it was yeah, it was really anyway it was and then then did you see the David Cameron pig story in the news right which completely mirrored the the pilot now did that come out after this show came Absolutely. out or? yeah black mirror came out uh, a year and a half ago that first uh, episode did and then they came out with this David Cameron story for yeah within reason. the last two weeks yep wow mm. that's that's interesting <laughs> yeah really come on uh, that's, yeah, that's British intelligence for you, right there. That's BBC, right there. So they, yeah, they're obviously. Well, that's what they say. Well, I don't. This is probably a very common thing. I mean, like with the. Uh, well, we've talked about this multiple times with the. Uh, the X Files spinoff that did this one episode oh, with yeah. the planes flying in the towers, the lone gunman, and the the what was his name? Chris Carter, the guy that. Mm-hmm did that series there's an interview out there somewhere where he's he's admitting to like consulting with CIA and all that yeah I remember when uh, I remember back listening to Alex a long time ago and he he had Dean Haglund who's the long haired uh, blonde dude from the Lone Gunman yeah and Dean Haglund says in that interview to Alex he says yeah the CIA would just come on scene and tell us what they wanted in the script yeah, I remember that interview, and he said some other stuff that was kind of interesting. Uh, yeah. he, he just like threw it out there, and I was like, "Wow, that's mm-hmm. uh, so it, indicating that." Oh yeah, you know, we do this, and oh yeah, it's no big whoop, you know. Well, Vivian Kubrick said that too in one of those Infowars interviews, where she said, uh, "Oh yeah, yeah, CIA would come and talk to Dad all the time about what what they wanted to see in the movies." <laughs> yeah, that's Stan, Stanley's daughter. Oh, did you see that uh, post that I put up there recently with a music video where they're it, it's uh, it, it, it's it, the theme of the movie. It's just a music video of some band, and it's uh, uh, the Moon Hoax is the theme. Oh, oh is it Rammstein? Uh, it's not Rammstein. It's uh, uh, some other band, uh, Imagine Dragons. Oh, okay. I've heard of the other, like a new popular kind of indie rock band. And, uh, but no, I missed that post. I'll check that out. There's also, I noticed this. I don't care for Red Hot Chili Peppers, but I was listening to the radio the other day and I never listened to the lyrics. But in that, um, Californication song, uh, Anthony Kiedis sings the lyrics that the moon is filmed in a Hollywood, ba- the moon landings are filmed in a Hollywood basement. Yeah, I was like, "Whoa!" I never noticed that. Like, and there's also that uh, the Rammstein song, uh, "We're All Living in America." You know, if you watch that video, you get the impression that that's about the the fake uh, moon landing too. Yeah, it's interesting how they put that together in that video too, because it's it, it, it depicts all the people from around the world and they're yes. sitting in front of television sets and they're watching the moon landing and yes. it's this kind of collective consciousness thing where uh, America's great because of the moon right Right, and then because that, that question comes up it's like well why go through such tremendous lengths to fake something like the moon 
going to the moon and all that. And uh, like, what what is that? What does that do, like culturally and uh, for perception management purposes and all that? Shape the minds of not just Americans, but yeah, world, worldwide. You know, like the yeah, it's it's a global thing, absolutely. Right of you know putting out there, you know, the, uh, American supremacy, American dominance, yes. and our and our total, uh, you know, our total. Um, preeminence as far as technology and being able to even go to the moon and just sort of this limitless power of technology and science and scientific progress and yes. like America is at the you know Fourth, forefront yeah. of it and we're the you know purveyors of all this and then you know NASA's everybody always had that that globalist flavor to it. Uh, I had I had this old T-shirt that I got I got it as a joke. It was founded at a thrift store. This old '80s NASA shirt, and it was uh, something like you know some some bullshit like one world, and it was like all the flags of the of the globe underneath like the NASA symbol. Right? Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. There so you know, that's kind of that's always been the impetus of NASA is that oh we're going to be uh, galactic, you know, it'll be like the Federation and Star Trek, right? Yeah, exactly. And then yeah, then those television series became popular, you know, right on the. Well, okay, exactly. you had 2001 Space Odyssey, and then you had the quote-unquote moon landings, and then stuff was it you guys that pointed out the William Shatner thing? I thought that was really wild too. Where he's, um, like what? It's, it's a it's like a DVD extra from uh, I don't know if I saw it just on YouTube or if you guys posted. I can't remember it was months ago, but this DVD extra thing where it's like him and Leonard Nimoy and uh, Bones or who, Jonathan Frakes and all these different people and he's sitting there and they're like tell us about the show and what what do you remember? He said, oh, I remember when uh, it was like NASA was there and the Air Force was there and we were starting the show and they took me up into one of the uh, uh, ships or shuttle or something. You, you can find the clip on YouTube and he says he says, I was blown away because I was sitting in this shuttle and, and they were projecting these images outside the ship and and it was like it was it was like I was in space, but I was in a in a in a, a big warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> and so somebody caught that and was like, Oh, holy shit. That yeah, was, and then they did a they uh his story goes they put they put together uh a the NASA scientists put together a model of the uh, Enterprise, the yes, Star Trek ship, it. and it, it said he said that you know he's watching it and it's like this, this simulator, but it's like very realistic. And then he's then he see then he sees the uh, Enterprise fly by, like that's what it, what he said. Yeah, so so you, yeah, you've seen that then. Okay, was that you guys that put that up? I I talked about it before. I don't, but I, you know, it's been a while though. It's been a while back. Well, it reminds me of going to Disneyland, and there, you know, there's all kinds of like stagecraft fakery there, and they have a ride called Mars Mission. <laughs> and uh, this is some years ago when I was, uh, I went there to some friends over the summer, and uh, I was like, let's go on the, the Mars Mission. That sounds weird. And you go in, you go in there, and it's like. What I got from this last time I was at Disneyland was that it's all 
Yeah, I, th- I mean, it's it's. A, I've got a few pieces critiquing Disneyland. We're you know, talking about it kind of as a big. It's actually a big Department of Defense, I think, like psyop thing, and it's all geared towards giving you this worldview, especially when you get on Epcot. So I'm go. You go through the Mars mission, and it you really do like feel these G's. It's it's nuts. You it, it, it feels like you're really going to space. I don't know what that feels like. You know what I mean? Uh, so you get off this thing, and you're super dizzy, and half the people who got off were puking in the hallway, literally. And um, so then we're walking out. We're like, where are we going? Let's go to Epcot. So you go to Epcot, and they've changed it since I was a kid being there. And you ride that thing, and you go through all this dumb stuff, and it's giving you a history of the human race. Oh, it's, really? Yeah, you're seeing these scenes, different stages of human history, I shit you not, this is what it ends with. So as you're coming to the climax of the ride, you've gone through the Egyptians and, you know, American history. You come to (laughs) this little animatronic dude in his garage, and it's a nerd, and (laughs) he's like Bill Gates. (laughs) Uh Imagine a little animatronic Bill Gates, you know, like moving, and he's he's building a computer in his garage. Uh Uh-huh. And then when you go past Bill Gates, you go into the Matrix, right? So that's the final frontier is, like, you driving off into the Matrix. I just thought it was this super creepy, man. I was like, oh, yeah, so here, here's the future is uh, Bill Gates is going to create, right, the whole summation of human history is Bill Gates creating a computer in his garage, and the next you're like Neo, you're going to go off into the Matrix. Wow. This is at Epcot, you said? This is how the Epcot is now, yeah. Holy shit! Because you ever been there? Epcot, no. Yeah, so it's it's that big golf ball thing, right? Yeah, that's in Florida, right? It is, and it's and it, but it's a ride. So you go up in that big golf ball, and it's a, you, it's not like a roller coaster. You just sit in this thing and you ride around, and it's telling you human history, <laughs> like uh, Idiocracy, where the it is on the time machine. It is, yeah, that. What the hell's up with Florida, man? They got that there. And Disneyland is its own constitution. It's like as weird as the sound. It's it's it it's got like its own laws. Oh, it's don't like, tell me that, man. I'm I'm serious. It's like it's like a, a nation state. It's like the Vatican and like DC. <laughs> I, just, oh, I shit you. I shit you not. <laughs> that is look, fucking wild, dude. Look it up, man. Disneyland is a. So I did a bunch of research on this a few years ago when I, when that weird movie came out. Uh, Escape from Tomorrow, which was... Oh, uh, yeah, i never seen yeah. that. But. Now, this was supposed to be filmed in Dis- Disneyland secretly. That's bullshit. There's, Disneyland is full of surveillance cameras, biometrics. You could not, in a million years, sneak into that place and film a fucking movie. That's just retarded. That's all PR. Right. So that makes me think Disney was behind that movie. And if you watch that movie, that is some weird shit, man. It is crazy. What is it called? Crazy enough. It's called Escape from Tomorrow. Okay. And so you watch this movie, and uh, it's just total mind control, literally. Right. So I mean, think whatever you want about MK Ultra. You know, we we've talked about that many times, and I think we're all pretty much on the same page. But uh, that's what this movie is about, like clearly, obviously. And if you watch it, you'll see what I mean. But. Uh, it's kind of a revelation completely of like what Disney is. That's kind of how I treated it in my analysis. But anyway, so you find out that 
uh, who's behind Epcot and all this stuff going on in Disney, and it's the Department of Defense and the Siemens Corporation. And if you go research the Siemens Corporation, that it's like it's it's just creepy, man. And and then you find out, oh, Disney has its own like laws, bylaws, and constitution. It's like a separate state. I'm not kidding. <laughs> that's the crazy shit I've heard in a while, and that's saying a lot. <laughs> right. I know, man. What, you yeah, know, what is the, what is the correct, what do they call that, believe. like, uh, a, like the, there's City of London, and then there's the Vatican, and then there's Washington, D.C. is another one, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's something, I, I said nation states, but I, that's not correct. It's it's, uh, it's a city, city states. State. City yeah. states. With its own constitution, you know, outside of the balance of the normal laws of that nation. So, like, the Lord Mayor is like, let's see, what, who's the so head like cat at Disneyland? Lord Goofy. <laughs> Goofy is the Lord Mayor. Goofy runs the shop. Goofy runs the shop here in the whole United States. Just, that's where you get. That's where you get to the ultimate. Maybe Washington D.C. isn't like isn't the real power structure. Maybe the Illuminati is really running shit from Disney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know, of course, it's, it's a costume, but it's just some guy that it's some fetish. He dresses up in the Goofy costume. Well, you, I just wait till you watch that movie, man. You're gonna be like, oh my, this is just it's just insane. I mean, and so the movie reveals that. Uh, Disney is a psyop. It reveals that it's run by the Siemens Corporation. The movie reveals that it's the Siemens Corporation. Uh, really? Department of Defense is uh, who installed all the, the biometrics at Disneyland. Uh, it's all globalism. That's the whole point of... Uh, well, there's Epcot, and then there's... It's like a whole bunch of parks. It's, it's just the weirdest thing ever, man. Like... Now they've in, uh, introduced uh, like adult theme parks for the adults, so you can like truck your kids off to Magic Kingdom, which is where the, the castle is and all that stuff. Uh huh. And then the adults can all go to like Party Island or whatever it is, like Fuck Island or something, right? For wow. The, right, yeah, nice. for adults, adult themed stuff. And then there's like a whole Harry Potter park that's its own thing. And then there's Epcot, which is its own thing. It's a whole other park. You like a whole day. Right? You can't see. One of these in a whole day. That's Disney World, right? Disney World. Yeah, whichever one's in Orlando. I <laughs> yeah, there's Disneyland and in, in uh, Anaheim. I, yeah. I, I've been to that one as a kid and all that, but yeah, yeah Disney. But it's World's really crazy to see as as an adult to get a pick. It's just mind blowing weirdness, man. It's just, it's crazy. So I looked up Siemens real quick, and it's a German multinational conglomerate. Headed in Berlin and Munich, and they've largest, had a bunch of scandals too. Yeah. Largest engineering company in Europe. So they do all the crazy uh, tech stuff at uh, Epcot, which is sometimes actually premieres some of the latest smoke and mirrors type stuff that Disney uses. Okay, like okay, we're just talking about here's here's some connect the dots. So we we're just talking about Ramstein, and they're German, right? Mm-hmm. And they're doing a, a song about America, and they're doing the fake moon landing. We know that NASA is Disney, yep, and Disney is Siemens, and Siemens is German. Interesting. There you go. So here, I was looking for that. Uh, 
There's all kinds of crazy stuff about Disney too. You could do your, you could do a whole book on like Disney conspiracy related stuff. And uh, so, like the cruise lines, all kinds of people have gone missing. From they've all all these like kidnapped and missing people from the cruise lines. Really weird stuff. From Dis- Disney's cruise line, Disney, yeah, Disney cruise lines, yeah. Just like we're on a regular basis, people come up missing off of those. Uh, well, it's such that. Uh, I've, there's a site dedicated to people who, uh, like, families of, of missing people from cruise lines. Wow, really? Yeah, let me pull it up. I cited it in my um, Escape from Tomorrow analysis. I'll send that to you right here. But uh, uh, Escape from Tomorrow. But, yeah, uh, this has happened on other cruise lines too, which some people think probably has like some kind of human trafficking type connection, which uh, makes sense to me. Uh, you know, I don't know a whole lot about all that, but uh, it stands to reason. And see, but yeah, you you can if you search a Disney cruise line kidnappings, you can find stuff on that. But. Um, Yeah, maybe I didn't cite it in that. Anyway. Yeah, here's a Department of Defense behind the biometrics. Yeah, feel the dead air, man. All right. So... You get the idea. You just, you just search it. You can find it. So just say uh, Disney cruise kidnappings or missing persons. Let's so get a New York Daily News.com story first appears. Disney Cruise Line failed to promptly notify police that crew member molested an 11 year girl in August. Ship surveillance cameras captured a 33. Euro there's also a uh, there was a big bunch of news stories about uh, child sex rings work running at Disneyland too, and that's actually in the movie as well. The the Disney princesses. So like if you go to Disneyland, you'll see these hot chicks that have that's their job is to dress up like princesses and walk around. Oh. And in the movie, <laughs> they are whores. The Japanese businessmen pay like million dollars to sleep with the Disney princess. Now, I don't know if that actually happens in Disneyland, but I wouldn't be surprised given all the weirdo, creeper stuff that goes on with Disneyland. There was this... Um, okay, there's supposedly underground tunnels all throughout that Disneyland, is true. right? That is true. I that found actually a, is true, yeah. Yeah, I found a Disney documentary, like a historical di- documentary from Disney about the tunnels. And uh, that is that is actually true. We were talking about this a while back, I remember, and there's a video that was out on YouTube, and it's an official Disney Disney video where they talk about the underground tunnels, and they're showing mm-hmm. you, and they That's say, oh, it. yeah, we do maintenance down there, and yeah, yeah, tunnels. And- yeah, and supposedly uh, Walt was a, was a real weirdo. Like, he would, like, wander around down there, and... I- that's that's in biographies. I don't know how true that is, but uh, to me, he seems like a weirdo. Yeah, and in that in that video I was ta- talking about, there they're interviewing people, and they say, "Oh yeah, have you heard about tunnels?" And they're talking about it. And this one 
there's you know family typical family there and they got a little boy with them and they're like they said well you think there's a, a you know, what do you think about tunnels and all that and the boy like and you can tell it's like scripted and he says oh yeah I've heard there's miners down there and it's like oh yeah my, I guess that could be taken two ways right mm. it was just it, it was just yeah it was kind of like a I don't know. Maybe make too much out of it, but no, it's like yeah. minor. My, my suspicion is that these kinds of things would be perfect for like nabbing people. You, if you look up kidnappings, missing kids at Disneyland, I mean that would be a great place to draw on populations for, or sources for human trafficking stuff like that. And then you've got these cruise lines, and I have a suspicion that a lot of these cruise lines and, and the shipping magnates, Onassis and stuff like that. That they build their money on uh, drug trade. So, what better way to transport uh, goods of that nature than seemingly innocent covers like cruise lines? Yeah, that's pretty unsettling when you Google this and it's like all this stuff's coming up. Missing child incident on Disney Cruise. We reached out to folks at Disney Cruise about the story. Child's kidnapped, blah, blah, blah. Somewhere there's a sur- uh, uh, survivors of this scenario site that I, I found a couple years ago. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if it's taken down. Or... Oh, so they got kidnapped and got loose? No, but I mean like like a families of people that have had this, like started some site of uh, uh, cr- uh, cruise line, uh, what, do you, what would you call it? Survivors isn't the right word. Uh, families of, of uh, cruise line uh, missing persons. I, it was it was some kind of a you know survivors type site, like survivors of disaster. Oh yeah, yeah. Now I mean yeah, that could be a scam too, but uh, I don't know. I, you get the creepy vibe from Disney that you know it just seems I don't know something. DOD weirdness going on with all that. Yeah, it could be. I personally think too. I mean, this is one of those things that might be taken as being like off the wall or out there, but I, I don't think so at all. I mean, if if these underground mining machines are real, which I don't have any reason to believe they're not. I mean, years ago, I uh, there's some company in San Diego, and I did. Uh, little bit of freelance work for them and I did some illustrations of those mining machines <clears throat> that tunnel underground mm-hmm. and you know, such a thing exists it's like there's got to be networks of underground tunnels yeah I think that's true uh, James Bamford's book talks about underground cities his book on the NSA so I mean Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, his old one, the 1982 one, Puzzle Palace, there's a couple sections where he talks about underground cities. So, you know, I... Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I read that uh, a long time ago. Yeah, he talks about... Uh, oh, what's that place in Virginia? It's like... Utah yeah, the, uh, Crystal City Blue, some weird name like that. Something like that. I can't remember the name of it. But, yeah, there, there's one in uh, near D.C., I think, but... Remember Alex Jones used to talk about like hit, uh, secret underground bases at places, and few of the ones he mentioned 
I took note of and looked them up, and it looked looked to be accurate. One of them was like a Hilton hotel somewhere, and there's like a big underground base secretly underneath this Hilton hotel. Yeah, I did see that. There, there's a, uh, you know, Vin, Jesse Ventura's conspiracy theory. He did a the one where he did the Ozark one. Yeah, about the Ozark tunnels and yeah. So I, yeah, so I was looking at that for a bit, and I, I was pulling up some stuff on on YouTube, and like this one guy, he's on there, and he's got some several different videos, and he's he's like interviewing these truckers that are heading into these tunnels, and they're telling me, yeah, you know, we drive under here, we drive, you know, it's they'll be driving underground for miles and miles and miles, wow. and then it pops out somewhere. Uh, I forget where it started and where it ended, but uh, yeah, that's what they were saying on this Jesse Ventura thing uh, show, where like in the Ozarks, like uh, and it's just a a regularly traffic thing. Like truck truck drivers will take uh, shipments down through these tunnels and all that, and they and they like they were saying they supposedly go on for miles and then they'll end up popping out somewhere. Uh, yeah, the, the underground base thing is real. You know, that's that's a thing that kind of floats around. Conspiracy sites, and then you know they all—it's always connected to alien bullshit, which is disinformation. But uh, you can you can you search around a little bit. You can dig up you know legitimate, credible-looking uh, sources on on the underground bases and the tunnels. I found an old Rand Corporation paper that they did back in the '60s, talking about uh, development of high-speed underground rails. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, from underground bases. Yeah. yeah, man. If you you could send that to me, if you find it, that'd be cool. Uh, no, I. Well, you've heard rumors too about people talking about it. What was that? Uh, man, I know there's one story about some guy. I, I I don't know if he was an actor or he was he was kind of openly talking about. It. He said there was some. He he got into some railway system and and. Las Vegas and it goes underground and it goes a long ways and pops up somewhere I don't know but uh, no I missed that but there's yeah there's all kinds of like old mining tunnels out there in, in Vegas but um, well in that movie we were talking about uh, was it Kingsman don't they show that in there probably. they get they get into a like a tube train. And it and yes. they repop yeah. they'll pop up and they're, yeah, they're going from like London a, and pop up in DC or something like that. Yeah, that's in a bunch of the Bond films too, by the way. Uh, remember, it's also in uh, True Detective. Uh, this second season, uh, they show. I don't know if it's true. I would guess it probably is, but apparently there's a bunch of tunnels under LA. Yeah, I don't. I don't doubt it, man. I mean, like, why wouldn't there be? That that would seem like the most efficient, best way to get, uh, you know, to travel from point A to point B. If you got some unobstructed tunnel that goes on for miles and miles and miles, and oh, that'd be great for like vice trafficking and drugs. Oh, whatever, yeah. Just and then, of course, they keep it on the down low and all that. So you know, if you know, you need to get Kissinger from his one speak engagement <laughs> in L.A. to. New York real quick and then he just pops up in New York he just comes out of the just some entryway in the subway tunnel in New York and he's like you think he got off the subway but he really got off this secret passage somewhere 
Well, you can find those, uh, yeah, or, or uh, like they come up out of uh, into a bookstore or some innocuous place. Uh, you you know, you get into history of espionage, and you you'll you'll see the stuff pop up here and there. Uh, supposedly, you know, historical accounts of uh, you know bookstores that were actually MI six fronts and uh, shell cor- corporations, and there was some. Uh, one of those TV document discovery or one of those type channels uh, did like a whole series on um, tunnels underneath cities that people don't expect like there's underneath Turkey there's all these tunnels Rome has all these tunnels and and there's uh, London oh that was it that was the big one it was like London is just a vast like cavern of all these underground networks and and there are there are exit points at all of these places you wouldn't expect like like you walk up in the middle of some bookstore right <laughs> is that the uh, I remember seeing something like that where it's kind of a trendy thing where people will go and meet up in these abandoned tunnel networks and stuff and uh, yeah they go for yeah. miles down underground and all that and uh, they'll, they'll have like parties down there and stuff you see oh, yeah. that I don't know if it's the same thing. But, but, uh, yeah, uh, I don't don't think I even saw the whole thing about the London tunnels. I just saw part of it, but, yeah. It might have been London. It might have been somewhere else, but... uh, Trying to dig that up, but I guess most of these big cities, and then somebody was, there was an article a few months ago about some weird place like Syria or somewhere, like they found this whole network that nobody knew about, supposedly. I don't know if that's true, but... Yeah, I, I know. I've I've talked about this before with the the fact that if you talk about underground cities or underground tunnels, and then it has this, you know, of course it's going to have this crazy crackpot association with it. If you get into talking about anything about it like that, and oh, you mean Hollow Earth, right? Yeah, Hollow Earth, or it's associated with you know uh, aliens or aliens, yeah. reptilians or whatever. Uh, I I'll say well. How conspicuously absent are those concepts out of like anything you read about in history, except for with the exception of maybe like uh, the Viet Cong and the Vietnam War? They said they had all these elaborate underground tunnel networks and everything. And that's how they were able to hold out so long against uh, the overwhelming, you know, technical technological superiority of the American, you know, the American war machine. You know, and it was like okay, these. These outgunned and outmanned and out uh, maneuvered Viet Cong were able to really do some damage with these underground tunnel networks and all that. And I say, okay, I mean, it, it, as successful as they were and all that, it's like, why isn't this something that you hear about that's like common throughout history? Because we know, you know, these these underground cities, underground tunnels exist, or they can be created, or you know, like. Well, some of them are ancient. That was that one about uh, either Syria or Turkey, like it was supposed to be ancient. Right. Um, and I yeah, think what's under Rome is supposed to be old, too, like goes back to the catacomb days of, you know, Christian persecution and stuff like that. Yeah, I just I just thought it was really interesting that's something that you don't really hear too much about. Oh, no, you don't. It's kind of regulated to this kind of side issue where... Oh yeah! By the way, they have these these tunnels here. They have this underground city here, and they have these tunnels here, and it's just kind of this interesting, you know, this interesting byline, you know. 
supposedly underneath uh, Buckingham Palace, the, the royal family has like a whole uh, mall down there. I don't, I don't know if that's true, but uh, like there's their own grocery where it's all organic and it's all it's all underground or whatever. Under the royal property where they live, or yeah, supposedly, it, yeah. Maybe, yeah, I, if, I, if I'm wrong, it may be maybe one of their. Uh, they own like you know a hundred estates. You know, it's crazy amount of houses, but uh, one of their places is supposed to have some big underground underground facility. Well, with these elite classes and all that, I mean, there's got to be some pretty good perks, yeah, right. right? You know? Yeah. Like, uh, what, what are they in it for? You know, it's like, well, yeah, that would make sense. And then I also believe, uh, this probably sounds out there too, but, you know, they're flying around in UFOs and shit. Could probably. I mean, then... You've also got a. Uh, it's not just you know around here. Like you can find all kinds of weird stuff on Google and and uh, like weird sites in China, like complete fake cities, all that kind of stuff. Really weird. Have you seen oh, the ghost cities in China and all that? You yeah. Then, then they like supposedly China built like a replica of Rome out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's just bullshit. I, but uh, you know, I, who knows? Uh, and then, then uh, RT had an interesting sort of mini documentary they did on uh, um, I don't know, what's that big Russian underground base? Uh, I just went blank. It's, yeah, uh, I think I know what you're talking about. There's some big, some big Russian uh, underground base out in the mountains or somewhere. Yeah, I mean it. It just makes me, well, I, I, I'm inclined to, to believe that there's that stuff exists. Just you know, from what is is officially kind of out there in the open and admitted. I mean, they they use these underground tunneling things for doing all kinds of engineering work, construction work, and tunneling through mountains and all that. Like, it'd be like a natural um, progression. Yeah. Is that what it is? Yamantala Mountain Complex. Yamantala Oh, did you ever see that news clip of, it was like a local news clip where they went into like Iron Mountain or NORAD, I don't remember where it was, but they had supposedly the wreckage. I mean, it looks, it's a real, it's a real underground facility, but supposedly the wreckage of 9-11 is there and nobody can see it. What? you seen that? Uh, where is this at? It was a local news clip that was floating around um, alternative media for a couple years. Let me see if I can find it. But uh, Microsoft has a secret facility in this base, and they you know, news clip looks looks to be real. And they go there and they interview a bunch of people. There's like a, a secret. Uh, there's like a whole section that's like an unknown ver- uh, department of the government. Uh, there's a whole and Mike, Bill Gates has all of these uh, original uh, photographs and records stored there, like music records, like the first copy of Elvis and stuff like that. Have you heard of this? Uh-uh. <laughs> this is crazy. So, let's see. Wreckage of... Well, I think the wreckage of 9-11 stuff is baloney, but the wreckage of 9-11 in the underground base. And it's Bill Gates' private... Like yeah, yeah, he has a big sec, a private section of it where he stored 
uh, he stored all this stuff. Here it is. Yeah, I'll send you this link here. Government secrets, even some information on you hidden away. Carried around by trucks like these, you might have seen on local roads or highways, but do you know where they're going? Come before us, Mary Nam traveled across the country to find the answers. When it comes to protecting national secrets, the government goes deep underground, a virtually indestructible mine filled with files, patents, and secrets. It's the place Bill Gates chose to protect some priceless artifacts, and I got to see what few eyes have seen inside Iron Mountain. Yeah, it's Iron Mountain. Iron Mountain, yeah. That's I it. sent you that clip, and uh, you can check that out. But uh, I don't think I got the link, because it popped up as the previous link. Oh, okay, my bad. So, yeah, that's a pretty crazy clip. I don't believe that 9-11 part, but I, the rest of it looks, looks pretty legit. Iron Mountain, yeah, it's supposed to be an underground city, uh, from what I understand. Yeah, and they, they go in they, they go in it in this clip. Looks like it looks real to me. Yeah, with uh, street lights and roads mm-hmm. and just the whole... Just like a city under the ground. I mean, I don't know if that's Iron Mountain. I, yeah, I think that is what I heard down there. And I don't know if they dug it out or it was par- partially maybe a, a natural formation down there or something. Well, yeah, we've got that stuff around here because Tennessee and Kentucky, it's cave, cave land. So there's all kinds of underground cave networks here. Uh, quite famously so. I've, I've been in some of them. And, uh, you know, they're supposed to be just massive and, you know, areas that people haven't even explored don't even know about so no telling yeah I just think it's it, the thing about it is that uh, it's just not something that's a, a officially discussed you know what I mean it's not something that comes up very often at all mm-hmm. other than to kind of put it in the context of it's some kind of a, a curiosity probably like this news clip is going to presented as like oh yeah isn't this kind of nifty yeah that's how it is exactly yeah but nothing significant beyond that you know which yeah oh we just we just put it's just a basement <laughs> yeah just a little storage this is kind of bill gates is like his his storage just like anybody that has a storage it's, uh, it's a shed it's bill gates basement <laughs> <laughs> yeah same thing Never mind that it's part of a official what a government military installation that's underground. <laughs> it's like the Never yeah. mind, it's an underground city. It's just you know, it's just a basement. It's a musty, musty basement down there with some boxes and records yeah, yeah. of Elvis down there. Just happens <laughs> to have a underground city. But <laughs> never mind that. We're gonna look at yeah. We're gonna look at Bill Gates's dusty Elvis albums. <laughs> that's what that's, that's what they show at least. Yeah, yeah. Hey, some like preserves and stuff that is grandma <laughs> made. Some can, some canned pickles. Can. Yeah, pickles. I know, like yeah, just his stash. The canned pickles next to the next to the baby fetuses and big tattoos, <laughs> right? Quarter ounce of weed, fetuses. <laughs> Bill Gates goes down there to get really high. Yeah, yeah that's where he gets away from it all. 
He throws, throws on some Elvis. <laughs> put, put on that Doors album. I'm ready to get ready to get blitzed. Yeah, kicks back down there. Lights up some Atari. Opens up a jar of pickles and yeah, Atari. <laughs> He's got all the classic games down there. All the count, all the all the old consoles. <laughs> yeah, he's got not just he's got, he's got actual arcade games that he plays. Yeah, it's like Tron. Tron. No, there's no telling what exists, man. You know what I mean? I mean, there's just no no telling, no telling, because yeah. we're so absolutely in the dark on so much. You know, it's like, well, yeah, why why do they got to let the you know we get hints of it, but. Why, why do you got to let the average schlub know anything? You know. Yeah, they, right. They, people aren't going to care anyway. I mean, the day what? that I the day I went down to the caves, it was like one other dude. <laughs> it's like nobody nobody was there going you know down to these caves. Kind of. Nobody's curious. Nobody's like, yeah, what's okay? There's this vast underground network of caves, and. uh yeah, right. Literally under people's noses, mm-hmm. and uh, that's that's the thing I bring up a lot. Is like unless the average person is told to uh, be concerned with something or to, to kind of take note of something, unless they're told by the mass media, that they, they just simply won't be interested. Right, or even even this clip that tells people about the underground city. I mean, nobody remembers this clip. <laughs> you know, it's like it, forgotten. Brzezinski talked about that, that, you know, eventually people wouldn't even be able to remember the news from two weeks ago anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it's like the, the chemtrail thing. It's like, I don't know what they are. I mean, I, I really, I, I don't, like, you hear so much about it, like, well, it's, it, they're they're dropping aluminum or this, that, or the other thing, or cadmium or whatever. And uh, like I don't know how would you be able to really figure that out? You know, I I bought a test kit and I I never did run it because it was almost like, well, what what is this going to tell me? It's not really going to tell me anything. Even if even if there is metal and it, it doesn't necessarily conclusively prove that it came out of a chemtrail. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's real though. I mean, I don't know what what exactly they're spraying, but uh, but I know I've, it's something. Yeah. Yeah, and I've seen the patents for. Uh, nanoparticle stuff at like real. You can go to sites that sell it. Like they they, they sell the the nozzles and stuff that do spray uh, nanoparticle n- nanoparticulate. What what does that do? I don't know. Is it you know, lodging in your brain? I don't I don't know. <laughs> but but uh, you, there is that you know Air Force document that looks to be real. Um, I've I've cited uh, Royal Society papers on geoengineering and strategies for geoengineering so they're doing it but what exactly the end game of it is I'm not sure right and uh, well they say oh they're poisoning the crops of the world and the plants worldwide so that only Monsanto resist aluminum resistant soybeans will be the only thing that will grow and all this other kind of outlandish stuff and it's like well I mean I I couldn't see something like that going on because you would in, inadvertently I'd imagine kill a bunch of other stuff that is going to really be problematic down the road 
even for the people who supposedly run things, but uh, but it, but the fact remains is that you could see this crazy activity going on right over your head, yeah. and nobody pays attention to it. It's like, oh yeah. Well, it, well there was a Mother Jones article that I referenced a couple weeks ago that was pretty crazy, where it was like Monsanto has developed this new pesticide, that insecticide that alters the DNA of the plants and they, the way they uh, do this is uh, by spraying it from planes. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Uh, now, whether or not that is the same thing that is being done over our heads, I don't know, but uh, this article looked to be legitimate, not that I'm saying Mother Jones is the best source, but they did have a lot of uh, citations from you know actual Monsanto representatives, and they're saying, yeah, we, we do spray this insecticide, but it uh, it attacks the DNA of the uh, animals through the plant. Uh, but don't worry, you can eat it. <laughs> yeah. So you can it kills the bugs through their, through their DNA, but you can eat the plant still. Don't worry. Right. It's not. And, and, and they and they apply it through aerosol spraying from airplanes. So the aerosol, whatever's in it, alters the DNA of the plant. So the article says, yeah. Wow. No, I... I, Like, who knows? I mean, you hear so much different conflicting stuff, and then it's like, well, how much of it is misinformation? How much is it put out there by the... Even the same people that are in on doing it are putting out disinformation campaigns about what it actually is. But uh, the, uh, I think one of the big interesting things about the whole phenomena is that people just totally disregard it. Like it's not going on. Nothing's nothing's going on with it. There's nothing to see there. There's nothing to talk about. And uh, what do you think about Morgellons? That's another weird one. I, I can't really make my mind up on. It, it looks like there's something going on, but at the same time, I could see that being a psyop of, uh, like, free, I don't know, freaking people out, or I don't, I don't know what. But Well, I've actually seen with my own eyes that crazy cotton candy bullcrap that falls out of the sky. You have? Yeah, it's like, and it... I've seen some YouTube videos that look, look legit, so, yeah. Yeah, I've seen that, and, uh... Unless it was something, I was like, I, I know it was nothing I've never seen before. I know it was some kind of, it was just, just something really out of the ordinary by its appearances. But what exactly it was, I, I, I don't know. I, I guess there's no way to like nail that down. But, well, but it, uh, this this company that makes these nozzles uh, claims to to do that. It makes like a spider web or something. Yeah, let's see. This may be a uh, nanotechnology coatings depositive. I think this is it. Yeah, here it is. Uh, It's a company called Sonotech, and you can buy these nozzles. It looks looks to be legit. Here it is. Now, I don't know for sure if that's what they're spraying from the planes, but it does... uh, I can see the connection being made there. Okay. Nanotechnology coatings. Huh. Depositing uniform nanolayers of solutions of any size or with substrate, including moving webs of material. Mm-hmm. 
Now, there's a good doc. I, I thought the documentary was pretty well done. Have you seen that one called uh, Chemtrails: A Secret War? It's, it's an Italian documentary. No, I have not. Yeah, they cite this, these nozzles in that, and talk about how uh, it's not always being sprayed from like a big tank. What that they can actually do it through the fuel uh, dispersal. So there's a dis- I don't know how it works, but somehow in the, in the process of the chemical reaction in the fuel tanks, when the plane just through its regular exhaust, it can actually let loose these nanoparticles. Oh my God, what am I looking at? Are these clouds or what the hell is this? What's that? Like some of these pictures, man, they're like aerial pictures, right? Of these mm-hmm. chemtrails. And this shit is so fucked up looking, you know what I mean? It's like, what the hell is going on with this, man? Yeah, I, went, I, I tracked down the documents that they mentioned in this documentary, and I, I found all of them for the most part. They mentioned about four or five. <clears throat> so I'll send you that, too, if you want to check that out later. But oh, that was a pretty pretty convincing presentation. And they, they do make the argument that it does have an, a nanotech component to it. Now, I'm not saying it's like that dude was saying that <laughs> they flip, yeah. a, flip a switch and turn everybody off or whatever. Turn on mind uh, mind control, artificial intelligence. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, well, if that is true, then well, I mean, hang it up because there ain't nothing you can do about it. But mm-hmm. right, I mean, but it, I, something's going on with this, and I, with the whole with the whole chemtrailing and all that, I, I've seen it too many times in my own eyes. Yeah, and I don't just think it's engineering. I, th- I think they are. I mean, the government has no problem killing people and spraying people with shit they've i believe they've done that before so you know so a deep deep population i i don't know i mean probably i mean that would be the most likely candidate but maybe there's maybe it's just like a big um like a like in um in brave new world they have a, a breakaway area for the elite where you can actually like live organic and chill out and paint pictures and play music, whatever you want to do. And then for the rest of the planet, it's under, it's a prison planet. It's, it's under, uh, the world socialist dictators, the, the 10 world controllers. And it's all a big, uh, test tube. So maybe they're just, uh, running all kinds of experiments, tests, uh, just I'm just guessing, throwing it out there. I don't know. I just don't see how you could do something like that and not just totally just screw up the earth, you know? Yeah. I don't know, though. I mean, they're into scientism. They, 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 they think that they really do believe the ideology, I think. So they think that you know, anything that happens is just a natural process anyway, so you spray a bunch of shit with, with uh, what, nanotech or something that causes a bunch of weird uh, manifestations or outgrowths or deaths or, you know, it's just part of nature. Yeah, survival of the fittest, right? So mm-hmm. whoever survives it is going to be the fittest. 
Okay. But I'm not trying to be a doomsday person. I don't, you know, I'm not like I'm not wearing a gas mask all day long because I'm afraid of going outside or something. Well, no, I mean either. I mean, and I've I brought this up before. It's like if you know, I, I, I take walks a lot, so I walk around like uh, going. You know, you go to the like canals or where little streams and creeks go and stuff like that, and you know, and I'm and I'm seeing frogs, I'm seeing tadpoles, you see little fish, and and um, you know that's where all the city runoff and everything goes. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've seen the trails here, I've seen them multiple times. You know, overhead and you know the the trails and the and the crud and the sky and all that, and it's like, well, I, I'm just. I'm just thinking based on my direct personal observation it's like if that's if that's something that's highly toxic then I'm certainly not seeing it in the you know like there's vines that grow around here in my yard and there's you know and like some years they do really good and they're really lush and they're really uh green and look like they're hardy and healthy and the plant and life and everything is hardy and healthy and if I can go out and I could go to the creek and I could see frogs I could see little fish swimming around and stuff like that it's like well obviously this environment is not that toxic you know mm-hmm. it, it, it couldn't be that toxic you know and there's there's actually like not not too far from here there's like beavers that live down in the creek and they build dams and shit and it's like well I mean if 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 they're in a city limit like that and then you know you got all this direct runoff going directly into the creeks, coming off the roads. You know the stuff's falling out of the sky and it's going into the. It, yeah, it's, it's going to be highly concentrated there. You know, especially in a city. You know, so it could be like the fluoride in the water, though, where it's not a thing that you know you're you're not going like, to lose all your IQ and be retarded after you know two glasses of tap water. Could be a thing where you know maybe it's uh, you know it takes twenty years or something or. Yeah, just some kind of cumulative effect over. Yeah, or it also could be that, like, maybe the majority of the spraying actually is for whatever the military applications they say are for uh, radio and cell cell phone communications to be to be uh, top notch or whatever. And then maybe other areas they do it, you know, like testing or something. I don't know, but I thought uh, whatever you think of Sophia Smallstorm, I thought that her section of her talk on this topic where she talks about the the nanotech stuff I, I thought there was some interesting aspects to that like where where they want to try to like make a, like a blending of organic and non-organic uh, life forms uh, I'm not saying that I'm certain that that's true I'm just saying that, you know, you look at somebody like Ray Kurzweil, I recognize that he's a con man, he's selling a, a, a fake ideology. I'm not saying transhumanism is true, but I don't know. I just I just think that the, the, the scientific types are crazy. They'll, they'll, they'll do that kind of stuff. Uh, but I'm not, like, walking around afraid all day. Yeah, I mean, uh, who knows what the real mindset is of, of these people are as far as w- what they're going to... Like you know, I, I I don't know. Yeah, who knows? I mean, it's it's all kind of at a certain point you can only go off of speculation and trying to figure some of this stuff out. But uh, I, I will say though, I don't I don't know if it necessarily follows that just because you're some, seeing something sprayed in the sky that necessarily means that it's uh, 
you know, something that's super highly toxic or is some sort of metal or something like that. I don't know what could possibly be sprayed, though, that would be good. Yeah, right. Well, supposedly the, 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 the military explanation is, from the documents I've looked at, the owning the weather document is that uh, if you can create that kind of a cloud seeding type of situation in the atmosphere, that it boosts cell signals. Oh, and, really? Okay. Yeah. So, and so, since we live in obviously this big, big time cell cell dominated economy now with all these big mega corporations that that run the cell, you can see why they would have a vested interest in in boosting cell signals so uh, I feel sure that's probably true uh, that's probably the one reason that they're doing it monetarily um, that owning the weather document does talk about <clears throat> the weaponization of weather you know, you know there's, there's that UN treaty from a long time ago about not weaponizing weather and all that stuff so yeah, but from there it, it does get speculative uh, but I mean you've seen weird stuff sprayed you know Right. What is it? I've seen some pretty hair-raising stuff in the sky with this, man. I mean, I remember one time, that's where I lived in Arkansas, so uh, I lived near Little Rock, uh, south side of Little Rock, and uh, where supposedly all the, like, a lot of the Rockefeller family and stuff lived around there, so I, I was like, like, what's up with this chemtrailing and all that? But I remember one night, it was at night, and I've never seen this before or since, and it was just it was just horizon to horizon, just one big like tic tac toe board, mm-hmm. but just a grid like a well defined grid, like right over like it, it didn't look like the it was like really really high up in altitude. It was like it not really low either, but you know it's kind of I don't know how to describe it. Like it it, it it wasn't real high up in the sky. It was but it was so noticeable, and I was. I got out. I was going into a store. I got out of my car and I looked up, and, and it, you know, I just it just caught my eye because it was so, uh, just, I mean, totally surreal looking. It was just really bizarre, and um, it was just like there's just no way in hell that that's just jet traffic. This no, this this is not possible. And I, I remember I was so overwhelmed by it. There was like this couple that was coming out of the store, and I said, "Do you see this? Do you see this what's in the sky?" And they were like, "You know, this is kind of a typical response where they just kind of just shrugged it off and then went about their business." But I was, I, I just remember that just like it was yesterday because it was just so out of the ordinary and so bizarre. But uh, have, have you seen that uh, owning owning the weather document before? Oh yeah, yeah, I've seen that, and yeah. uh, we talked about that uh, when uh, that Hurricane Sandy. We were talking about we talked about before about weather control and all that. And uh, Marcus Allen was bringing up a link to a site that we were sitting there watching, and we were watching as this hurricane was coming into New Jersey, and you could see where. Uh, the next rad radar, radar sites are, and yes, on this yeah on this particular version of this radar, you could see where they were pulsating. Yes, and it looked for all the world like they were steering 
the storm because where it was coming inland, you could see where they were switched off, and then up along the coast they were lit up. They were just pulsating, mm-hmm. and then the, the and then the storm just rode right alongside where the stations were, and then at the where it got to the point where you didn't see any activity. That's where the storm just kind of like made a turn and went right oh. up into New Jersey, and it was like, huh. yeah, so. Yeah, I think that's how that's how weather control is done. Is with, with through this next rad radar. Yeah, that's I've one of the first too, things. Yeah, the next rad towers are actually able to you know heat the atmosphere or cool it down or whatever. Yeah, and that's one of the first things they did when they invaded Iraq. Is oh yeah, we need to outfit Iraq with next rad radars for their airports. <laughs> it's like oh that's nice of you. It's like. Yeah, that's what they did, like, right out of the gate. It's like, yeah, we need to install these all over the place in Iraq. Yeah, my dad was in the Navy, and I I would try to get him to talk about this stuff, and he worked on this gun called the Sea Wiz, which you you pull up a a, a YouTube clip. They'll show you the Sea Wiz, if it's still up there, uh, and it's like, it's an older, like, 80s, 90s naval promo video, and it's like the latest technologies of... uh, U.S. Navy, and there's like this little R2-D2 gun that shoots a million thousand bullets a second, some crazy amount of bullets. Oh, yeah, failing. <laughs> yeah, and then the other one is the uh, that the clip shows is the directed energy weapon. So, uh, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll see if I can find that clip. But um, So I was talking to my dad about this one day, and he was telling me all about the weapons and stuff, and I said, well, what about all this directed energy stuff? You guys working on that? He said, yeah, we, we worked on that. And I said, well, can you tell me about it? He said, ah, it's not really what I did, but he said, uh, basically, it's all a bunch of radar. I was like, so just tracking? Or He's like, no, it's weaponized. <laughs> <laughs> weaponized radar, yeah. Well, it's what, radio waves? Well, yeah, he meant different, just different energy waves, right? Energy waves and uh, it's kind of like a, you know, if you can go to Walmart and drop fifty bucks and buy something that will heat up a you know cup, a microwave yeah. oven. You know, here it is. Uh, now this. Now wait. This is just. This. Sorry, that's that's just a sea whiz. But there's one clip that has the sea whiz and uh, you know, direct. You can, you can find naval clips of direct energy weapons. It's old old stuff. But yeah. <laughs> What did, what did you do? Were you were you uh, when you were in the navy? I worked in uh, aviation supply. Okay. So like uh, worked storerooms and stuff like that, filling orders for aviation parts, warehouses, and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, there's all kinds of laser weapon stuff yeah I would always oh I was like whenever I had an opportunity to try to hit people up you know for information mm-hmm. like, oh yeah how fast does the ship go and you know whatever you know just out of curiosity and yeah they would people will just blurt stuff out you know yeah right if they know it like they're telling me about how fast the ship goes and supposed to be classified but they said oh yeah it's 
travel. I know it travels like 80 knots or something. So I don't know, or that translates to like 100 miles an hour or something like that. I don't know, but it's like, oh yeah, an aircraft carrier can go that fast, and it's like, well, I had no reason to doubt it. I don't know. I mean, the guy told me. I think he was in a position to know. And uh, yeah, you know, stuff that's allegedly classified, though. It's like people on like, ships and stuff that they talk about that stuff. So, right. Well, and uh, you know, uh, uh, Ian Fleming was talking about directed energy weapons, you know, forty years ago. So it's nothing new there. Yeah. But then, like, I can turn around and tell you, oh yeah, aircraft carry can go hundred miles an hour on the water. <laughs> and it's like, wh- who am I? You know, like, what are you going to do? You going to take my word for it? You know, it's like that's just something I heard too. So it's like, how do you? What? What good is that information to? throw around out there you mm-hmm. know what i mean so it's either you take it or leave it and if you're not authoritative source then what you say doesn't mean diddly squat right exactly. so that's like what the, the what the stuff about oh the the military the government keeping secrets it's like all the all you got to do to keep a secret is not officially announce it <laughs> right i mean for the most yeah. part oh it would get out oh if the moon landings were fake they would that would get out well it certainly has gotten out, I'm sure. <laughs> That's the thing, yeah, it does get out. <laughs> People yeah. just take notice, right? I mean, how many cocktail parties has there been where the guy, like a, some insider, just blurts it out? Oh, yeah, it's fake, and was that? <laughs> yeah, the studio, and I was in there in the studio, and yeah, how many times? I'm sure countless times. You get drunk, you get mouthy, and it's like, well, what, what, you, what are you going to do? You're going to run tell who? What are you going to run tell somebody? What are you going to tell? They're going to put you on a uh, Maury Povich or something, you know? Right, right, right. And then what are you going to tell Maury Povich? You're going to say, "Oh yeah, I was at a cocktail party, and this one guy, you know, after he pulled the lampshade off his head, he told stories about how the moon was <laughs> fake, and he claimed to work for NASA. I don't know if he really did or not. And that's yeah, that's a great story. Yeah, thanks a lot. Well, you know what I mean? Yeah, right. Like the people whisper that stuff all the time comes out you hear all kinds of stuff I don't think that dude was supposed to tell me that they had drones that supposedly you know can can take directly off without a without a landing uh, whatever like a like a landing strip like they can just take direct uh, like a vertical ascent but uh, you know what, what am I going to do with that information <laughs> yeah you can go mention it and then it's just hearsay you know like oh yeah i heard this and then yeah there's yeah all kinds of stuff you can hear and you can pick up here and there but uh it you know and there's people too and i've i think we've all met these people that are just they're gonna tell you tall tales man and they're just they're just pulling stuff out of their ass and telling you just to tell tell something you know there's that too you know Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm, right. I'm not saying that uh, I believe this dude just because he said it, but I, I just meant that. No, it's it, probably true. Yeah, because it seemed to to make sense with the drone that I saw late at night. Like uh, this this guy, my my cousin grew up with. Like you know, here's one of these stories. But like, uh, it just he, he's known the guy for everybody. Like we we was having some beers and hanging out and. And my cousin's like, oh, yeah, tell Chris your UFO story, man. And he's like, oh, I don't know. It's like, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to you. I was like, I don't, I don't have a problem with any of that. Mm-hmm. So he says, oh, yeah, I was flying a Cessna. And uh, so he's, you know, he's got his pilot's license and all that. And he's 
he's up in a Cessna. He says, oh, yeah, this round orb thing goes flying right alongside me, and it just stayed right there, right next to me for, like, he said about a good ten minutes. And it just flew straight off ahead of him and out of sight, just mm. like in an instant. And it is, I said, "Yeah, well, what, what do you think it was?" He said, and "He said, I don't think it was. This is no way that could have been." Because I was thinking, "Well, it's probably some kind of military crap or something," you know. It's like, "He's oh no, there's no way that could have been." And it's like, "Oh, <coughs> I wasn't going to argue with him because he saw it, but uh, I, I was going to say like." Uh, how do you know what the military has and doesn't have? You know, right, it's like right. it, it may look outlandish and stuff, but that doesn't mean nothing. You know, it's like it, it's just some some tech that you're not familiar with. Yeah, you exactly. Oh uh, well, I think I'm gonna have to go eat. So yeah, me too, man. So yeah, so we did a uh, we did a six hour one. That's epic. good. Uh, epic, dude. Epic, epic me- mega interview. <laughs> <laughs> cool man yeah all right thanks for having me on pleasure as always yeah it's always always good man always always hit on a whole bunch of stuff that i never heard of so that's always ditto you clue me into stuff i did never never heard about so yeah yeah it's good man it's information exchange so yeah mission mission accomplished right absolutely all right well you take care man all right you too you have a good one talk to you later
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.